The views expressed in this course are those of the professor and do not necessarily reflect the position or policy of the U.S. Navy, the U.S. Department of Defense, or the U.S. government. Lecturer is Professor Paul Rosenzweig. Professor Rosenzweig is a professorial lecturer in law at the George Washington University Law School, where he lectures on cybersecurity law and policy. He is a cum laude graduate of the University of Chicago Law School. Professor Rosenzweig is the founder of Red Branch Consulting PLLC, a homeland security consulting company, and a senior advisor to the Chertoff Group. He formerly served as a deputy assistant secretary for policy in the U.S. Department of Homeland Security, and he is currently a distinguished visiting fellow at the Homeland Security Studies and Analysis Institute. Professor Rosenzweig is a senior editor of the Journal of National Security Law and Policy, and the author of the recently released Cyber Warfare: How Conflicts in Cyberspace Are Challenging America and Changing the World. In July 2010, a small computer security firm in Belarus announced that they discovered the signature of a new piece of malicious computer software, what we call malware. They gave this new virus an unassuming name, rootkit.tempheider. And yet, despite the seemingly innocuous name, this piece of malware was something brand new. Some have called it. The world's first cyber-guided missile. The way this new type of cyber threat has transformed the world, and quite possibly changed your life, is the subject of this course. Thank you for joining me as we explore what you need to know about cybersecurity. Together, over the next 18 lectures, we will be learning about the exciting and scary world of cybersecurity. What you'll come to see is that. Rootkit.tempheider is really just the tip of the iceberg. Now, when the Belarus announcement was made, it was nothing unusual, hardly a surprise. After all, Symantec—that's the large cybersecurity firm that sells the Norton antivirus system—discovers more than 400 million new pieces of malware each year. That's for 2011. That's more than 12 new pieces of malware every second. Of course, most of what they look like and discover is simple. It looks a lot like older pieces of malware and is easily identified and rendered harmless. But this new virus, which eventually became known by the name of Stuxnet, was different. 
very different. In fact, it was so different that we find ourselves staring into a great unknown, just as those who invented air flight or the atomic bomb could not anticipate the consequences of those new technologies, so too Stuxnet is, I think, the harbinger of a changed world. Understanding why that is so is really the entire purpose of this course. In this series of lectures, we will, I think, frighten you a bit as we describe all of the malicious actors in cyberspace. But also, I hope, encourage you by describing how security measures are trying to keep up with the bad actors. At the end, you may be a little wary. The bad actors are still winning today. But you'll understand that the contest isn't hopeless. So let's start with Stuxnet itself. Up until the Stuxnet software was developed, the mantra of many experts was that the effects of cyber conflicts would be restricted to the cyber domain. As one wag put it, cyber war only kills a bunch of little baby electrons. Stuxnet showed the world that cyber war could potentially kill real babies. What Stuxnet did was infect a physical manufacturing plant. In this case, the uranium enrichment facility in Natanz, Iran, and make it malfunction. Using only a cyber virus, Iran's adversary made the machines break down. That's scary, because while Stuxnet only disrupted a uranium purification system, there's nothing at all that limits a cyber assault to uranium purification. The same type of system that runs the Iranian centrifuges also runs the systems that control the heat of their nuclear reactors. It is, theoretically, no harder to cause the centrifuges to break down than, say, to have graphite control rods pulled out, causing a nuclear meltdown. And if the Iranian facility at Natanz is vulnerable, so is the electric grid in New York City or the Colorado River's Hoover Dam. Stuxnet was a piece of software code. At bottom, it was just a string of ones and zeros like any other program. Except, of course, this one was malevolent. Stuxnet used what experts call a two-phase attack. In other words, it had two parts. The first part was malware that infected a Windows-based Microsoft operating system. If you run Windows on your computer, then in theory, your computer was also a potential target. So let's call this the delivery phase of the program. The purpose of this delivery phase was to put the attack program in a system that might someday be attached to the target's control system. From this delivery platform, the malware was designed to jump to infect what is known as a SCADA system, a supervisory control and data acquisition system. In this case, one manufactured by Siemens, the German manufacturing giant. In fact, Stuxnet targeted a very specific type of SCADA system software, the S7400 PLC software. And PLC, by the way, stands for Programmable Logic Controller. That's the generic name for the type of software controller that's used to operate large-scale machinery operations worldwide. Now, when Stuxnet jumped from the Microsoft operating system to the SCADA system, this was the attack phase of the program. The entire program required two phases for its attack because, not surprisingly, many SCADA systems that run sensitive or secret machinery 
are not directly connected to the Internet. A direct connection makes the system more vulnerable to intrusion. So operators add an additional layer of security by creating a, an air gap, that is, making sure that there are no connections between the system and the Internet. The Iranian nuclear enrichment program was almost certainly air-gapped from the broader Internet. So Stuxnet must have entered the SCADA system through some interaction it had with an external Windows-based program. Nobody quite knows how that happened. Perhaps it was introduced into the control program when an engineer hooked up a Windows-based tablet to collect data for diagnostic purposes. Perhaps it was on one of these, a thumb drive that was mistakenly plugged into a Windows operating interface system. Or, more creatively, it might have been introduced on purpose by a spy who infiltrated the facility for the purpose of introducing the worm into the system. Personally, I kind of enjoy that cloak-and-dagger image, especially when combined with the high-tech idea of a computer virus. In truth, though, we'll probably never know for sure. Whatever the method of introduction, the second phase of the attack demonstrated a large degree of sophistication. It was designed to target only a single, particular type of operating system, a bit like a precision-guided missile seeking a specific house to bomb. And in identifying its target within the Iranian nuclear enrichment facility, Stuxnet's developers exhibited a significant degree of insider knowledge. They knew exactly what to attack and how to do so. Before we discuss the actual target, however, we have to back up just a bit and talk about uranium and enrichment. As you probably remember, back around 2008 and 2009, many in the West became concerned that Iran was developing a nuclear weapon. It probably still is. That effort, combined with its rather extreme rhetoric, raised the hackles of many in the West. It turns out that the uranium that occurs in nature isn't pure enough to work as a nuclear fuel in a reactor. And it also isn't pure enough to work as an explosive material for an atomic bomb. Uranium ore has to be purified to be of real value. And one part of the process of purification requires that a bunch of centrifuges spin at a constant rate of speed. And when we say constant, we mean really, really constant, with very little variation. So it isn't surprising that we use computers, these SCADA systems we've been talking about, to precisely control the speed of the rotors that spin the nuclear centrifuges. When they work right, these SCADA systems can be very precise. The Stuxnet attack changed all that. It manipulated the speed of the centrifuge rotors to make them slow down and then speed up. The variations in speed were designed to slowly wear down and ultimately crack the rotors. Because Stuxnet made the centrifuges run at a highly variable rate, the uranium produced was impure and unsuitable for use. Along the way, Stuxnet also disabled and bypassed several digitally operated safety systems that were designed to make sure that the centrifuges ran at a fixed and safe rate of speed. It's, it's worth pausing for a minute to think about this because it really is something new and different. Here we have a piece of computer malware having a real-world effect. 
In this case, the real-world effect was to break some rotors in a centrifuge. But once we start down that road, well, almost anything is, is possible. Any physical system that is operated by a computer system like the SCADA system is at least now theoretically vulnerable to attack and possible destruction. And perhaps not so theoretically. In 2007, the Department of Homeland Security ran a test at one of our national labs in Idaho. The test was known as Aurora, and it involved a malicious computer program. The program worked on a diesel generator, one that isn't too different from the diesel generators used in electricity-generating facilities all across America, and in fact, across much of the world. There's a video of the test, and it's really quite incredible. During the test, nobody touches the generator physically. But by the end of the test, black smoke is pouring from the machine. That's definitely not what the engineers had in mind for this piece of machinery. What happened was that the Idaho computer scientists put some malware into the SCADA program. Not Stuxnet, but a moderately close cousin probably. And instead of breaking rotors, they made the generator run itself to death and burn itself out. Now, that's pretty scary. Between Aurora and Stuxnet, you can understand why policymakers, lawyers, military leaders around the globe are concerned. Not only did Stuxnet have physical effects, it also hid them. Stuxnet was a surreptitious piece of malware. Buried within the program was a pre-recorded series of data reports on the operation of the centrifuges. Now, of course, SCADA systems regularly provide reports to the operators about how the machinery is working. While Stuxnet was causing the centrifuges to operate poorly, it was using pre-recorded data to falsely report to the operators that everything was in working order. Think of the movie Ocean's Eleven where the robber heroes play a pre-recorded tape of what is happening in the vault they're robbing to cover their true activities. And you get an idea of how the Stuxnet worm covered its tracks. Iran has, understandably, been unwilling to say much publicly about how badly it was hurt by Stuxnet. At a minimum, confirmed reports suggest that the malware destroyed a thousand centrifuges at the Natanz facility. One Israeli analyst told the Jerusalem Post that Stuxnet may have set the Iran nuclear program back by at least two years. Of course, as in the real world, sometimes even the most precise missiles cause some collateral damage. Though Stuxnet was targeted at the Iranian Natanz nuclear processing facility, according to Symantec, that's the computer security firm, by September 29, 2010, there were 100,000 computer servers infected with Stuxnet in the world. Now, approximately 60% of those were in Iran. The next five countries to experience the most Stuxnet infections were Indonesia, India, the United States, Azerbaijan, and the United Kingdom, respectively. But all things considered, the targeting was pretty precise. The only place where the virus actually turned on and broke things at least the only place we know about, was at Natanz. So, who did it? At least on the official record, nobody knows for sure. There's been no decisive demonstration of attribution of responsibility for the Stuxnet malware. But there's been a lot of educated, 
and maybe less than educated speculation. For example, some people think that there are hints about the authorship of the worm buried in the malicious code itself. Pieces of evidence that allegedly are signatures demonstrating that Israel wrote the Stuxnet code. One piece of evidence is the prominence within the code of the number 19790509, which, when you invert it, might be a reference to the date May 9th, 1979, which happens to also be the day a prominent Iranian Jew was executed by Ayatollah Khomeini's government. Indeed, if this were a mystery novel, then the Israelis would have the means, motive, and opportunity to have committed the crime. And they have a powerful incentive to degrade Iranian nuclear progress. But so do others, including the United States. In fact, the New York Times reported that the two countries actually cooperated in the production of Stuxnet, using American know-how to build the worm and then test it at Israel's Dimona complex in the Negev desert. According to the New York Times, the Stuxnet worm was tested on centrifuges identical to those at the Natanz nuclear facility that the United States got from Libya. One other indicator, Stuxnet may have been just the last phase of a larger sabotage program known as FLAME. According to a 2012 report in the Washington Post, the United States and Israel jointly developed FLAME to collect intelligence in preparation for the Stuxnet cyber sabotage attacks. This massive piece of malware, it's the largest we've ever seen, was designed to secretly map Iran's computer networks and monitor the computers of Iranian officials, sending back a steady stream of intelligence. Apparently, someone used that information to make sure that Stuxnet hit its target. And here's the fun part. Although flame came first in time, Stuxnet was discovered first by outsiders. Now, that's confusing, isn't it? Okay, so what's the big deal? Cyber viruses can have real-world effects. Is that really any different than what, say, a grenade or a mortar attack can do? Maybe not. But from another perspective, this change in capabilities may be as world-shaking metaphorically speaking, of course, as the explosion of the first atomic bomb. When in July 1945, the first experimental bomb was exploded, J. Robert Oppenheimer, the scientist who led the Los Alamos development efforts, immediately recognized the significance of the event. As he recounted some years later in an interview, quote, we knew the world would not be the same I remembered the line from the Bhagavad Gita. Vishnu says, now I am become death, the destroyer of worlds. I suppose we all thought that, one way or another. But even Oppenheimer barely understood the significance of the changes that arose from the first atomic bomb. At the time, he recognized its destructive power and the transformative effect it would have on war making. But nobody could at the dawn of the nuclear age, anticipate its long-term social, psychological, and geopolitical effects. Looking back now, with the perspective of more than 65 years, we can see some of those changes. From the first atomic bomb came nuclear power and cheaper electricity. But it also brought us new ways of thinking about war, 
like the concept of mutually assured destruction, the counterintuitive idea that world peace is better maintained through the hyperdevelopment of destructive capacity. This led to the equally counterintuitive view that defense is destabilizing. If missile defenses work, then mutually assured destruction doesn't. As a result, we concluded that defending yourself was dangerous and maybe even immoral. We effectively banned all defensive technologies through the Anti-Ballistic Missile Treaty. In the broader field of world geopolitics, nuclear weapons also wrought unexpected changes. In an extended sense, the existence of atomic weapons mandated a policy of containment rather than confrontation, since nuclear war was too grave to risk. And from the policy of containment flowed the Cold War, the Marshall Plan, NATO, and ultimately limited wars in Korea and Vietnam. Now, at the beginning of the nuclear era, all of these developments were unanticipated glimmers on the, the far horizon unseen by anyone who witnessed the first atomic explosion. Atomic weapons were utterly transformative. Cyberspace is no different. We've had an easy, some would say too easy time, exploiting the benefits of the Internet. Now, however, it seems as though the vulnerabilities threaten to overwhelm the benefits. The Internet is a bit of a wild and dangerous place where our secrets and even our identities are increasingly at risk. Viruses like Stuxnet that threaten our critical infrastructure are but the most extreme example of those vulnerabilities. Like the explosion of the atomic bomb, we can't even begin to predict what the future holds. But events like Stuxnet tell us that the changes will be very great indeed. Stuxnet was a proof of concept that cyber war can be real. And as the Department of Homeland Security has noted, now that information about Stuxnet is publicly available, it's a lot easier for other bad actors to develop variants that target other SCADA systems around the world. Because SCADA systems are pervasive and generic, the Stuxnet worm is, essentially, a blueprint for a host of infrastructure attacks. The American demonstration that nuclear weapons were capable of manufacture assured the Soviets that their efforts would eventually succeed. Similarly, the proof through Stuxnet that cyber attacks can have kinetic effects has opened up a whole world of possibilities for malware designers. Many of those possibilities are potentially catastrophic. If you doubt the last proposition, consider that the largest SCADA system in the world is run by Gazprom, the massive Russian gas and oil producer. That ought to give anyone pause. Imagine what would happen if someone used a Stuxnet variant to destroy the pipeline system that ships oil and gas to Europe or to blow up the largest Russian petroleum processing plant. Or think of this possibility. Maybe Stuxnet wasn't really intended to have that great an effect. Maybe the damage to Iran's nuclear program was just a useful collateral benefit to a larger purpose that of sending a message to the Iranians that even their most sensitive programs were vulnerable. This is sometimes called an info hack, where the purpose is more to let your opponent know that he is vulnerable and therefore should be cautious and circumspect in his actions than it is to achieve any particular result. Indeed, some strategic cyber analysts are convinced, albeit without any direct evidence, 
that Stuxnet was not the only payload delivered to the Iranian systems. After all, having gone to the significant effort of getting inside the Iranian system, why stop at disrupting the uranium enrichment centrifuges? A sensible adversary may have left behind other payloads with the capability of far more significant disruptions. Payloads that are virtually impossible to detect and scrub from an existing control system. The most profound similarities between atomic weapons and cyber threats, however, lie in the disruptive nature of the Stuxnet event. Imagine what it must have been like the day after the first atomic bomb was exploded. Around the globe, settled assumptions about war, policy, foreign affairs, and law had, in an instant, all come unglued. Even 17 years after the atomic bomb was first exploded, the uncertainty about their use and the threat they posed was so great that the Cuban Missile Crisis nearly engulfed the world in nuclear war. We're about to experience that same sort of tumultuous time. And as of the date of this lecture, nobody in America, except a very few people who are concerned senior policymakers, really knows it. Furthermore, and perhaps more ominously, even at the dawn of the nuclear age, we were confident that we could identify anyone who used atomic weapons and that they could all be peer nation state actors. In the cyber realm, by contrast, we have much greater difficulty identifying who fires the weapon. And indeed, the culprit may well be a non-state actor, perhaps terrorists or even a relatively small group of dedicated hackers of the sort we'll talk about in later lectures. It's difficult, if not impossible, to know for sure. In short, we stand on the threshold of a new world, much like we did in 1945. And from this vantage point, nobody can really say where the future might lead. But what we can say is that the changes that lie ahead will affect everyone on the planet in ways great and small. And that means that the more you know about where we are today, the better prepared you will be for the future. The binary system of counting, which uses ones and zeros, lies at the heart of the cyberspace revolution. Every number, every bit of data, every voice communication, every video can in essence be expressed as a string of ones and zeros. In physical terms, deep within the innards of the computer, silicon chips create those ones and zeros through a, a series of transistors whose structure is etched into wafer-thin silicon-integrated circuits. The beauty of cyberspace and its genius lies in recognizing the universal power of these simple ones and zeros. The rapidity with which they can be manipulated has, over the past decades, increased exponentially. And that explosion in computing power has fostered a wild explosion of new technology. Hardly a day goes by without some development of some new computer application that is intended to enhance our lives. Indeed, they've become so ubiquitous that we now have a shorthand word for them. We call them apps. America's increasing utilization of, reliance on, and dependence upon technology for our social infrastructure is changing how we live our lives. We even have things like Cyber Monday for our Christmas shopping. The pace of our technological advances has significant implications for how individuals interact, for how the economy functions, for how the government and the private sector conduct business, and ultimately, 
for how we protect our national interests and provide for our common defense. Cyberspace is everywhere, and it's part of our everyday activities. But precisely because it's so pervasive, that means that our dependence on cyberspace creates new risks and dangers. If you want a shorthand way of thinking about this course, it's about our struggle to have our cake and eat it too, about how we try to reap the benefits in productivity and information sharing that come from a globalized web of cyber connections while somehow managing to avoid or at least reduce the damage done by the bad actors who seek to exploit that globalized web for their own reasons. Like most efforts to eat cake without gaining weight, our labors cannot reasonably be expected to be fully successful. So our struggle can only be to minimize the threats as best we can while maximizing the benefits. This struggle is the newest conflict for the current generation. The nature of that conflict changes on a daily basis. But unless something deeply surprising happens, the specter of cyber warfare and the reality of a broader cyber conflict, which includes espionage, terrorism, and crime, are all with us for the foreseeable future. Of course, in cyberspace, things change all the time. So some of the specifics we talk about may be overtaken by events by the time you take this course. But the fundamental premise of this course is that it will not become dated. The enduring principles that underlie our struggle, the need to identify risks and minimize them while maximizing our benefits, those won't change. So this course will proceed in a relatively simple fashion. We're going to begin, appropriately enough, at the beginning. We'll start with a look at how the Internet and cyberspace are built and why they are built the way they are. It turns out that a lot of the vulnerability is built into the system from the start. We'll also spend some time looking more closely at the different types of viruses and vulnerabilities that are infecting the cyber domain. And we'll close the introductory portion of this course by trying to get a different feel for who the different actors are in cyberspace. There is a world of difference between the motivations of, say, China or the United States and those of cyber hackers. And both of them are very different from organized crime. In the second part of the course, we'll start to look at some of the issues of law and policy that are bound up in our dealing with these threats. We'll look, for example, at how the Constitution both protects our civil liberties and possibly limits our ability to protect ourselves. We'll ask some questions about encryption policy as a way of protecting ourselves. And we'll take a dive into the topic known as big data, the idea that everyone leaves a cyber trail in cyberspace for others to see and use. The third and last part of the course steps back a bit from our look at particular policies and tries to put the problem in context. We'll look at how to make the entire network more resilient. I'll give you some tips on how to best protect yourself. And finally, we'll do some crystal ball gazing and look at what the next 10 or 20 years may hold for us. And at the end of it all, Stuxnet may still scare you, but you'll have a better idea of exactly why it's scary and what we collectively are trying to do about it. You will, I hope, understand that it is impossible to eliminate all the risks of cyberspace. 
There are no silver bullets out there. All we can do is recognize the incredible value of cyberspace and accept the risks that come with it, all the while working to manage those risks and minimize them as best we can. So welcome on board. I hope you enjoy the journey. Every minute of every day, roughly 3 million Google searches are done. In that same minute, 12 different websites are hacked. The scope of the Internet is immense, and you really can't understand cyber vulnerabilities, cybersecurity, and cyber warfare if you don't understand how cyberspace is built and why it works the way it does. So that's what we're going to explore in this lecture. And as an added bonus, we'll also consider some of the amazing ways in which cyberspace is used today. To be honest, it's pretty incredible. To begin with, to a very real degree, much of what we consider a vulnerability in the system is inherent in its design. Indeed, the Internet is so effective precisely because it is designed to be an open system. And while that makes the Internet readily accessible, it also makes it highly vulnerable. As David Post explained in his wonderful book, In Search of Jefferson's Moose, Notes on the State of Cyberspace, the networks that make up cyberspace were built for ease of communication and expansion, not for security. At its core, the logic layer of cyberspace, which we'll discuss more in a few minutes, is fundamentally very dumb. It's designed to do nothing more than transfer information, or if you prefer, data, from one place to another, very quickly and very efficiently. This fundamental simplicity is the key to understanding cyberspace. In particular, even though many users tend to think of cyber connections as nothing more than a glorified telephone network, the two are, in fact, structurally very, very different. The telephone networks are hub-and-spoke systems with the intelligent operation at the central switching points. Phone calls come in from a user to a central switching system where sophisticated switches route calls from one caller to the other creating a single end-to-end -end connection. Indeed, early on, at the dawn of the telephone system, the intelligence at the hub of the telephone networks was human. Just think of the old TV shows and movies where human operators sit in front of large boards, moving plugs around and requiring the physical connections to be made. That structure also means that all the control of the system is, in effect, with the central authority. And that is also where the vulnerabilities are. For example, think of the vulnerability of having your phone call intercepted. In the world of telephone communications, intercepting a communication was as simple as going to the central switching station and attaching two alligator clips to the right wire, hence the word wiretapping. And if you want to join the telephone network, you can't just join. You, in effect, need someone's permission. If you want a phone number, 
you have to wait for the phone company to come out, assign you one, and hook you up. And if you want to add a new function, say, call forwarding or, or caller ID, you need to call the phone company and have it added to your account. The centralized system controls your access and your services. Communications through cyberspace are completely different. Though portions of them, especially the last mile to your house, often travel over telephone lines. Put simply, there really isn't any central place to go on the network, and there is no central authority that runs it. Let's take a look at the structure that cyberspace has given us. When we talk colloquially of cyberspace, almost everyone is talking about the logical network layer, where all the information gets exchanged. If you try to map all those connections, it would look just like a tangle of lines, almost like a, a giant web built by a crazy spider. Several years ago, some researchers tried to map this web. The result was the famous Peacock map, a wild depiction of all the network connections between servers that transmit data in cyberspace. We call that transmission space the logic layer of the network because all it does is transmit the logical information, that is, the ones and zeros of the network. Now, the researchers gave the map some false colors, hence the name, but the colors weren't at all significant. They were just added to give the map some structure. The map itself had no structure at all, only a few bright hotspots where high-level servers switched a lot of traffic in transit. A map of the logic layer today would look very similar. It's still a web, but also completely different since the connections on the network are ever-changing. What this type of map shows is that the internet is this fast switching system for the distribution of information at near instantaneous speeds across great distances. So how do the ones and zeros move around in this logic layer? Unlike the telephone system, where the information all stays together in a single unit as it moves from one end of the conversation to the other, in the logic layer of cyberspace, the information is broken up into small packets. These packets are separately transmitted along different routes and then reassembled when they arrive at the destination. Thus, by contrast with the phone network, the cyberspace network is truly a web of interconnected servers that do nothing more than switch packets of information around the globe. And when we say web here, we mean that as a descriptive term. That's how the interconnections are mapped. The web is, as, as we shall see, far broader than the worldwide web of web pages that you can navigate to. It's a much vaster web of interconnections of everything, ranging from cars and power plants to web pages and cell phones. Doing that requires very little intelligence design. All that is needed to simplify matters a fair bit is an addressing system so that everyone has an address on the web and a protocol on how to move information from one address to the other. The addressing system is known as the domain name system, or DNS. And the transmission protocol is known as the Internet Protocol Suite, or more commonly, the TCP IP, which derives its name from two of the most important protocols in it, the Transmission Control Protocol, TCP, and the Internet Protocol, IP. That's also where the idea of an IP address comes from. So if you want an analogy, you can think of the DNS system as the yellow pages, a place you can go to look up someone's address. And the internet protocols 
They're the rules about how to share information, including the address, with everyone. For example, in our mail system, we put the return address in the top left corner. That's a rule. And the address to which the mail is supposed to be delivered in the center, with the zip code at the end. That's another rule. And everybody around the globe knows these rules, so that mail addressed in, say, South Africa is written in the exact same way as mail addressed in, say, Russia. We also have a set of rules about the size of envelopes and what they can and cannot contain, so on. The TCP IP system is really just that, a set of rules or protocols about how to identify the address of information in transit and also how to package that information. But that's really it. For the innards of the working of the network, we could spend a lot of time talking about the technical specifications, but in the end, they aren't particularly relevant to our discussion. What is relevant, and the takeaway point going forward, is that so long as a user follows the TCP IP protocols, his information will be delivered. And that's true whether it's Aunt Tilly's apple pie recipe or the code to launch a nuclear attack. The logic layer is only ones and zeros being directed around the network, and nothing more. So the real intelligent operations of this network occur at the edges, in our mobile devices and laptops, the ones that run the various apps. You can, quite literally, hook onto the network any system that manipulates data in any way and outputs data as its product. You can be sure that it will work because you will know that the ones and zeros will come to you in a format that you can recognize and use. And you can also be sure that the ones and zeros you send back will be delivered to whoever you're communicating with if you send them in the same universal format using the same addressing system. And that's what makes the Internet so successful. Access to it is not controlled at a central switching point. You don't need permission to add a new functionality. The way the Internet is built, anyone with a new idea can design it and add it to the network by the simple expedient of purchasing a domain name and renting server space. The addressing directory, the domain name system, that allows information to be correctly routed is operated on a distributed basis that no one person really controls. And so long as you use the commonly accepted addressing protocols, virtually any function can be added to the web. A store, a virtual world game site, or a giant government database. This flexibility is precisely what has driven the explosive, almost wild growth of the Internet. Today, there are more than two and a half billion users worldwide because everyone and anyone can use the network how they want to. The simplicity of the system is why this particular type of Internet became the Internet. It was so easy to use that market forces worked and everyone came to agree that it would be the system of universal choice. Let me explain the power of the Internet by giving you an example that, to my mind, is quite amazing and demonstrates the power and transformative nature of cyberspace. Consider a simple everyday occurrence. Imagine that you type into your search engine, and let's say it's Google, the search question, Yankee Second Baseman 1973. Here's what happens for you to get your answer to that query. First, 
that small text file is translated by your web browser into a string of ones and zeros for transmission across cyberspace. At the same time, another portion of your web browser recognizes that you're sending this search inquiry to Google and not, for example, to Yahoo or Bing. And it picks out the correct IP address to which your question should be addressed. The question is then broken up into several distinct packets of information for transmission, let's say a half dozen. Those half dozen packets each take a different track across the internet, only to be reassembled at a Google server. And even though the IP address to which the message was sent was registered by Google at their headquarters in Mountain View, California, the internet routing protocols send your message to the nearest Google server that's handling a comparatively lower load of traffic. Google has six data centers in the United States, so let's say your message arrived at the one in South Carolina. That's where the real magic begins. Up until now, the internet protocols have simply served as an information transmission system. The intelligence, the massaging of your data and its interpretation, that happens at the endpoints, at the Google server farm. To begin with, your string of ones and zeros is translated back into your natural language text message. Then, sophisticated programs interpret that message, trying to figure out what it means. This natural language translation algorithm looks at the first word of the text message. It realizes that the word Yankee could mean the baseball team, or it could mean the people who live up in New England. It then looks at the next word, second, and it tries to figure out whether you're talking about the unit of time or the second of two items. The word baseman helps put the other two words in context. Perhaps the program even considers for a brief moment whether you misspelled the word basement with an ENT on the end, but it rejects that idea because in context, the word base man makes clear what Yankee and second were about. So it reaches a judgment, which is almost never wrong, by the way, that it understands what your question is. Then it adds the year and interprets your query. Then Google applies its secret sauce. They have data processing algorithms that help identify which web pages are the most likely ones to have the answer to your question. Its ranking algorithms take into account factors like which pages people have clicked on when they ask similar questions, how often they did so, which pages have the highest traffic load from sites other than Google, and so on. Using its ranking system, the Google server then compiles a list of the most likely websites to have the answer to your query. That assembled list is immediately coded as a web page with rank ordering on the page from most to least likely useful. Then that entire page is again reduced to ones and zeros, broken up into dozens of packets, sent across the internet, and reassembled on your computer as a visible web page. And all of that happens in under a second. In fact, if you're like me, and the response from Google takes more than a second or two, it frustrates you. You feel like something isn't working right. I think when that happens, we sometimes forget what a revolution it is that you can get an answer to your question in a matter of moments without having to do anything other than type with your fingers on the keyboard. And so the web page comes back. And of course, the first link is the baseball almanac. If you click on it, you'll see that the Yankees' regular second baseman for 1973 was named Horace Clark. He played 147 games at that position during the season. 
and instantaneously you have your answer to a relatively obscure question. And that's what makes cyberspace so powerful. Google didn't need permission to provide this service to you. And you were free to choose someone other than Google if you wanted to. Yahoo or Bing, for example. And you didn't need to use Internet Explorer as your web browser. You could have used Safari if you're an Apple user or Mozilla Firefox. You didn't need anyone's permission to choose which product to use. You didn't have to buy it from a centralized switching station. Nor did you have to ask permission to go and ask the question. Google services aren't some add-on that you have to purchase. Access comes because Google chooses to provide it. And you can use it simply by virtue of your connection to the network. The ability to choose your services, to choose your method of access, and to ask questions of a universal nature across the entire scope and domain of the world is what makes cyberspace truly a worldwide web of connections. The distributed structure of the network also means that anything can be a node in the network. That is, an endpoint where the network connects to a function of some sort. We tend to think of cyberspace as limited to connections between computers. Sometimes we also add, in our minds, cell phones as part of the network. But the truth is that anything with an addressable functionality, that means anything with an IP address and a chip, is somewhere on the cyberspace network. If your car has OnStar, it's on the network. If your house is one of those new wired houses, it's on the network. Likewise, all of the new smart grid electric meters are fundamentally part of the cyberspace network. Indeed, the new network of things is growing so quickly that we're running out of IP addresses. That's another topic for a later lecture. The problem with this interconnection is that all of these nodes are potentially quite vulnerable. And that's true whether the node is the Iranian nuclear facility at Natanz or the music system in your house. In theory, anything that is connected to the cyber network is subject to being hacked. Though, I confess, I'm at a loss right now to figure out what would be gained by hacking my music system. The other day, I saw a demonstration by a German company called Hacker Lab that showed the vulnerability of an iPhone. With malicious software installed on the phone, an outsider could turn the phone on without it ringing and make it into a microphone. Using the program, he could listen into any conversation within range of the iPhone's mic. The program was even sophisticated enough to link to the GPS tracking system in the phone so that it would turn on when the phone was, say, at work, where important business information might be discussed, but turn off when the phone was at the owner's home. In short, as former U.S. Deputy Secretary of Defense put it in a speech, quote, the Internet was designed to be open, transparent, and interoperable. Security and identity management were secondary objectives in system design. This lower emphasis on security in the Internet's initial design gives attackers a built-in advantage. End of the quote. We can think about the Internet. When we think about the Internet, we tend to think about the ones and zeros moving around in the logic layer and nothing else. But there's more to cyberspace than that. Understanding why is critical to really understanding the operation of the cyber domain. Remember the peacock map from just a few minutes ago? 
Imagine looking at that map and asking yourself the question, where am I? If you looked at the, a map of the physical world, you'd know your answer. But in the cyber domain, you really have no idea. So to find ourselves in cyberspace, we need to expand our vision a bit. The interconnections that we've been talking about are part of the so-called logic layer, where the ones and zeros are transmitted from server to server. But this logic layer is only a piece of the puzzle. While most people think of cyberspace as limited to the internet, with its web of connections between computers, its full structure is really more complex. The logic layer is embedded in a much larger cyber domain. And that domain can be conceptualized as a five-layer cake of connections. At the bottom of the cake is what we might call the geographic layer. That is the physical location of elements of the network. Though cyberspace itself has no physical existence, every piece of equipment that creates it is physically located somewhere in the world. One consequence of this is that the physical pieces of the network are subject to the control of many different political and legal systems. One of the issues we'll be talking about later in this course is precisely this problem. If you're an American user, what are the rules if you use your BlackBerry to communicate with someone in France or Germany? Whose law controls? Even though cyberspace has no physical nature itself, all of its pieces and every one of its actors has a physical location somewhere in a real-world country. The next layer up is the physical network layer. This layer reminds us that cyberspace is made up of hardware and infrastructure, all of which is connected together. The components we think of in this layer include all of the wires, the fiber optic cables, the routers, the servers, and the computers linked together across geographic spaces. To be sure, some of the links are through wireless connections, but all those connections have physical endpoints. If we need a reminder that cyberspace is firmly grounded in the real world of geography and a physical network, just recall the December 2006 earthquake off the coast of Taiwan. In addition to the human tragedy it caused, the quake also cut eight undersea telecommunications cables in the area, disrupting internet traffic to Japan, Taiwan, South Korea, and China. Another cable break in Asia that occurred in August 2009 had a similar effect. And so did a pair of accidents at sea in February 2012, which inadvertently cut the East African Marine System fiber optic cable, setting off widespread telecom outages. In short, we should never forget that though the cyber domain is an artificial one created by man, it exists only in the context of the fundamental natural domain of the world. Now, above these two real-world layers is, is the middle layer, which is the heart of the network the logic network layer we've already described. This is the virtual space of the peacock map that we've already talked about, where the information resides and is transmitted and routed. The logic layer, in turn, needs to be connected to users. So above the logic network layer is the cyber persona layer. In this layer, we see how a user is identified on the network. It includes things like his email address, computer IP address, or cell phone number. Now, most individuals, they have more than one cyber persona. Personally, I have six different email addresses, each for a different purpose. I have three different phone numbers. 
throw in my GPS system in the car, my easy pass for paying tolls and everything else, and in some sense, I'm nearly a dozen different people in cyberspace. You are too. Uh, just think of how many different email addresses and phone numbers you have. So then finally, at the top, there's the personal layer. This is where we talk about the actual people using the network, who have their fingers on the keyboard, so to speak. Just like an individual can have multiple cyber persona, a single cyber persona can have multiple users. My wife and I, for example, both share an email account that we use for family stuff. And anyone tracing an email to that account wouldn't be able to tell which of us was using it. And that's just for us, and we're being honest. There are also plenty of situations, which we'll discuss in more length in an upcoming lecture, where a real person's true identity can be concealed behind a fictitious cyber persona. This creates a great challenge in linking an artificial cyber persona to a particular individual. If someone by the name of Sabu is causing a ruckus on the network, we may be able to link activity to that username, his cyber persona. But who is the real world Sabu? In the end, what this last factor means is that bad actors can hide anywhere. With great effort, they can be found. We know who Sabu actually is, and I'll tell you more about him in a later lecture. But for the most part, anonymity is the rule rather than the exception. And of course, the true maliciousness of the network is at this level, where people choose to act in malevolent ways. One of the greatest cognitive difficulties in coming to grips with vulnerabilities on the network is that policymakers, legislators, and citizens simply don't have a good understanding of just how big the internet really is. The statistics are so sizable that they overwhelm human conception sometimes. Consider, as of late 2012, there were more than two and a half billion internet users. That's roughly 35% of the world's entire population connected to each other. It is said that no other voluntary human endeavor has ever been this big. And like everything else in this course, that number, and all the numbers and technology we're going to talk about, are just a snapshot in time. By the time you listen to this course, there will surely be more people on the network worldwide. And those users, they're busy. Every single minute of every day, they conduct more than 30 million Google searches. They engage in more than 11 million IM, instant message conversations. And they post nearly 700,000 Facebook status updates. In a single minute, they create 1,800 terabytes of new information and data. That's 24 hours a day, seven days a week, 365 days a year, over and over again. How big is a terabyte, you ask? Well, according to the Library of Congress, the approximate amount of its collections that are digitized and freely and publicly available on the Internet is roughly 74 terabytes. And the total amount of web information in the library's archives as of late 2012 was approximately 285 terabytes. So every minute of every day, we add eight new digital libraries of Congress to the world's storehouse of information. 
Granted, some of it isn't worth adding, but that's another story. Of course, that doesn't count the Library of Congress's non-digital records, but still, it's a truly impressive number. Here's another way of thinking about the size of the Internet. By a conservative estimate, over 25 hours of video are uploaded on YouTube every minute. And it may be as much as 72 hours every minute. That's up to nearly 12 years of video added every day. In other words, more content is posted to YouTube every month than the combined output of all U.S. television networks since their inception in the 1940s. Or consider this. According to Google CEO, quote, every two days, we now create as much information as we did from the dawn of civilization up until 2003. Wow. And with the growth of information also comes a growing threat to our security. Every minute of every day, more than 168 million email messages are sent. That's 88 quadrillion messages every year. And each and every one of them is a potential threat and source of a malware intrusion. The scale of the vulnerability is exactly as great as the scale of the Internet itself. If you want to see this vulnerability graphically illustrated, try looking at the website map.honeynet.org. It's a real-time map of attacks and intrusions in cyberspace. One look at that will tell you how endemic the problem is. Perhaps even more significantly, the scale of the vulnerability comes with an immense governance problem. How in the world can any human institution manage and regulate so large an enterprise? In many ways, that is the fundamental question posed in this lecture series and the fundamental challenge of cybersecurity. It's hard enough knowing what the right answers are for cybersecurity. But in a system with this many participants, even if we thought we had the right answer, how could we get the entire world to agree to do it? So now that we understand how cyberspace is structured, how it works, and how immense it is, we can explore some of the biggest problems out there and where they come from. In our next lecture, we're going to look in more detail at how the structure of the cyber domain creates the vulnerabilities of our interconnected web of nodes. I look forward to talking to you then. Imagine this scenario. You are the CEO of a major American defense contractor. One day, the IT lead for the company walks into your office and says, we're under attack. He tells you that a host of intruders are trying to break into your system using very sophisticated cyber methods. You ask him, who is it? He says he doesn't know. Where is it coming from? I don't know, he says. What are they trying to do? Again, he isn't sure of the answer. If you're a normal CEO, used to successfully managing your company, this uncertainty will leave you feeling frustrated and quite possibly even furious. 
But before you fire your chief information officer, consider this. His uncertainty is the reality of vulnerability in cyberspace. It's also the subject of today's lecture. As we talked about in the last lecture, the logical structure of cyberspace is a web-like one that is distinct from the hub-and-spoke structure of traditional telephone communication systems. That web-like structure is both a virtue and a vice. It's a virtue because it allows almost 100% accurate communications across the globe instantaneously. The web structure is what powers sophisticated websites like Amazon and Facebook. It's what allows you to read on your laptop the latest news from Kenya if you want to. But the vice is that the logic structure is about communication of information and data and only about communication. It's about getting information quickly from here to there and nothing more. That focus on rapid, accurate, and effective communication to the exclusion of every other factor, security, identity, and authenticity, for example, has made cyberspace a dangerous place. A place where people can pretend to be someone they're not, where scammers can steal from you, and where nations can go to war anonymously. Now, if we take a closer look at this dangerous place, we can identify five distinct features, in effect, gateways, that actually create vulnerability for anyone who connects to the cyber network. Let me list those features quickly, and then we'll address each in turn. First, the Internet destroys time and space. It allows almost instantaneous action at a distance. Second, the Internet is an asymmetric medium, allowing actors to project force disproportionate to their size, strength, or wealth. Third, the Internet allows for anonymous action in ways that are completely unlike action in the physical world. Fourth, the Internet is essentially a borderless domain, with no border guards or checkpoints monitoring traffic as it crosses international boundaries. And finally, in cyberspace, the ones and zeros all look the same. They lack what we call distinction. And so we're unable to distinguish between, say, commercial information and a cyber attack. Now that you have that introductory list as a guide, let's take an in-depth look at each of these five fundamental ways in which the Internet creates a gateway or a path to vulnerability. Consider first the idea of instantaneous action at a distance. The history of human interaction is essentially one of the increasing distance at which our interactions occur. Take armed conflict, for example. Early on in human history, conflict required physical proximity. Think of the Romans fighting at sword length apart from the invading Visigoths. You have an idea of how close you had to be in order to fight a war back in ancient times. Likewise, the sale of goods in the ancient economy. The buyer and the seller had to come physically together to trade goods. And as for malicious acts, such as theft or murder, the perpetrator had to be physically close, either to the victim or to the victim's property. So too with espionage. The spy had to actually break into someone's office and steal the secret plans, so to speak. Over time, this necessity for close proximity has weakened. In the warfare context, we move from swords to bows and arrows. Later still, we develop 
siege cannons and artillery. Then came airplanes that were capable of projecting force across the globe. And finally, we reached the point in the real world where intercontinental ballistic missiles were capable of reaching from the United States to Russia, or vice versa, in just 33 minutes. Trade, crime, and espionage all also began to happen at greater distances. That's how we get our cars from Japan today. The Internet is a quantum leap beyond all that in capability. Now, actions in the cyber domain occur at the speed of light and cross immense distances almost instantaneously. From your desktop, at the flick of a finger, you can access a website in Japan, read a South American newspaper, or even make reservations at a restaurant in Paris. But what is easy for you from your home computer is equally as easy for any malicious actor in the world who wants to access a computer, say, here in America. Whether the object is warfare, terrorism, espionage, or crime, it is no longer necessary for the malevolent actor to be anywhere near the venue of his actions. One incident makes the point. It was reported not too long ago that malicious software, probably from China, though nobody is quite certain, was found on the computer of then U.S. Secretary of Defense Robert Gates. Now, in earlier times, if a Chinese spy, or perhaps it was a Russian spy, it doesn't matter, if a Chinese spy had wanted to get access to the office of the Secretary of Defense, he or she would have had to pass through several checkpoints at the gates of the Pentagon and then surreptitiously made their way into the inner sanctum of the E-ring of the building. By virtue of the structure of the Internet, in this case, the malicious actor was able to penetrate Secretary Gates's computer from a distance that effectively put him or her beyond our control. So that's the first fundamental vulnerability, the possibility of instantaneous action at a distance. Now let's talk about the second vulnerability, the asymmetries of cyberspace. One of the unique features of the Internet is that the manipulation of bits and bytes does not require the development of a sophisticated industrial base nor does it really require a substantial financial investment. In other words, the barriers to entry into the cyber domain are incredibly low. More importantly, the structure of the Internet is such that, at least today, the offense is, broadly speaking, much more effective than defense. As everybody knows, sadly, it's almost impossible to avoid a virus infection on your computer. Firewalls and intrusion detection systems are only so effective. What that means is that a small group of actors in cyberspace can have an incredibly large effect, far disproportionate to their actual numbers. In fact, a handful of really intelligent and effective cyber Jedis can compete in cyberspace against the most powerful nations in the world. A great example of this is the group known as Anonymous. You may have read about them. They are a loose organization of cyber activists, what we sometimes call hacktivists, who use their cyber skills to assault big companies and countries. Actually, one of their first targets was the Church of Scientology, apparently because the anonymous members objected to the church's tactics and doctrines. And frankly, it's pretty hard to know exactly what anonymous wants. Their goals are often vague and shifting. 
Sometimes they seem like political activists supporting free speech. They provided some tools in support of the Arab Spring, for example. Other times they seem like mere hackers with a pseudo-agenda of internet freedom. Whatever their motivations, they are often quite effective in their tactics. They've taken down a CIA website, for example, and stolen internal emails from sophisticated cybersecurity companies like H.B. Gary. They've even hacked into a telephone conversation between the FBI and Scotland Yard. In short, though they're a loose amalgam of individuals, their skills allow them to compete with some effectiveness against much larger and seemingly more powerful institutions. Other examples of this sort of asymmetry abound. Perhaps the most common is the prevalence of fraudsters on the network. I have no doubt, none at all, that everyone listening to this lecture has received an email from a Nigerian scammer offering millions of dollars as a windfall if you'll just only front a small transaction fee. If you haven't gotten one of those, then you've gotten a note on Facebook from a friend who is stranded in Lisbon or London, or so they say, asking you to wire the money. Most everybody recognizes these scams for what they are and doesn't answer. There are even amusingly groups of scam baiters who entertain themselves by trying to scam the Nigerian scammers. But if almost everyone recognizes these scams as frauds, why do they continue? The answer lies in the asymmetric nature of the Internet. Sending out one million scam letters is almost costless. And even if only one in a million people is fooled and responds to the scam request, the disparity between the costs involved and the potential benefits to be gained from a successful scam make it highly profitable for the scammers to continue. This asymmetry in cyberspace is a radical development. In the past, there were significant opportunity costs to fraud. It required an investment of time, money, and energy by the con man. Think of how much effort, for example, went into the scam perpetrated by Robert Redford and Paul Newman in the classic movie The Sting. They operated an elaborate fake betting parlor. They used a fake insider to scam an Irish numbers kingpin. The sting took weeks to set up. When that much effort is required, the actors want a relatively high degree of confidence that they'll be successful. Today, on the Internet, that's no longer necessary. Fraudulent actors can spend literally pennies on a global scale with a realistic hope of reaping a financial reward. Another way of looking at the problem of asymmetry is through the prism of national security. In the physical world, a country's power is judged by its force of arms. A significant part of America's strength lies in its 11 nuclear-powered aircraft carriers and the planes they carry. Few other countries can even come close to wielding that kind of power today. But the asymmetry of information power on the Internet changes that dynamic. Countries like North Korea and Iran, they're perfectly capable of challenging and perhaps even dominating America in cyberspace. The limits lie not in their industrial base or the size of their economy, but rather solely in the intellectual capabilities of their citizens. To be sure, size still matters. Larger countries like America and China are likely to produce a larger number of true cyber warriors. But that doesn't mean that Iran can't find 10 truly excellent cyber hackers. 
And that means that, for example, as we contemplate how to respond to Iran's nuclear program, America is obliged to consider that the domain in which the future conflict might occur is one where we are not necessarily all-powerful. And so, whereas in the physical world, only nation-states could effectively compete against each other, in the cyber domain, small non-state actors can challenge nation-states, and poor Nigerian con artists can scam people on a global scale. To cite one final example, let me tell you about the botnet known as ConFicker. We'll talk more about how botnets work in the next lecture, but basically, botnets are programs that allow a single controller to send orders to a bunch of controlled computers, making them act like robots, as it were. Hence the name, Botnet, which is short for Robot Computer Network. Conficker is the largest known botnet in the world, infecting an estimated 9 to 15 million computers, all under one group's control. If there are 100 people listening to this talk, it is almost guaranteed that at least one of you, and probably more, has the Conficker virus on your computer, and you don't know it. And what is most amazing of all of this is that despite its extensive reach, nobody knows what Conficker will do. Though we've identified it, whoever owns Conficker has never really turned it on. Talk about asymmetric power. So now let's move on from asymmetry and talk about the third fundamental factor or gateway of internet vulnerability, anonymity. Conficker is also exa an example of the power of anonymity. Nobody knows who runs Conficker. This is a very disturbing fact about cyberspace. Sometimes we are not even sure we know who our opponents are. There's a famous old New Yorker cartoon by Peter Steiner, picturing a dog sitting in front of a keyboard of a computer as he says to, his, says to a dog friend, on the internet, nobody knows you're a dog. While that is no longer necessarily true for the average citizen, it remains fundamentally true for malicious actors in cyberspace. The internet, as I said, was not designed to require identification. Its only function, as initially conceived, was to transmit information across great distances rapidly. That made sense at a time when there were only four nodes on the internet, that is, four universities whose systems were connected, and where everybody who used it knew each other. In fact, for many years, all of the domain names on the internet were given out, in effect, by a single man, John Postel. Postel was one of the leading computer scientists who worked on the development of the cyber network, and everyone trusted him. Today, there are more than two and a half billion nodes on the net, representing nearly a third of the world's population. It's incredibly easy to hide in that larger network. Perhaps equally fundamentally, the idea of anonymity on the Internet has become part of our culture. Many users, particularly those in the younger generation, feel as though the freedom of the Internet is an inherent birthright that comes with the development of the Internet domain. They're wrong. It's actually part of the architecture. It can be changed. But when a cultural norm becomes as strong as this one, changing the underlying architecture of the system becomes politically problematic. The phenomenon of anonymity has also given rise to a new type of actor on the Internet, 
the deliberately anonymous actor. In fact, we've already seen that an entire group of hackers operates collectively under the name Anonymous. Working at a distance, these unknown members of Anonymous, or another group called Team Poison, are perfectly happy to attack the website of the CIA or the Department of Justice without any real fear of identification or retribution. Criminal networks also take advantage of the power of anonymity. They operate almost with impunity around the globe, stealing information and money from unsuspecting victims. One reason identity thieves are almost impossible to deter is that their own identity is almost impossible to discover in the first place. Here again, the contrast with the physical world is remarkable. Yes, uh, of course, thieves can wear masks to hide their identity. But the requirement of physical proximity to commit a crime means that there are many opportunities, fingerprints, car license plate numbers, and the like, to discover who the crooks are. Not so on the Internet. The lack of identification, what we call the problem of attribution, is one of the foundational difficulties of the network. Not only does it create the difficulty of defending yourself from unknown attackers, but it also raises a barrier to effective cooperation on the Internet with people whom you might actually want to work with. After all, if you can't be sure that you know who you're dealing with, it's hard to trust them. The fact that it is probably your bank that you're talking to means that there's a possibility it isn't and that you have to be cautious. It isn't that identification is absolutely impossible to achieve. It is, however, the case that identification is very, very hard to do. For example, in one case of cyber spying known as GhostNet, which we'll talk about more in the next lecture, it took over a year of exceedingly difficult forensic work to identify the original source of the intrusion with any degree of certainty. So now ask yourself this. Can, say, the United States wait a year before it retaliates if some anonymous individual or group or country were to disrupt, say, the New York Stock Exchange? From a political perspective, the answer is obviously no. But from a technological perspective, the answer may be we have to. Unlike in the physical world, in cyberspace, we don't know who fired the missiles. One final point about anonymity. It has an inherently contradictory nature. As we've seen, the web offers a potentially dangerous kind of anonymity. On the other hand, as we'll talk about at length in a lecture on the phenomena of big data, the footprints that ordinary web users leave are indelible, and mistakes of judgment in what one views or posts can follow you forever. The reality is that bad actors are much harder to identify and track than innocent users. So that's a perspective on anonymity on the network. Now let's turn our attention, our attention to the next feature of the Internet that creates vulnerability, the lack of borders. This is probably the place where the unusual nature of cyberspace is clearest. In the real world, a smuggler must cross the American border at some point in order to enter the United States. And that's a point where entry can be subject to governmental control. By contrast, if you send an email message to someone in France, it doesn't cross the border in any single place. In traveling across the network, the many packets of data are likely to cross multiple borders, some much more than once. 
One packet might go from the U.S. to Canada, back to the U.S., then to the U.K., and then on to France. In essence, then, there are no border checkpoints on the Internet. For almost every country, China being the notable exception, there is no single landing point, for example, where the underseas cables come ashore. And that means that there is no easy way to control information as it flows across national borders. There are actually no sovereigns on the Internet. This is a, a deeply disorienting phenomenon. We're used to a world in which a sovereign nation can control its own border traffic. We monitor who enters our country, what goods are coming in. That's almost impossible on the in Internet and is, in a very fundamental way, threatening to the entire structure of the international community. Since the Peace of Westphalia in 1648, sovereign nations have been defined by their ability to control territory and the transit of things and goods across that territory. Now, information and ideas flow across the boundaries almost without limit, disrupting settled expectations and threatening the status quo. Think of the Arab Spring and the role of the Internet in that change. As a result, sovereign countries are desperately trying to recreate borders in the Internet domain. To the extent they are successful, it's only because of limits in the architecture of the network. China, for example, has developed a pretty strong set of controls over Internet traffic to and from the mainland. Those controls rely on the fact that there are three, and only three, major undersea cable arrival points for Internet traffic to the Chinese mainland. With only three major connections to the outside world, China has a good chance of monitoring and controlling its Internet traffic. Likewise, island nations like Australia and New Zealand have limited connectivity to the broader network and are more readily able to control traffic to and from their citizens than, say, France or Germany. By contrast, the United States has so many connections with the global network that they are quite literally impossible to count. In effect, every computer in America is a border-crossing checkpoint, but one that's outside the control of the government. We simply don't count, much less regulate, all the cables and wireless transmission portals that are part of the American cyber system. That makes it possible, indeed likely, that information and intellectual property can enter and exit the country without anyone knowing. Just think, for example, of how much easier it is today to import child pornography into the United States across the cyber domain, where, in an earlier era, anyone who wanted that material would have had to run the risk of trying to carry it into the United States, across the real-world boundary, and being subject to customs inspection. So far, we've covered four fundamental features of the Internet that create vulnerability the capability for instantaneous action at a distance, the asymmetry of cyberspace, the ease of maintaining anonymity on the network, and the lack of borders. The final cause of vulnerability to consider is the difficulty of distinction. All the ones and zeros in the logic layer of the network look the same. The uniformity of ones and zeros in the logic layer is what makes the magic of cyberspace information transmission possible. You can use ones and zeros to communicate anything. But that also means that different types of activities in the logic layer are hard to distinguish. 
In other words, you can't tell what any given piece of computer code is going to do just by looking at it. The code that actually does the harm in a piece of malware, that's called the payload. This is the executable portion of the program that tells your intrusion what to do. Once inside a computer, a program can create a web page. It can just look around. It can steal your computer data, but leave the original data unchanged. It can change that data or destroy it. It can take over the computer and order it to send spam to somebody else. Or if the computer controls, say, a power plant, it can order the computer to cause the physical damage to the power plant. Each of these is obviously very different. Some are espionage, some are theft, and some, like destroying a power plant, are what we would think of as acts of war. And that's why the problem of distinction is so difficult to deal with. In practice, for those on the receiving end, the defensive end, it's virtually impossible to tell in advance whether a particular piece of code is an innocent email communication, an espionage intrusion, or a full-scale cyber attack. They all look essentially the same at the front end. The difference only arises when the payload is executed and the effects are felt. So think of it this way. Imagine you are operating the NORAD Air Defense Command System that defends America and Canada. Now, also imagine that you can't tell the difference between a commercial airliner carrying innocent passengers en route to New York City or an enemy spy plane or a nuclear bomber. That would be a powerfully difficult problem to solve. You'd run the risk of shooting down a commercial airliner or the risk of letting the nuclear bomber through, all because you couldn't distinguish between them. Now, fortunately for airplanes, we can tell the difference. Bombers look different from spy planes, and both of them in turn look very much different from a 747 airplane. But in cyberspace, we can't tell the innocent communication from the espionage program or from the malware virus. Eventually, we come to recognize them, but that is usually only after the first attack has occurred. Particular pieces of malware have unique signatures that allow us to distinguish them from innocent internet traffic, but unlike the bomber, it takes us a while to recognize them for what they are. And that means that as a first approximation, the initial attack will always get through. The only alternative to treat all internet traffic as if it were malicious is just too difficult and intrusive to imagine. And so you can see the scope of vulnerability on the internet. Here's the nightmare that plagues America's planners. Someday, we will discover malicious code in the innards of the West Coast electric grid. We won't know who put the code there. We won't know how it got there. We won't be able to assume that it was put there by a nation-state competitor. It might have come from some minor power like Iran or North Korea, or even a non-state actor like a terrorist organization. And worst of all, we won't be sure that we know what the code is supposed to do. The attack will be at a distance, asymmetric, and anonymous. It will ignore borders, and it will lack distinction. That's the five fundamentals or gateways of vulnerability on the network. And what's most scary of all is that all of this is fundamental. It's not an accident, but rather it's part of the internet system we've built. 
and in many ways, one of the reasons that the Internet has been so successful. But that means that there is no way to completely eliminate the problem, not without blowing up the Internet and starting over, which nobody's going to do. Actually, one of the inventors of the network, Peter Neumann, is working on precisely that. He calls it the Clean Slate Project. It's only a dream right now, though. And until he's successful, and candidly, he probably never will be, we can only ask ourselves how, if at all, we can minimize the risks that are fundamentally inherent in cyberspace. We'll talk more about that later in this course. In our next lecture, we'll take a closer look at some of the most dangerous ways in which malicious actors exploit the Internet's vulnerabilities. In the meantime, thanks for joining me. The first known virus ever to infect a personal computer was named Brain.A. It was developed, dare we say invented, uh, by two Pakistani brothers, Basit and Amjad Alvi. We know this because, amusingly, they signed their work and included contact information in the code of the virus. Brain.A was first detected in January 1986. In its initial form, the virus did no significant harm. All it really did, in effect, was change a file name to brain, and as a result, it could freeze some computers. Basit and Amjad say they meant no harm from their creation. They were just trying to show that it could be done. In 2011, a Scandinavian cybersecurity expert, Miko Hyponen, went to Pakistan to look them up and he found the brothers still living at the same address. In a bit of poetic justice, they complained to him that they were constantly suffering from virus infections on their own computers. How the world has changed. In just a single generation, we've gone from novelty to very real threats in cyberspace. Hardly a day goes by without news of some new cyber attack or intrusion that causes widespread consternation. Simply by way of example, on a random week in mid-July 2011, the hacker group Anonymous announced what it called Military Meltdown Monday, a large-scale hack of the IT systems of Booz Allen Hamilton, a major federal military contractor. The next day, there was a malware attack targeted at Frenchmen celebrating Bastille Day. Just a few days earlier, it was a Syrian security forces that hacked into social media to spread disinformation in support of President Bashir Assad against protesters in his own country. And seemingly every day, we see simple invasions of privacy, whether through the theft of identity or the hacking of voicemail systems of the sort that led to the scandal in 2011 and the shutdown of Britain's News of the World. The list goes on. Vulnerability in cyberspace is an everyday reality. Malicious actors want access to your systems to disable, disrupt, degrade, or destroy it. We call those the four horrible Ds of computer hacking. But how exactly does it work? How, after all, can Anonymous take on a corporate giant like Booz Allen Hamilton? 
And how bad is it? That's what we'll be talking about in today's lecture. We're going to learn about the instruments that are used to exploit the vulnerabilities we discussed in our last lecture. After all, you can't tell the players without a scorecard, and you can't understand cybersecurity if you don't know what the threats are. By the end of today's lecture, you'll know the difference between a Trojan and a logic bomb. You'll know something about how they work, and you'll know what you should be on the lookout for. Let's start with a common frontal assault, something known as a DDoS attack, or distributed denial of service attack. These types of assaults are relatively easy to mount, but also less harmful than other types of attacks we'll talk about. The DDoS attack takes advantage of the fact that even though the cyber network is huge, it is still limited physically. Remember, the physical layer of the network is key. There is only so much bandwidth and so many servers that any one company has. Think back to our discussion of Google in the second lecture. The reason Google has six U.S. servers and 13 globally, and it'll be adding more in the coming years, is to handle the growing number of connection requests it gets from people around the world. So now, imagine you're a smaller company, say a local bank. You've built your system with servers and bandwidth to handle a number of inquiries, let's say 1,000 every second. What happens if all of a sudden your server is getting 100,000 requests every second? Well, the answer's obvious. It's like trying to drink from a fire hose, and the server simply gets overwhelmed. In a DDoS attack, some malicious actor decides to flood a website with requests to connect. These malicious requests drown out all the legitimate requests. And it's almost as if the website were taken offline. Nobody can get through. That's exactly what happened in late 2012 when someone, we think it was the Iranians, launched a denial-of-service attack on several large American banks. For three or four days, lots of people, including me, couldn't do their online banking. Now, it's worth noting here that it is only the access that is affected at this point. Nothing happens to the data at the target company. That's one reason why professionals think of DDoS attacks as really just annoying cyber graffiti on a small scale. Though, when they happen on a larger scale, perhaps a better analogy is cyber vandalism. So, how do you arrange for a website to be accessed 100,000 times a second? It isn't easy. You can't do it all by yourself. You have to have a bunch of friends and allies to help you. That's why we call it a distributed denial-of-service attack. The attacks come from a distributed network of helpers. If you volunteer to join the attack, which is essentially what folks in the hacktivist group Anonymous do, recruit allies to help them in their attacks, you don't even have to know how to program your computer. You can, quite for free, download a program known as the Low Orbit Ion Cannon, or LOIC. Despite its science fiction name, the LOIC is just a simple automated program. Give it the web address or server you want to attack, hook it up to the internet, and push start. You don't even have to stay around. It runs on its own. If enough people join the attack, well, then the target can be completely cut off. And it really doesn't take that many people for an attack to work. 
One recent study said that for a large company like MasterCard to be taken offline, it would need just as few as 700 dedicated attackers who might be involved. And now it gets even more interesting. We tend to think of attackers as having volunteered to join the DDoS attack. But the truth is that not everyone is a volunteer. In fact, quite to the contrary. Many DDoS attacks are carried out by computers that have innocent owners. The computers are, in fact, controlled by someone else. As I mentioned in the last lecture, we call these networks of controlled computers botnets, short for robot networks, because the innocent computers are controlled, like robots, by someone else. Sometimes we also call the innocent computers zombies for, for much the same reason. One thing is for sure, the computer hacking world has some interesting names and descriptions. So, how does a botnet work? Well, first, the innocent computer has to be infected with some piece of malware. How that happens is something we'll talk about in just a minute. For now, let's focus on what that program does. And all it really does is phone home, a lot like E.T. from the movie. Depending upon how sophisticated the program is, who it calls and where it calls can change. But the nuts and bolts are that, periodically, when the innocent zombie computer is connected to the network, it calls out to a controller computer for instructions. Now, often, there are no instructions at all, and then the malware does nothing until its next scheduled check-in time. But sometimes, the command and control program sends out instructions. Something like, at precisely noon Greenwich Mean Time on July 4, try to connect to globalmegacorp.com. That command will have come from the owner of the botnet, who's sometimes called the botnet herder, as if the zombie computers were sheep to be herded. And then, at noon GMT on July 4th, all the computers connected to the broader web follow the instructions. Not every computer that is instructed is online at the time. But you don't need all of them. Say 700 respond, well then, bam, there you have a botnet attack. This is also, as we discussed, how scammers and frauds arrange for spam to be sent. They rent out botnets from the herder and buy email addresses that have been harvested on the web. A small botnet can send out an awful lot of spam very, very quickly, unfortunately. And how are the email addresses harvested? With a spider, also sometimes called a web crawler. As the name implies, these are automated programs that crawl around the internet harvesting information, much like a spider catches flies. If, for example, your email is on a corporate website, the web crawler can harvest it. Botnets can vary in size, of course. Some have hundreds of zombie slaves. Others have tens of thousands of zombie computers that they control. In our last lecture, we talked about the Conficker botnet with at least 9 million zombies. Most of the botnets are constantly active, literally every second of every day, sending spam or doing some other sort of malevolent activity. So how does a botnet get into your computer in the first place? Well, besides sending spam, a botnet malware program usually does one other thing. It tries to spawn itself by infecting other innocent computers. Typically, 
That's through an email message or some other innocent form of communication. So let's take a look at that for a little bit now. I'm sure that everyone listening to this lecture has gotten one of those really suspicious emails. You know the ones. They come from someone in your address book, and you're in the sender's address book as well, and often they're just a simple website address, a hyperlink for you to click on. I got one just the other day which helpfully said, open the attachment. I hope everyone listening knows enough not to click on those links. They'll take you to web pages where embedded malware lives, and that could be the start of becoming a zombie, or even something worse. I also hope you know that if it sounds too good to be true, well, then it is. There really just aren't many pictures of famous movie stars naked out there on the network. But that kind of simplistic attack is not what a moderately cautious, sophisticated user should be afraid of. So let's look at a more subtle type of attack, a malicious intrusion that goes by the generic name of a Trojan horse, or more simply, a Trojan. They are called Trojans because, typically, the malware is hidden inside a program that looks like an innocent piece of information, just like the famous Trojan horse had Greeks hidden inside. To understand how this type of cyber intrusion works is, in some ways, pretty technical, a complexity that reflects the intricacy of these types of attacks. But if you follow along, we can unpack some of the jargon and understand what is happening in a typical attack. Usually, an attack begins with the simple Trojan communication. Often, it's just an email to someone. This is sometimes called a spear phishing email because it targets a specific individual or recipient, much like a spear used to catch a particular fish. Instead of a generic message that fits almost anyone, it will have a message designed specifically for you or a narrow target group. The other day, for example, I got one that purported to have a link to a news article about cybersecurity policy proposals for President Obama's second term. The sender obviously knew something about topics I was interested in. Now, these spear phishing emails are designed to appear as though they've come from an innocent source, but they will have a malicious program hidden within, either in the email itself or, quite possibly, in an attachment. When the unsuspecting recipient clicks on the attachment, the malware begins the automated download of a controller program. This program then opens up a backdoor communication channel, allowing outside individuals access to the programs that control the target system. When the communications open up, the attackers flood the system, much like a tank brigade moving through the breach in a defensive line. Some of the attackers come in and create new breaches. Others use their permission position to promote themselves within the system and give themselves authority to access all the data available. If it's a quick hit-and-run attack, they begin removing information from the target system, like your login codes or your financial data. In short, the simple email cracks open the security of the target, and then a team of cyber specialists exploit the defensive gap. The intrusion doesn't have to be a quick hit-and-run. There is another class of attacks that are called, generically, Advanced Persistent Threats, or APTs. These are intrusions that sit inside the target system for a long period of time and, in effect, make the target computer vulnerable to continuous monitoring from the outside. These types of intrusions 
are by far the most common on the network today. To see how these APTs work, let's look at one called GhostNet. GhostNet was found in March 2009 in the computers operated by the offices of the Dalai Lama. GhostNet began just as we've already described. Malware was hidden in an email that was from a trusted source, freetibet.org, and it contained a real document, a directory of friends and individuals around the globe who were friends of Tibet. It looked completely innocent, but it contained a Trojan horse program that avoided the Dalai Lama's intrusion detection system to insert itself into the operating system of the Dalai Lama's servers. This program, in turn, communicated with controller servers operated by somebody outside of the Dalai Lama's organization. They used the new malicious software to take remote control of the Dalai Lama's computer system. Acting remotely, the installers could turn on a keystroke logger. A logger, as its name implies, is a program that captures all of the keystrokes entered on a keyboard attached to a computer. In this case, the laptops and keyboards in the Dalai Lama's office. Imagine what that means, for example, if an official within the Dalai Lama's organization was typing in the, say, password to his bank account at the Bank of India. Also remotely, those who controlled the malicious software were able to turn on the video cameras and microphones on the computers in the offices of the Dalai Lama. Using the camera and microphone, the bad guys could see and hear anything that was happening within range of the computer. And they did this without anyone in the office knowing that it was happening. It took an information warfare organization from Canada over a year to unravel the chain of controlling computers and find out who was behind the GhostNet attack. In the end, the chain petered out in servers on Hainan Island, which is off the coast of China, and which is perhaps not coincidentally also the home of one of the People's Liberation Army's signals intelligence organizations. Now, for fairness sake, we should note that the Chinese government vehemently denies that it was responsible for this intrusion. But as we'll see in a later lecture, the Chinese have been quite active in cyber espionage. Sometimes the object of an intrusion isn't monitoring for information at all. Sometimes the attack is just intended to leave a package behind, a program that sits quietly in the computer doing nothing at all, waiting. And it'll continue to wait until it gets the signal to act, maybe from the outside, or maybe the program has a preset day and time in which to act. And then the program will explode into action. We call these silent programs logic bombs, though to my way of thinking, they're more like logic minds. One of the big concerns we have today is that we don't really know whether there are any logic bombs in some of our networks. And there's no way to really find out. There's one other attacking concept I want to share with you today. The idea of a zero-day vulnerability. A zero-day exploit is one that the attacker is sure will work because it's never been used before. The vulnerability becomes known on the same day that the attacker uses it to take advantage of someone. Hence, we say that it will work on the zeroth day, or that there are zero days between when the vulnerability is discovered 
and when it is used. Let me explain that a bit more. In cyberspace, most vulnerabilities are gaps in programming code that, when discovered, can be exploited by outsiders. After all, most operating programs have tens of thousands of lines of code in them. Really big programs, like the operating system for Windows or Apple's computers, have millions of lines. It is completely unsurprising that sometimes mistakes creep into the code. Mistakes that can be exploited by malicious outsiders. These vulnerabilities all go by obscure technical names, like SQL injection and TDL rootkit vulnerability. The names, they almost don't matter. And for the average user, the details aren't particularly interesting. All that matters is that particular flaws in the code allow outsiders to force the computer code to do unanticipated things, often with some really adverse consequences. But once the vulnerability is exposed and exploited, it can also be fixed by software designers. That's why security software firms are constantly shipping updates to your computer. And software developers are constantly recommending that users download patches for their software. They are providing you with the fixes to vulnerabilities that have recently been discovered, most often because some malicious actor has taken advantage of them. For this reason, new vulnerabilities, ones that have not been exploited before, are a valuable commodity for bad actors. The actors save them up and use them for important attacks because they're unlikely to have been patched and almost surely will work. These zero-day exploits are the coin of the realm. Using one of them in an attack is standard in more sophisticated attacks. Two is a little profligate. Indeed, one reason we know that the Stuxnet attack that we talked about in the first lecture was doubtless the product of very sophisticated attackers is that it used four zero-day exploits, a sign of the importance that the developer put on the success of the attack. Of course, so far, we've been talking about attacks on computers and servers. But, and this will be a theme as we go along, you should always remember that cyberspace is much bigger than the Internet and the World Wide Web. Everything that is attached and addressable is part of the domain. In July 2012, for example, a group of researchers at the University of Texas at Austin Radio Navigation Laboratory succeeded in hijacking a drone by fooling the Global Positioning System, or GPS, on board the aircraft. With around $1,000 in parts, the team took control of an unmanned aerial vehicle owned by the college. And then they showed off their skills to the U.S. Department of Homeland Security. Now, by 2020, there may be tens of thousands of drones in U.S. airspace. Just imagine what it will be like if they can be hijacked by outsiders. You could, you could do a 9-11 attack without the suicide pilots. We should finish our discussion of exactly how cyber intrusions work with a little bit of a look at what the defenders are doing. The first thing, of course, is that the good guys can and do use the same tools as the bad guys. In order for the Canadians to track the ghost net attack to China, they used some of the same techniques that the Chinese had used, including putting malicious tracking software into some of the computers that were the intermediaries for the Chinese attack. These programs allowed the Canadians to put beacons on the network traffic as a means of, of tracing it. Of course, defenders also have some of their own unique tools that you may have heard about. 
I want to mention two of them quickly. One particularly useful tool is the honeypot. If programs with malicious software are seeking vulnerable computers to infect, then one of the best and easiest ways to learn about new malware is to capture it before it infects innocent computers by creating computers that pose as innocents but really aren't. If you want an image, think of the police officer who poses as a prostitute or the military ship cruising the ocean posing as an unarmed merchant ship. We call these computers honeypots because they're sweet and attractive targets. And malware is a bit like Winnie the Pooh. It never refuses any honey. In a similar vein, spam traps are systems designed to collect and analyze spam so that your filters know how to stop it. If you're like me, you've probably noticed lately that your spam filters are getting better and you're seeing less of it. In fact, you may actually be missing some real email that gets filtered in the spam. The spam traps are how security firms are making their systems more effective. Now, up until this point, we've been exploring some of the tactics employed in the cyber domain by attackers and defenders alike. What I'd like to do next is talk a little bit about the scope of the problem. After all, if there are vulnerabilities but nobody ever exploited one, we wouldn't really care, would we? So perhaps we should ask the question, just how significant is the problem of cyber attacks today? Sadly, though the question is really a vital one, Data on actual vulnerabilities and their effects are very hard to come by. First, we don't have any good information about the number of intrusions that happen on a daily basis. It's such a large number that the U.S. government actually stopped counting several years ago. The frequency was too great. Clearly, though, there does seem to be a lot of churn on the network. One massive study of Internet traffic conducted for Bell Canada in 2010 demonstrated the scope of the problem. They reviewed 839 petabytes of data, that's a huge amount, containing over 4 billion emails each month, carrying more than 174 billion Canadian dollars of commerce every day. Within this flood of data, over 53 gigabytes per second, per second, contain malicious code of some sort. So if you want a comparison, that's roughly the size of 1,200 songs on your iPod every second, every day, malicious. In Canada alone, the investigators observed on the order of 80,000 zero-day exploits per day and estimated that more than 1.5 million compromised computers attempted more than 21 million botnet connections each month. This data is more or less consistent with estimates by large cybersecurity companies. As we noted in our opening lecture, for example, in 2010, Symantec discovered 286 million new, unique, malicious pieces of malware, and in 2011, it was more than 400 million. In 2012, one German researcher with only five employees found 70 million malware samples in his honeypot. Eight and a half million of these were new, unique samples. Equally alarming, the DHS Cyber Center that monitors the federal network saw about 15,000 attacks per day. So just imagine what they didn't see. But knowing that there's a lot of activity isn't the same as knowing what effects there are. A 2011 paper produced by PayPal noted, quote, estimates of the magnitude and scope of cybercrime vary widely. 
making it difficult for policymakers and others to determine the level of effort to exert in combating the problem. Close quote. And what is true of cybercrime is true to an even greater degree of instances of cyber espionage of both the industrial and sovereign variety. There is some data on cybercrime, but what we have is unsatisfactory. In 2011, the U.S.-based Internet Crime Complaint Center, the IC3, received more than 314,000 complaints of Internet crime with reported losses of $485 million. Neither of these numbers is terribly informative about the scope of the problem. The unreported and undetected instances of crime and intrusion are, by definition, unknowable. Indeed, these modest numbers pale next to other more apocalyptic estimates of malfeasant activity on the network. Former U.S. Deputy Secretary of Defense William Lynn said in 2010, for example, that military systems are probed thousands of times and scanned millions of times every day. Other estimates of the economic costs of cybercrime and cyber intrusions are available and offer some indication of the scope of the problem, but are, in some views, pretty conjectural. In 2011, for example, the consulting firm Dedica estimated that the annual losses from cyber intrusions in the United Kingdom were 27 billion pounds. Now, for comparison's sake, the annual loss from regular non-cyber fraud in the UK is thought to be roughly 73 billion pounds a year. Two years earlier, McAfee Secure estimated that the annual cybercrime losses globally were $1 trillion a year. Likewise, a cybercrime report from Norton estimates that the direct monetary losses in just the 24 largest countries in the world in 2010 were $114 billion, while other losses from lost time and such were another $274 billion. Grand total, $388 billion lost globally. That's more than the market for marijuana, cocaine, and heroin combined. These estimates may be somewhat inflated by their methodology. The lion's share of the losses are estimated to flow from the theft of intellectual property. In other words, some form of industrial espionage or the theft of films or music or books with direct monetary losses estimated to be running an order of magnitude less. More notably, this data is a rough estimate at best and it's also a bit inherently suspect. Cybersecurity firms like Vedica and McAfee have, after all, an interest in, in making us concerned. Perhaps somewhat more authoritatively, the U.S. Government Accountability Office, repeating an estimate made by the FBI, the Federal Bureau of Investigation, believes that in 2005, the annual losses due to computer crime was approximately $67.2 billion for U.S. organizations. Now, 2005 was quite a while ago, but this kind of estimation is very hard to do. And as of the day that this lecture was recorded, it's the last time the government took a look. Today, the number can only be higher. The Poneman Institute is a well-respected internet study think tank. In 2011, they conducted a survey of companies in America. They estimated that the median annual cost of cybercrime to each company was almost $6 million per year, with a range of $1.5 to $36.5 million per organization. One other way to estimate the scope of the cybercrime problem would be to examine how much is spent in preventing intrusions and theft. After all, 
nobody would expect rational businesses to spend more in prevention than they anticipate in losses. The Internet Security Alliance has estimated that private sector security spending totaled an astonishing $80 billion in 2011. Perhaps even more troubling, another study by Poneman suggested that the amount being spent was less than 10% of what was necessary to stop 95% of all attacks. So in the end, we don't know for sure what the scope, the actual dollar damage of cybercrime really is. From all this, the most that can be said is that there's a lot of risk out there and that data about actual harm remains painfully elusive. So that's a quick look at how cyber intrusions actually happen and what the scale of the damage is. It's sort of a a bestiary of bad animals out there. Keep them in mind, because we'll encounter them again later in this course. In our next lecture, though, we're going to take a short, deeper dive into a single aspect of the cyber intrusion problem, the question of anonymity and of identity on the network. See you then. So if you're listening to or or watching this lecture at home, let's try an experiment. But please, don't do this if you're in the car right now. Wait until you get home. If you're at home, go and turn on your computer. Open up your web browser and pick your favorite search engine. Google, Yahoo, it doesn't matter. And type into the search engine the word whois, W-H-O-I-S, with no spaces. And... Soon you'll see at least a half dozen links offering who is services. Services that will, in theory, help you identify the people behind various domain names on the internet. Seems like a wonderful service. Almost like a yellow pages for internet domain names, right? If only it were that simple. It turns out that verifying a person's identity on the network is actually very hard to do. In today's lecture, we'll try and understand why that is so and what we might do to fix the problem, if it's even a problem at all. Domain names are familiar to everyone who uses the Internet. In any web address, the domain name is the portion of the address after HTTP colon backslash backslash www dot. So, for example... The website for my consulting firm may be found at http colon backslash backslash www.redbranchconsulting.com. In this case, the domain name is redbranchconsulting.com. Domain names are familiar ways to identify the web page you're trying to reach or the email address you're sending email to. We know them. We readily recognize them. Microsoft.com. That takes you to Bill Gates's company. And gov.uk, that takes you to the front page of Her Majesty's government in London. Of course, computers don't use names like Microsoft or Her Majesty's government to route traffic. They use numbers. The domain name system, or DNS, is, in effect, a translation system. It takes a domain name and translates it into an internet protocol address, sometimes shortened and We call it an IP address. The IP address is a numerical label. 
It's assigned to every device on the network, a computer or a printer or a server. The IP address is written in a format of four numbers, each separated by a dot. So, for example, one might be 172.16.254.1. The IP address tells the Internet routing system where a particular server is on the network. And then the Internet protocol tells the system how to get the message from here to there, wherever there may be. So the DNS IP combination is both an identification system, who you are, and an address system, where you are. By the way, and just as an amusing aside, it tells you everything you need to know about the growth of the cyber domain that we're running out of IP addresses to assign. The way the system was originally designed, there were only 4.3 billion IP addresses to hand out. Only. And the last ones went out for assignment in early 2011. But don't worry, the engineers have a fix. It's going to take some time and effort to put it in place. But when they're done, we will have 340 billion, 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 billion IP addresses to use. That's a 34 followed by 37 zeros. So anyway, the DNS link works in a three-stage process. First, an individual, me, Paul Rosenzweig, registers a domain name, say, redbranchconsulting.com, which is hosted on a server somewhere. As it happens, Redbranch is hosted on a server owned and operated by a friend of mine. But you can buy your own server if you want to, or rent space on a server farm operated by another company. Second, that server is identified by an IP address. And third... When a potential client wants to access the Red Branch website by typing in that domain name, the DNS programming routes the request to the right server and returns the web page to the client. All of which means that the addressing function of the DNS is absolutely critical. If the domain name system were corrupted, hijacked, or broken, then communications across the entire Internet would break down. And it also means that keeping a good registry of which domain names are in use is just as vital. If Microsoft.com is taken by Microsoft, the computer software giant, it can't be used by Microsoft, the hypothetical manufacturer of small, soft washcloths. Somebody needs to be in charge of keeping the books and making sure they're all straight. That somebody is the Internet Corporation for Assigned Names and Numbers, also known as ICANN. ICANN is a nonprofit organization that sets the rules for creating and distributing domain names. As I explained in Lecture 3, the function for assigning names used to be done by a single man back when the Internet was first turned on. That man, John Postel, helped create the first Internet network as a project for the Advanced Research Projects Administration, or ARPA. But since ARPA was a federal government-funded agency, this in effect meant that the naming function was handled by the United States government. In the long run, of course, as the Internet grew to span the globe, a U.S.-run and managed naming system was considered by many outside the United States to be insular and too unilateral. So ICANN was chartered in 1998 to transition control over the Internet from 
the U.S. government to a nonprofit private sector organization. Today, ICANN operates from California, but it has a global constituency, registering new domain names every day. We'll talk a lot more about ICANN in a later lecture. For now, though, all you need to know is the job that it does. In theory, the domain name system should be completely transparent. Knowing a domain name, the cyber persona of a person or company, you should be able to find out who the real person behind the domain name is. Unfortunately, the system doesn't work as effectively as it should. If you're still at your computer, let's continue the experiment. And again, if you're in your car, don't do this until you get home, please. <laughs> so first, let's go to one of those Whois sites we found earlier. In some cases, the registry works as we might wish. If you do a Whois search for the domain name heritage.org, you do find the actual organization behind the domain name. In this case, the Heritage Foundation, a think tank located in Washington, D.C. At least you can find the foundation's true address and the name of someone who works there. Try it and you'll see. But in most cases, the Whois function really doesn't help that much. To see that, let's type redbranchconsulting.com into the Whois search box. Now, remember, redbranchconsulting.com is the domain name for the consulting company that I founded. When you execute the search, however, you don't get my name. Instead, what you get is a notice that the domain name is registered with a company called godaddy.com. GoDaddy, whose ads I'm sure you've seen, <laughs> is a registry company that works with ICANN to organize the sale of domain names. Fortunately, they're a reputable company. So if you have a lawful reason to ask, if, say, you were the police conducting a criminal investigation and you had the correct legal authorization, then GoDaddy would tell you who was behind that domain. Me. The same is true of cyberwarbook.com, which is a domain purchased to promote a book I recently published. When you look up this domain name in a Whois service, you find only that this domain name is registered with Wild West Domains, another company like GoDaddy, this one owned by my cousin. Now, imagine that, unlike a consultant, you actually wanted to hide your identity. The obscurity of the domain name system makes it pretty easy. For example, one can, for a relatively small amount of money, create a shell company registered just about anywhere in the world. So let's say we created Not Great Courses Company in the Cayman Islands. If Not Great Courses then bought the domain name notgreat.com from GoDaddy, the true owners of the company could hide behind the corporate structure to conceal their identity behind the fictional cyber persona. Because domain name registry companies like GoDaddy or Wild West accept identification that appears to be lawful, and because they make no real attempt to verify the information they receive, the Whois registry is littered with errors, some accidental, others quite deliberate. As if the obscurity in the addressing registry weren't enough, there are plenty of other techniques for hiding on the Internet. As we talked about in an earlier lecture, messages that transit the net don't automatically come with authentication. 
They may pretend to be from your friend, but that could be a spoof. That's a communication intended to fool you. For an example, an email from a friend, but with a slightly wrong email address. Or even worse, an email from your friend that is from his real address, but has been sent by someone who hacked into his account and hijacked it. Almost everyone who uses the Internet has received at least one communication that's a fraud. I'm stranded in London and need you to send me money has become the modern-day equivalent of I've got a great bridge to sell you in Brooklyn. This kind of blatant fraud and misrepresentation is commonplace. Even worse, many techniques exist to confound any effort to backtrack a message to an original source. It is relatively easy as a technical matter to gimmick an IP address so that a message appears to come from one location while actually coming from another. Likewise, in a world where botnets allow a malicious actor to control computers other than his own, it is also quite possible to originate a message from a computer that is not your own, but is under your control. As a result, the commonplace is that virtually every intrusion or attack on the network is obscured behind a, a farrago of false emails, spoofed IPs, and botnets under the control of a third party. No attacker worth his soul would make any intrusion directly from his own IP address. They're always bounced through a number of false leads before arriving at the intended target. So this creates a lot of interesting double and even triple agent type possibilities. Remember how we talked about Stuxnet and how everyone is pretty sure that it was designed by the United States and or Israel. But is that really the case? At least one observer thinks maybe not. Writing in Forbes, Jeffrey Carr, who's a well-known cyber writer, speculated that China might have been behind the Stuxnet worm. He linked the advent of Stuxnet to the failure of one of India's communication satellites. As a result of that failure, Indian service providers of direct-to-home telecommunications were forced to switch their traffic to a Chinese satellite, one owned by the Chinese government investors. According to Carr, the failed Indian satellite also runs on a Siemens SCADA interface of the exact same sort that Stuxnet targeted. This transfer of traffic was, of course, financially beneficial to China, who had a motive for inducing the change and for concealing its own role. Now, the speculation is probably wrong. The revelations about American involvement in Stuxnet are too detailed I think, to be false. But Carr's guesswork does give you a sense of how uncertain identity is in cyberspace. Unfortunately, the problem of attribution and identification can't be wished away. The difficulty of identification is perhaps the single most profound challenge for cybersecurity today, for both technical and social reasons. It's not just that attribution is hard to do, though it is hard enough. It is that, as we explored a bit in Lecture 3, the converse of attribution, anonymity, is a fundamental part of our cyber consciousness. The anonymous Internet stems from the architecture of the communications protocols, but it has been embedded as a 
quasi-libertarian streak that is at its core part of the DNA of Internet society. For many of the people who first built the cyber domain, anonymity is part of their ideological commitment to a, a broad-based, diverse, individually empowered community. Let's leave the sociology of the Internet aside for a moment and focus on exactly where we are today. Attribution is deeply problematic in cyberspace, and that makes the network vulnerable to attack. But problematic doesn't mean impossible. Think back to the story of the ghost net intrusion we talked about in Lecture 4. The Information Warfare Monitor Group from Canada spent nearly a year on the effort and broke into some of the hackers' own computers to follow the trail. In the end, they were able to trace the origin of the intrusion to servers on Hainan Island, also the home of a Chinese military signals intelligence agency. What those efforts demonstrate is that when all is said and done, attribution is a question of resources and permission. If you are willing to devote enough time, money, and personnel to the issue, and if you have permission to do certain acts that in other contexts might be illegal, well, then good attribution can ultimately be achieved. The major problem with the effort, however, is that it takes a long time. How valuable is an attribution six months after the attack? Still, though attribution is slow and cautious, it can be done. In fact, one piece of recent good news on this front, at least from the perspective of the American military, is that in the right circumstances, we're getting better at identifying the malicious actors. As Secretary of Defense Leon Panetta said in October 2012, quote, Over the last two years, DOD has made significant investments in forensics to address this problem of attribution. And we're seeing the returns on that investment. Potential aggressors should be aware that the United States has the capacity to locate them and to hold them accountable for their actions that may try to harm America. For example, the National Security Agency has, through patient and diligent work, identified roughly 20 separate Chinese networks of hackers that are causing most of the espionage damage in America today. These near two dozen groups are either tied to the Chinese military directly or tied to Chinese universities with ties to the government. According to public reports, the U.S. government even knows the names of specific individuals in some of these groups. In fact, in 2012, some researchers at Trend Micro, which is a cybersecurity firm, began looking at a Chinese intrusion program called Lucky Cat. As usual, the attackers used internet cutouts, intermediate command and control computers, and domains located around the world so as to make it difficult to track them. But with careful work, the investigators linked one of the command and control domains to an email address and then to a QQ address. QQ is, by the way, China's equivalent of Twitter. Now, that QQ address, in turn, was tied to an online nickname, Shuhikar, S-C-U-H-K-R. Shuhikar was almost certainly a reference to Sichuan University, whose internet domain name is scu.edu.cn. The CN is for China. After Trend Micro published its research, the New York Times went a step further. They conducted an additional investigation 
and discovered that the owner of the Shoe Hicker alias, where HKR stands for hacker, was, according to online records, Gu Kaiyuan, a former graduate student at Sichuan University. So we actually know who the hicker, the hacker, behind Lucky Cat is. Which brings us to the final problem with direct attribution efforts. The so what question. For criminal intrusions, many of the malicious actors, though not all of them, live beyond the reach of American law. They often can't be extradited and prosecuted from their home countries. Likewise, though attribution does give us a better sense of when and how cyber espionage is occurring, that doesn't make a diplomatic response any easier. Thanks to the work of the National Security Agency, we have better proof that China is behind some of the cyber espionage that is happening in America. But if our other issues with China prevent us from taking effective countermeasures, what's the value of knowing? If the result of a massive effort to identify the source of an attack is nothing more than the increase in our storehouse of knowledge, then we might ask whether or not the game is worth the candle. So if that doesn't work, there has to be a different way, right? There is, though even this idea has its problems. The basic concept with this other idea is to accept that we can't do attribution by working backwards from the intrusion to the hacker. So instead, we're going to look at the problem from the other end. We will try to work forward by establishing an identity at the human-computer interface when a person actually puts her fingers on the keyboard. What this means in practice is trying to find a way to make access to the Internet available through trusted identities. Sometimes this is caricatured as requiring a driver's license to use the Internet. And though that's an overstatement, there is an element of truth to the caricature. The idea is to somehow control identity on the network when you sign on in a way that locks in an identity for later tracking. In the United States, this trusted identity system would have to be voluntary. It is almost impossible to imagine that any system requiring mandatory identification would be politically acceptable. In fact, a mandatory trusted identity system would probably be unconstitutional. Anonymous or pseudonymous speech has a, a long history in the United States. Just think of the debates that occurred at the time of the adoption of the Constitution. Papers published essays by Brutus and Cato and the Federal Farmer. The most famous essays of all, the Federalist Papers, they were published under the pseudonym Publius. And in a case called McIntyre versus Ohio, the Supreme Court relied on that history and decided that the First Amendment to the Constitution protects the right to anonymous political speech. But a mandatory cyber identity program would make anonymous speech on the cyber network almost impossible. Still, even a voluntary system would be of some use. If you wanted to be careful, you could refuse to do business with anyone who didn't have a trusted identity. That would make it much harder for a thief to pretend that he was your bank's website. You could even create your own private networks with only trusted users. In the end, however, these types of programs will they'll only take you so far. The system wouldn't be universal, and the network's very universality is its strength. One more point. The trend towards trusted identification on the network can go a good way towards solving the attribution problem. But 
at real cost to Internet freedom. We need to consider whether broader American interests really are advanced by the widespread adoption of trusted identity rules. Trusted identity can enhance security, but one man's security purpose is another man's political oppression. Personally, I tend to think that America's long-term interests might be better served by fostering Internet freedom of expression as a means of, say, fostering free speech and encouraging opposition to oppressive authoritarian regimes. That's because, for authoritarian countries, Internet identification is a way of suppressing dissent. For example, China is developing an identification system that will eventually be mandatory, or so they say. Chinese officials have a new program that requires the users of the QQ microblog service, remember that's the Chinese equivalent of Twitter, to disclose their true identities to the government in order to post comments online. As Mark Rodenberg of the Electronic Privacy Information Center notes, Internet identification is a principal means by which China controls its citizens. In addition to mandatory registration requirements, the government puts requirements on Internet service providers and regulates access to Internet cafes. Meanwhile, the designers of the network are fighting back. A few minutes ago, we talked about the sociology of the Internet, its DNA for freedom, if you will. Some network engineers are working to keep the Internet free. One example is Tor, a free software program operated by the Tor Project. Tor is an anonymizing tool used worldwide by journalists, human rights activists, hackers, law enforcement officers, and anyone else who wants to. Tor uses cryptography to encrypt messages and builds a voluntary network of servers around the globe to, to bounce encrypted traffic in a way that evades detection. Tor is actually an acronym, T-O-R. It stands for the Onion Router. And it's called an Onion Router because trying to get to the original source is like trying to peel back the layers of an onion. <laughs> it's almost impossible. If you use Tor software you can conceal your originating IP address from discovery very effectively. Activists say that Tor protects personal freedom and privacy. Governments say it protects secrecy. In fact, Tor was originally designed by the Navy to protect its communications. Online activist groups like WikiLeaks say it promotes transparency. And criminals, well, they don't say much, but they're glad to use Tor to conceal their actions too. Of course, other network engineers are working in the opposite direction, trying to answer the original problem we started the lecture with, how to make identity on the network more easily verifiable. One major effort is something known as DNSSEC, which stands for Domain Name System Security Extension. Under DNSSEC, a new authentication security feature would allow a user to be sure that when they attempted to connect to a domain name, say, whitehouse.gov, they are reaching the true whitehouse.gov website and not some phony facsimile of that website. In simplified form, each website or email address or other advice would come with an authentication certificate that reported, I really am who I say I am to anyone who asks. One benefit of this type of authentication system is that it would eliminate man-in-the-middle attacks. 
Those are attacks where the malicious actor steps into the middle of a conversation and hijacks it by making independent connections with the victims. From the middle vantage point, he can relay messages between the victims, making them believe that they are talking directly to each other over a private connection, when in fact, the entire conversation is under his control. For example, without DNSSEC, your request to connect, say, to your bank, Chase.com, could be redirected to a phony Chase.com website. There, the malicious actor would record your traffic so that your bank password login information is collected before he passed it on to the real bank website. Since you actually eventually make connection to your real bank, you never know that something wrong has happened. And the thief can return to Chase.com at his leisure after you log off and steal you blind. This kind of attack is all too common today and has become one of the key tactics of many criminal gangs. Once DNSSEC is deployed, however, a security resolver function would be built into your web browser so that it will check the authentication certificate of sites like Chase.com and confirm that the website was authentic, eliminating the the man-in-the-middle problem. I know DNSSEC sounds like an easy answer, but it's really very hard to accomplish for a number of reasons. First, DNSSEC has to be backward compatible. In other words, it has to work even with portions of the Internet that have not yet deployed the new security protocols. Otherwise, changing over to DNSSEC would disconnect you from the broader web, and nobody wants that. Second, there is a very substantial cost for upgrading and deploying DNSSEC across the global range of servers and systems. The process will take years to complete. Finally, the biggest difficulty is establishing a chain of trust for domain name authentication. How do you know that the Chase.com webpage is authentic? Some certificating authority, say a company like VeriSign that is in the business of authentication, has sold Chase an authentication key. And how did Chase know that VeriSign itself was authentic? Well, VeriSign got their authentication certificate from someone higher up the ladder. At some point up the chain, there has to be an original root authentication that serves as a trust anchor to the chain of trust. Currently, the trust anchor is provided by ICANN, and some people outside of the United States don't trust ICANN because it is an American company that they think is subservient to American interests. And then there are the bad guys. If you have a chain of trust to establish identity for domain names, or for that matter, individuals, your chain is only as strong as your weakest link. And if your entire defense is based on establishing a chain of trust, we can be sure that bad actors will seek to undermine that trust chain if possible. That's actually what happened in July 2011 with an attack on a certificating authority in Holland known as DigiNotar. DigiNotar wasn't issuing DNSSEC certificates, but rather a different form of certificate known as an SSL certificate. The abbreviation stands for Secure Socket Layer. That serves more or less the same function as DNSSEC. It verifies that a user has reached a legitimate website. SSL certificates work through the mechanisms of your web browser, which are programmed to automatically consult a list of authenticated websites that includes all of the authentications provided by DigiNotar. A hacker who goes by the name Komodo Hacker, and who claims to be an Iranian student, penetrated DigiNotar. 
He used the penetration to issue more than 250 and possibly as many as 500 false certificates for real companies like Google. What that means is that if you typed in the web address mail.google.com and were redirected to a captive malicious site, that site would appear authentic because the browser would look for and find a valid DigiNotar certificate. Because countries like Iran are interested in tracking dissent, some suspected that Komodo hacker was an Iranian cyber spy. That suspicion became more pronounced when Komodo hacker also generated false digital certificates for the CIA, MI6, which is the United Kingdom Secret Service, and the Mossad, Israel's Secret Service. In the end, the only way to beat this attack was for the web browser manufacturers, Google Chrome, Mozilla Firefox, and Internet Explorer, to all issue Internet death certificates for DigiNotar and revoke all of the certificates the company had ever issued. That's small comfort for those who were spoofed by this particular attack, and it also demonstrates the fundamental flaw in any plan that relies for authentication on a chain of trust. Trust, it seems, can sometimes be forged. All things considered, the promise of robust attribution and identification is a bit of a chimera. Attribution is clearly possible in many cases, but it is also clear that creating a world of trusted and secure identities on the network is a nearly impossible dream. We can make a great deal of progress in some aspects of the effort, but in the long run, we have to understand that anonymity is a feature of our current Internet architecture, not a bug. In short, there is no realistic way of creating a universal system of trusted identities, and we aren't even sure if doing that would be a good thing. As with almost everything in cyberspace, we can reduce the risks we run, but the fundamental problem of identity is here to stay. In our next lecture, we'll begin looking at some of the bad actors on the network, starting with the criminals. I'll talk to you soon. mind, I think of conflict in cyberspace as structured something like a pyramid. At the bottom, there's a broad base of frequently occurring and moderately harmful activities, while at the top are those threats that are, are very rare, but would have catastrophic consequences if they ever did occur. Today, we begin our exploration of the details of this pyramid. At the base, where the most frequently occurring harmful activities arise. They may not be as catastrophic as a cyber war, but for individuals who are injured, the consequences are all too painful and real. These are the all too common instances of cybercrime, cyber scams and fraud that typically involve the theft of money or of identity. We can think of this as the daily churn of cybersecurity, which is deeply annoying and to those affected sometimes quite disruptive. In the end, what we'll see is that cybercrime is a lot like crime in the real world, endemic and pervasive. And like crime in the real world, think of the Mexican cartels, sometimes it can get out of control and become horrifically problematic. To date, cybercrime has yet to reach that level, but someday it might. 
So our plan for this lecture is, is simple. We'll proceed in three steps. First, we'll talk about cybercrime that is really just like regular crime, only the computer is used as a tool. Then we'll talk about cybercrimes that are new and different because they really couldn't happen without the changes brought by the cyber systems. And finally, we'll look at how law enforcement authorities are fighting back. So let's start with crimes that matter most to you. For the average person, the most significant criminal threat in cyberspace is the prospect of fraud or identity theft. This isn't a legal problem. Fraud is fraud. Fraud is fraud. <laughs> and theft is theft. And we have plenty of laws against both. In fact, over the last several years, whatever gaps there were in American law have generally been filled. And criminal law now covers most of the situations we would expect it to. The problem of cybercrime is that the actors who commit the crimes are often so far removed from American jurisdiction, or for that matter, the jurisdiction of any Western nation, that the prospects of using the criminal law effectively are minimal. Consider, for example, the by now too familiar case of Nigerian scam artists, known as 419 fraudsters, after the section of the Nigerian criminal code that prohibits fraud. We spoke about them briefly in an earlier lecture, but it's worth looking at them in a bit more detail as a way of getting a sense of how crime happens on the network. The 419 scam is just the modern-day computer version of an old-time fraud known as the advance fee scheme. Under an advance fee scheme, the dupe is offered an opportunity to share in a windfall, if only he'll just provide the scammer with a, a small advance to pay for fees. The scheme is not unique to Nigeria or the Internet. But the way it typically works in cyberspace, the dupe is promised a percentage of millions of dollars that are available. If only he or she will help the criminal, who often poses as a corrupt government official, transfer the money illegally out of Nigeria. The intended victim is scammed, either by sending information to the criminal that allows the crook to steal his identity, for example, blank letterhead stationery, your bank name and account numbers, and other identifying information. Or by having the victim actually provide some advance fee money to the official to be used for transaction costs and bribes. When money is requested, the victim is asked to send the money to the criminal in Nigeria in several installments of increasing amounts for a variety of reasons. But of course, the millions of dollars don't exist, and the victim eventually ends up with nothing but loss. And for obvious reasons, the Nigerian government is not too sympathetic to the victims of these schemes. After all, they are theoretically complicit in a scheme to remove funds from Nigeria in a manner that is contrary to Nigerian law. Three factors make the cyber version of this scam especially effective. First, the anonymity of the Internet makes the scammer practically invulnerable to effective identification. Second, even if the criminal is identified, extradition is unlikely. As I said, Nigeria doesn't have much sympathy for the American victims. And finally, the near costless nature of the Internet makes it possible for the scammer to send out tens of thousands, if not hundreds of thousands or millions of fake solicitation emails. Even if the overwhelming majority of recipients properly recognize the scam, a few trusting innocent souls, or less sympathetically, a few corrupt souls seeking illegal gain, will always respond. 
which actually raises an interesting question that's worth pausing briefly to consider. Why are the Nigerian scams so blatant? After all, they come with so many clues that they are scams, misspelled words and transparent come-ons, that we tend to think that only a really naive or stupid person would respond. Well, it turns out that's exactly the point. A 2012 sociology study suggested that the Nigerian scams and other blatant scams like them are bad on purpose. The scammers are actually trolling for the naive and the stupid. The idea is that sending a spam load costs the scammers nothing. But what costs them a lot is spending time cultivating a mark for the con. So they want to identify easy marks early on. And the best way to do that is to be so silly and blatant and overt that only an easy mark will respond. That way, the scammer invests this time in fish they're likely to reel in, and not in ones that will be hard to catch. And the best part is that they actually make the victims do the work. By deleting their emails and not responding, we're self-selecting out of the pool, and those who answer are advertising their gullibility. It turns out that Far from being stupid themselves, those Nigerian scammers are, are actually pretty crafty. So in the end, Nigerian scams aren't something that the average citizen really has to worry about. If you're someone who listens to the great courses, you probably aren't an attractive target. And it also turns out that these types of scams really aren't anything new. The internet makes the con artists harder to catch, but fraud like this has been a part of human culture since time immemorial. The cyber network is just a way of making it easier. What you do have to worry about are the thieves who are using the new tools of the Internet to create new and different risks. One example is the problem of identity theft. Here, too, there isn't much conceptually new. You were at risk before the Internet if a waiter stole your credit card number. And you're at risk today if you use your credit card in cyberspace. The difference is the many ways that your identifying information can be stolen. We saw the man in the middle attack in the last lecture. Another endemic problem is that your personal information is often held by other people. Your bank, your supermarket, the online bookstore, all of them have your credit card information and other data about you. So... Now, your identity is only as safe as the least safe company you work with. Data theft from those places is so common, we actually have a new set of laws to deal with data breach, how to remedy it, and what the companies are required to do for their clients if it occurs. So here are two pieces of advice I'll give you, and we'll have a whole lecture devoted to advice later in the course. These will limit the likelihood of you being a victim. First, whenever you send personal information to a company, make sure you use a secure encrypted connection. Look for the little closed lock symbol in most browsers. We saw in the last lecture that secure certificates are not perfect, but they're better than nothing. The second piece of advice is even easier. Just give out less information on the web. Sure, if you store your credit card number with Amazon, you don't have to type it in every time. But what you gain in convenience, you lose in security. And maybe Amazon is safe, 
But is everyone you do business with as good as Amazon? Now let's look at something different. Let's look at organized crime on the web. One example is the Russian Business Network, also known as the RBN. The RBN was truly a child of the Internet. It couldn't really have existed without it. The RBN was an Internet service provider run by criminals for criminals. The RBN is said to have been created back in 2004 by Flyman, a 20-something programmer who is a nephew of a well-connected Russian politician. Note that I used said to have been. In truth, his actual identity remains pretty well cloaked in mystery. The RBN provided domain names, dedicated servers, and software for criminals, a one-stop shopping center for those who want to be active on the Internet. The RBN was sometimes called a bulletproof network because, in effect, users were capable of hiding their criminal activity and were bulletproof against prosecution or discovery in their country of origin. So, to a large degree, the RBN was just another business. It offered access to bulletproof servers for $600 per month, and highly effective malware was priced at $380 for every 1,000 targets. All of this came with free technical support, patches, updates, and fixes. Typically, a bulletproof host like the RBN will have many customers, phony pharmaceutical manufacturers and child pornography websites, for example. It can also often serve as a centralized controller server for various botnets, some of which it rents out at bargain basement prices. The Zeus botnet, for example, is believed to control millions of zombie computers, and it can be rented for just $190,000 a day, or 10 cents per zombie. In its heyday, the RBN was responsible for some of the largest criminal hacks to date. One example is the infamous rockfish scam. That's fish with a PH, as in email phishing expedition, in which users were tricked into entering personal banking information on the web. This resulted in losses in excess of $150 million. In another incident, the RBN put a keystroke logger program on the computers of most of the customers of the Bank of India. The RBN is also said to have provided some support for Russia, during Russia's conflict with Estonia in 2007 and with Georgia in 2008. Under severe pressure from the Russian government, which was deeply embarrassed by some of the RBN's activities, the RBN officially closed its doors in 2008, though many suspect that rather than closing, they simply moved their offices to another location. And even if they are out of business, that doesn't mean that cyber-organized crime is dead. In late 2012, for example, cybersecurity firms in America saw evidence of a planned large-scale bank heist, dubbed Operation Blitzkrieg. The idea was for a cartel of Russian organized crime hackers to simultaneously attack 30 American banks. One expects that forewarned is forearmed, but that begs the question, doesn't it? What operations are out there that we don't know about? Finally, in closing our discussion of cybercrime that still looks like traditional crime in some way, I want to turn to the biggest fear of businesses, the 
ambiguous case of economic espionage. That is, spying directed at economic secrets, not national security ones. First, we should realize that it isn't just the large corporations who suffer. Economic espionage is rampant, and nobody is immune. The story is told, based on a classified source, of an American furniture company that had its furniture design stolen through a malicious hack from China. Within months, they were seeing their own designs being offered by a Chinese manufacturer at lower prices, even after shipping costs were included. The American company was soon out of business. Its intellectual property of the furniture design was really its only asset, and the Chinese had stolen it. That is just one example of many. According to the U.S. Office of the National Counterintelligence Executive, the NCIX, the threat of economic theft is pervasive. In in an October 2011 report entitled Foreign Spies Stealing U.S. Economic Secrets in Cyberspace, the NCIX detailed some of its conclusions. Quote, U.S. private sector firms and cybersecurity experts have reported an onslaught of computer network intrusions that have originated in China, and Russia's intelligence services are conducting a range of activities to collect economic information and technology from U.S. targets. We even see some espionage by our so-called friends and allies who want to steal American ideas. Plainly, all of this activity is both a cyber crime and, at the extremes, a significant cyber threat to national security. At some point, economic espionage, especially of companies in the defense industrial base who manufacture our weapon systems, for example, at some point it blends into national security espionage, and criminality becomes spying. The line between the two is fuzzy indeed, making cybercrime both a problem in itself and part of the broader problem of conflict in cyberspace. Now I want to shift gears a bit and turn to a different type of crime and away from the issues we've been talking about so far in this lecture. Up until now, we've been discussing fraud and theft, issues that are really about traditional crimes morphed into cyberspace. Now, I want to look at something new, the type of crime where the computer is not the means by which the crime is committed, but in some ways is the victim of the crime itself. One problem we face in cyberspace is the problem of building new definitions. And that is particularly true when we try to define the crime of an illegal intrusion into a computer system without the authorization of the owner of the computer. Now, conceptually, this makes great sense. It is really pretty obvious that it ought to be a crime to hack into someone else's computer without their permission. The problem is defining what that means. In the United States, the controlling law is the Computer Fraud and Abuse Act, or CFAA, which makes it a crime to access a computer without or in excess of authorization. In some ways, this is only logical. If an intruder hasn't been given permission to use a computer at all, or if he's only been given permission to use it for a limited purpose and violates that limitation by rooting around in other cyber files, that's an act that clearly ought to be punished. But how do we determine what the limits of your authorization are? Since the term is not defined in law, the courts have looked to contractual arrangements 
that govern the use of computer or Internet systems. These agreements are known as the Terms of Service, or TOS. They're those long, detailed legal terms that everyone clicks on to accept before they sign up for, say, a Facebook account. But this means that private corporations like Facebook are, in effect, establishing what conduct violates federal criminal law when they draft their policies. And here's what that means in practice. Three U.S. federal courts have said that an employee, for example, can be prosecuted under the CFAA if he or she exceeds an employer's acceptable use policies for the company network. That means that an employee who works for an employer who limits, say, personal use of the Internet can, in theory, be prosecuted for a federal crime for accessing the Fantasy Football League webpage. Now, to be sure, one federal court has said that's wrong, but still, the effect is pretty stunning. What this new rule does is create computer crimes for activities that are not crimes in the physical world. If an employee photocopies an employer's confidential document to give to a friend without that employer's permission, there's no federal crime, though there probably is a contractual violation. However, if the same employee emails that document to a friend, that's a CFAA crime. If a person assumes a fictitious identity at a party, there's no federal crime. But if they assume that same identity on a social network, one whose terms of service prohibit pseudonyms, there may be a, a CFAA violation. At least one federal prosecutor has actually brought criminal charges against the user of a social network who signed up under a pseudonym in violation of the terms of service. This was the infamous Lori Drew case. It involved a woman, Lori Drew, who created a fake MySpace account and then used it to verbally abuse a teenager who was in conflict with her own daughter. The harassed teenager committed suicide, and Drew was charged with a federal crime because MySpace doesn't allow pseudonyms. Now, it may be that we're comfortable with this state of affairs, where we rely on prosecutorial discretion to decide when and when not to prosecute everyday wrongs, like lying about your age on a dating service as crimes. But it's at least passing strange that the law can be used to prosecute someone for, say, telling a fib on a dating website, which is against the rules of most sites. That seems to be a bit of a stretch, doesn't it? There's another problem with the CFAA. The way it's written, it's probably illegal for a company under attack to defend itself effectively. In fact, most of the more reasonable actions that a private sector actor would take in defense of its own internal networks are likely violations of the CFAA. As we've discussed, under the CFAA, it's a crime to intentionally access a computer without authorization or in excess of authorized access. But the most successful defensive measures often involve using beacons or other forms of surveillance inside the bad guy's computer to identify the source of the attack. In other words, using code that you put in your attacker's computer to trace the attack. Once identified, another effective countermeasure might be to flatline the attacker's IP address. That is, arrange for it to be taken down. So sometimes the best defense is a good offensive response, where you go out and find the person who is attacking you and attack him in return. 
these types of defensive countermeasures sometimes go by the name of hackback. And they're probably crimes under U.S. law. At least, that's what the U.S. Department of Justice says. Almost invariably, any protective action by a private sector actor will involve accessing a computer without the authorization of its owner, who may sometimes even be an innocent intermediary and obtaining information from that computer. And so almost every aspect of private sector self-help is, in theory, a violation of federal law and therefore a crime. The idea that you might be criminally prosecuted for defending yourself often deters private sector actors from, well, defending themselves. So here we are, seemingly at the mercy of criminal networks and botnets that spam us and attack us almost at will, wreaking criminal havoc on the world. Victims can't defend themselves. So what are we going to do about the problem? Well, for starters, it is possible, though very difficult, to actually take steps to cut off a criminal network at the knees and kill it. The effort requires a great deal of time and the investment of significant resources, but it can be done. The United States has begun a program of using in-rem actions to prevent servers from continuing to host botnets used for distributed network attacks. In-rem, that's a legal term. That means against the thing. Most lawsuits are against a person or a company like U.S. versus Jones or Megacorp versus Small Company. These le- this less frequent type of action is against the thing itself, like the servers controlling a botnet. The virtue of an in-rem action is that you don't need to know who owns or controls the thing. You just need to know where the thing itself is. This new program was first deployed in April 2011 against a botnet known as the Core Flood botnet. Core Flood infected more than 2 million computers around the world. Its operators used the system to steal more than 500 gigabytes of sensitive banking information, resulting in untold financial losses to corporations and individuals. To combat this threat, the U.S. federal government asked a court to let them behead the botnet network. Remember how botnets always phone home for instructions? Well, the government intercepted those messages and sent the zombies' commands to telling them to quit instead. So what this means is that the government sought and received authority to send software commands to computers owned by private individuals located in the United States that had unknowingly been infected. If you think about that, the overarching principle is pretty unusual and maybe a bit spooky. Without your permission, the government may order your computer around. Now, granted, this was all in a good cause and with court supervision. And really, are you going to complain that the government helped you clean up your infected computer? But still, the the doctrine that the government may interfere with your own computer usage is, well, it's a thought-provoking step. The government has also used in-rem proceedings to fight online piracy. That is, the illegal download of movies or music in violation of the rights of the copyright holder. For example, in November 2010, the U.S. Department of Homeland Security coordinated the seizure of 82 domain names of commercial websites allegedly engaged in the illegal sale and distribution of counterfeit goods 
and copyrighted works. They've continued to do that every November for the last two years. It got authority from a U.S. court to order the owners of the servers hosting the websites to take the websites offline. More controversial, a recent legislative effort to combat piracy by requiring Internet service providers to divert Internet traffic away from domain names that are identified as trafficking in stolen content. Supporters say, accurately, that piracy is rampant on the web and that something needs to be done. Critics, on the other hand, say that diverting traffic won't work. It's a web, after all. And that the technology used to divert the traffic like this will interfere with projects to secure the web, like DNSSEC that we talked about in the last lecture. In particular, Congress's, Congress's consideration of two bills that went by the acronyms SOPA and PIPA so upset the Internet service providers that they organized an Internet protest to black out the web in January of 2012. We'll talk more about that blackout in the next lecture. The downside, of course, is that if content providers like filmmakers and musicians can't protect their own interests in their creative intellectual property, we may, in the long run, have less creativity. The framers of the Constitution recognize the value of protecting innovation through a patent and copyright system. That's why it's in the Constitution. So, as with most things cyber, the problem is that we are struggling to find the right balance, how to protect intellectual property without criminalizing the free flow of ideas. These in-rem tactics, going after the servers and the content on the web, suffer from an even greater flaw, though. They only work in the United States. But a large fraction of the criminal problem lies overseas with criminal networks and actors who hide outside the country. The reality is that cybercrime is predominantly transnational in character. You can see why that makes cybercrime so hard to solve and even harder to prevent. There are significant forensic challenges to actually solving the crime. In the real world, we can find fingerprints and the like. But as we said in an earlier lecture, the possibility of action at a distance in cyberspace makes it very hard to capture criminals who can remain anonymous. So we're faced with a vexing situation. High-profit criminality can occur with low risk of capture. This turns our deterrence model of law enforcement on its head. Deterrence only works when there's a credible threat of arrest and punishment. But arrest and punishment are not possible if you can't attribute a crime to a specific perpetrator. And the nature of cyberspace makes attribution viciously difficult. Then there is the international scope of the problem. In many ways, the situation is a lot like the challenge that faced state law enforcement officials prosecuting Depression-era bank robberies. The robbers could escape investigation and prosecution simply by crossing state lines, changing jurisdictions and hiding behind differing laws. The criminal duo, Bonnie and Clyde, wrote a famous fan letter to the Ford Automobile Company to thank them for providing them with the way they escaped justice. The solution there, of course, was to federalize the crime of bank robbery and effectively eliminate the boundary problem. The U.S. government could do that with the stroke of a federal legislative pen. Unfortunately, in the international context, that kind of agreement isn't realistic. Today, we're just at the beginning of constructing a transnational set of procedural rules for cybercrime. 
To date, there has only been one real effort to develop an international approach to cybercrime, the Convention on Cybercrime developed by the Council of Europe. The goal is to ensure that there are no safe harbors for cybercriminals. But the process is slow, painfully so. Only 37 countries have ratified the treaty since it was adopted in 2001. The signatories to the treaties have agreed to cooperate in transborder investigations of cyber incidents. But big cyber havens like China and Russia have refused to sign. Even worse, even the countries who do agree to cooperate are stuck using out-of-date methods for legal cooperation. Countries sharing cyber information must use procedural tools that go by quaint names like letters rogatory that were first developed in the 1800s when cyber was not even a glimmer in anyone's eye. As a result, there is a growing consensus, though it is far from unanimous, that the Convention on Cybercrime doesn't work that well. And yet, without it, the broad expanse of cyberspace becomes a much easier place for criminals to hide. It's a confounding problem. Well, that's a short introduction to cybercrime and all of the rogues who work at the bottom of the cyber pyramid. In the next lecture, we'll move up a level and start talking about hackers and activists. I look forward to continuing our discussion soon. In 2007, when the Estonian government removed a statue commemorating Russia's role in World War II from a central square, they were reflecting popular opinion. Estonia is a former Soviet republic that relishes its freedom from Russian control in Moscow. Yet this simple gesture caused the entire governmental system in Estonia to come under sustained attack from Russian hackers using distributed denial-of-service tactics. DDoS attacks are those attacks we talked about, where a website is taken offline by a flood of service connection requests, blocking legitimate users from access. Now, Estonia has built an economy and a governmental system that is highly dependent on Internet access. In fact, Estonia is often said to be the first fully wired country in the world. Because Estonia only recently emerged from under Soviet control, they effectively leaped in one step of infrastructure development directly to the web. Almost all of their government and private sector services, like tax filings and banking, are completely online. But because of this, the three-week attack by Russian hackers, Estonia's economy was brought to a grinding halt. Now, it probably goes too far to call what the hackers did an act of war. No shots were fired, and the attackers didn't have the goal of bringing down the Estonian government. So how do we classify these kinds of cyber attacks? You know, though classification is always fraught with difficulty, this particular attack was an example of what is often referred to as hacktivism. Coined in 1996, the word hacktivism combines the words hack with the word activism, and it suggests the use of computer hacking methods to stage a protest or make a political statement. Today, 
we're going to enter the netherworld of hacker activists and cyber insurgency. In this shadowy realm, it sometimes seems that there are as, as many different actors with different motivations as there are grains of sand on the beach. And because of this, it can be difficult to distinguish the good guys from the bad guys, and indeed to determine where a noble motive becomes a criminal act. By the end of this lecture, we'll be able to identify some of the strange actors in this online bestiary. We'll also understand that hacktivists come essentially in three flavors, although those flavors often are mixed together. The flavors are political activists, cyber insurgents, and criminal mischief makers. Now, in our last lecture, we looked at the lowest level of our threat pyramid, the place where fraud and organized crime run rampant. Today's topic, hacktivism and cyber insurgency, moves us up to the next level in our conceptual pyramid. Cyber insurgency is a bit of a halfway house, a little like war and a little like crime, with some political free speech thrown in for good measure. To my mind, the fight most resembles what the military calls a, a low-intensity conflict. When cyber insurgents attack websites, or when patriotic hackers launch an attack against Estonia, they're starting to look like they're actually fighting a war in cyberspace. But often, their weapons are limited to simple, simple cyber tools. And the main thing that results from their actions is the defacement of a website or the denial of access. There are some real differences between these fights and true war. Cyber intrusions by non-state actors are not between sovereign nations. They don't have any territory to protect, and the hackers are practically immune from military retaliation. And because cyber insurgents are so hard to pin down, they pose a significant risk and danger to stability. If their motives are sufficiently pernicious, we might think of them as cyber terrorists. On the other hand, if their motives are more pure, perhaps they are cyber civil rights protesters. The hard questions are, who are these guys? And what do they want? So, one good way to start to understand this phenomenon is through the prism of the 2010 WikiLeaks disclosures and the subsequent support of WikiLeaks by the hacktivist group Anonymous. The familiar part of this story is about how the web creates greater transparency and, and secrecy. That's a topic we'll discuss in another lecture. But the less familiar part of the story, of interest to us today, is how WikiLeaks led to something we might call the Wiki War. Now, WikiLeaks is an organization dedicated to the publication of secret documents and confidential information. In the past, they've set their sights on governments ranging from Zimbabwe to Tunisia. In 2010, WikiLeaks turned its attention to America, first releasing a military video, then war diary summaries from Iraq and Afghanistan, and at the end, more than 250,000 classified State Department cables. With its disclosure of classified information, WikiLeaks challenged state authority. Yet one of the most significant responses to its activities came from the private sector. There is no evidence that the government ordered or requested any actions, but the combination of official displeasure and clear public disdain for WikiLeaks founder Julian Assange soon led a number of major Western corporations 
MasterCard, PayPal, and Amazon, to name three, to stop selling their services to WikiLeaks. Amazon reclaimed rented server space that WikiLeaks had used. And the two financial institutions, PayPal and MasterCard, well, they stopped processing donations made to WikiLeaks. What soon followed might well be described as the first cyber battle between non-state actors. Supporters of WikiLeaks, specifically the loosely organized group Anonymous that we talked about in Lecture 3, started a series of DDoS attacks on the websites of the major corporations that they thought had taken an anti-WikiLeaks stand. The goal was to try and flood their websites so as to prevent legitimate access to them. These attacks were based on the low-orbit ion cannon, or LOIC program, that we discussed in Lecture 4. You recall that the LOIC is so simple that you can download it yourself. Just plug the name into your search engine. Once installed on your computer, all you have to do is give the LOIC a target address, say, MasterCard's website, and hit Go. The LOIC will then use its automated programming to try and overwhelm the website with connection requests. By the way, it should be obvious, but in case it isn't, don't do this. Using the LOIC, as I've described, is illegal, and it could land you in jail. But the simple truth is that the LOIC is easy to use. Almost anyone can operate it. That's one of the reasons the anonymous hackers are, are sometimes called script kitties. Their tools, or some of them, are simple ones that even a child can use. Now, in addition to launching reprisal attacks against corporations like PayPal and, Anonymous, and Amazon, Anonymous also hacked the website of the Swedish Prosecuting Authority. They were seeking Mr. Assange's extradition to Sweden to face criminal charges. Some of the coordination for these attacks was done through social media, such as Facebook or Twitter. Meanwhile, other supporters created hundreds of mirror websites replicating WikiLeaks content so that it couldn't be effectively shut down. The hackers even adopted a military-style nomenclature, dubbing their efforts Operation Payback. And when Anonymous attacked, the other side fought back. The major sites used defensive cyber protocols to oppose Anonymous. As a result, most attacks were relatively unsuccessful. The announced attack on Amazon, for example, was abandoned shortly after it began because the assault was ineffective. Perhaps even more tellingly, someone, and no group has publicly claimed credit, began an offensive operation against Anonymous itself. Anonymous ran its operations through a website, anonops.net, and that website was itself subject to a DDoS counterattack that took it offline for a number of hours. In short, a conflict readily recognizable as a battle between competing forces took place in cyberspace, and it was waged almost exclusively between non-state actors. Now, this first cyber conflict ended in something of a draw. We can be sure, however, that Anonymous will learn from this battle and approach the next one with a, a greater degree of skill and a better perspective on how to achieve its ends. Indeed, many of the group's subsequent attacks, like the 2012 effort to shut down the Vatican website, have shown a great deal more sophistication and effectiveness. Moreover, Anonymous has demonstrated that even with its limited capacity, it can do significant damage to individuals and companies. 
And some of its attacks are more sophisticated than the LOIC. When Aaron Barr, the corporate head of cyber of the cybersecurity firm HB Gary, announced that his firm was investigating the identity of anonymous participants, anonymous retaliated. They hacked the HB Gary network, which was itself significantly embarrassing for a cybersecurity company, and they took possession of internal emails. Those emails, in turn, suggested that HB Gary was engaged in some questionable business practices. As a result, Barr was forced to resign his post. This is exactly the type of individual consequence that is sure to deter others from going after Anonymous. Anonymous has made quite clear that it intends to continue to prosecute the cyber war against, amongst others, the United States. Quote, it's a guerrilla cyber war. That's what I call it, end quote, says Barrett Brown, age 29, who's a self-described senior strategist and propagandist for Anonymous. He said, quote, it's sort of an unconventional asymmetrical act of warfare that we're involved in. Or consider the manifesto posted by Anonymous declaring cyberspace independence from the world governments. It says, quote, we declare the global social space we are building together to be naturally independent of the tyrannies and injustices you seek to impose on us. You have no moral right to rule us, nor do you possess any real methods of enforcement. We have true reason to fear. That's the end of the quote. In February 2012, Anonymous went further, formally declaring war against the United States and calling on its citizens, that's you and me, to rise and revolt. Indeed, in many ways, Anonymous conducts itself in the same manner that an armed insurgency might. In February 2012, for example, Anonymous hacked into a telephone conversation between the FBI and Scott Lanyard, who were talking about the development of a prosecution case against Anonymous. That sort of tactic, intercepting the enemy's communications, is exactly the type of tactic an insurgency might use. And by disclosing the capability, Anonymous has successfully sown uncertainty about how much else it might be intercepting. Now, one problem with the metaphor of war or insurgency, however, is that Anonymous and other groups like it are they're not monolithic. They have as many different agendas as they do people. At some points, they look like hacktivists who have a political agenda of some sort. Yet at others, they seem like vigilantes or criminals. And in other cases, they just seem like they're out for fun, drawing graffiti on websites or engaging in other criminal mischief. And at still other points, they look a lot like traditional political activists, fostering freedom of speech. For example, hacktivists provided technical assistance to the Arab Spring protesters and helped them evade authoritarian reprisals. And on the day I sat down to begin writing this lecture, the press reported that Anonymous had hacked into an Arab bank. The group published thousands of bank account names and numbers and threatened to destroy the bank's electronic systems if it did not publicly acknowledge that it had helped terrorist groups such as Al-Qaeda and Al-Shabaab. It's really quite a challenge to get a handle on a group like this when the actions of its members veer so wildly from the one extreme of participating in a near cyber war to the other of supporting free speech for political dissidents. In fact, 
and advancing their agenda, the members of Ananas may look most like the anarchists who led movements in the late 19th and early 20th century, albeit anarchists with a vastly greater network and far more ability to advance their disruptive agenda through individual action. And like the anarchists of old, they have their own internal disputes. Recently, another group called Black Hat effectively declared war on Anonymous because it disagreed with some of the Anonymous agenda. And somebody else, nobody knows who, published a list of Anonymous members on a public website. Of course, they did it anonymously. Now, as you probably know, Anonymous is not the only group that looks like an anarchist insurgency hybrid. In the time since the initial Anonymous Wikiwar conflict burst on the scene, a number of other organizations have surfaced that are intent on disrupting Internet traffic as a means of expressing some political or sociological viewpoint, though precisely what viewpoint that is is often unclear. One of the most notorious was a splinter group known as LulzSec. Very small in number, but very effective and active throughout 2011. The LULZ part of the name is a play on the common text message, L-O-L-S, LULZ, which stands for laugh out loud in the plural. And the SEC is a shortened form of the word security, all of which indicates that this is a group that laughs at cybersecurity measures. The group claimed responsibility for a number of significant intrusions in 2011, including the compromise of user accounts at Sony, which affected millions of PlayStation 3 users. LulzSec also claimed responsibility for taking a, a CIA website offline. By many accounts, LulzSec had no more than six core members who caused all of the disruption. Moreover, unlike Anonymous, some of their public posts suggested that they were motivated by a, a childish enthusiasm for creating disorder, rather than a more anarchic worldview akin to that of Anonymous. In June 2012, however, LulzSec announced that it was quitting. Precisely why LulzSec called it quits? Nobody knows. It may, however, have been in reaction to threats from other hackers to track down and expose LulzSec members. Most notable amongst these anti-LulzSec hackers was the Jester, who went by the handle TH3J35T3R, spelled, spelling out the Jester. It seems that the Jester was a retired American Special Forces operative who took it upon himself to fight back against LulzSec. His identity, in turn, has now been exposed, and he recently seems to have gone online, offline. LulzSec's decision to cease operations may also have been because of arrests of at least three suspected members of LulzSec by police in the United Kingdom and a fourth arrest by the FBI in America. Whatever the cause, LulzSec seems to have reduced its operating capacity, though it has the potential to revive at some point. For those of us outside of this obscure cyber world, it is often difficult to understand the origin of some of the names we're hearing and to learn how to translate them. The use of numbers and other symbols to replace letters is a common motif for computer hackers and other sophisticated users. This language is called LEET. For example, the gestures handle, TH3J35T3R, involves the number three, which stands for E, reversed, of course, and the five stands in for an S. You can see how this works with the name of another relatively new group called Injector Team, 
where the first word is spelled I-N-J-3-C-T-0-R. In 2011, this group claimed that they had compromised a server belonging to the North Atlantic Treaty Organization, NATO. The group announced that they had removed confidential data from a, a backup server and left behind a scatological message in a notepad file. As with some of the other groups, it is suspected that Injector began as a uh, an individual effort and became a team as that individual attracted a group of loyal followers. There are even good guy hackers who fight the bad guy hackers. One of my favorite groups is a German organization known as the Happy Ninjas. They see themselves as the sheriff riding into town, cleaning it up for decent people. In late 2011, for example, they took on a group known as Carters.cc, which was a, a marketplace for crime. Credit cards were sold, drugs exchanged, child pornography hosted and such. The Happy Ninjas shut them down. In their own words, quote, who are we? We are the watchmen, the hackers who quietly observe the scene. If any lamer causes too much trouble, we shut them down. Most of us live by the rule of law. Groups like Anonymous and the Happy Ninjas are more, well, chaotic. One of the deeply unclear questions is how big the reservoir of chaotic good guys is. In the end, maybe the network can police itself, but only time will tell. A particularly thorny issue tied to these cyber intrusions by Anonymous, LulzSec, and their hacking compatriots is the challenge of drawing a line between impermissible crime and lawful activist protest. Many in the hacktivist community see themselves as part of a latter-day civil rights movement. In fact, many of the fringe participants who respond to requests and tasking orders from the leadership of the hacker collective believe that they are lineal descendants of that era. They often say that their denial-of-service attacks, for example, are just like sit-ins from the prior decades. One lawyer, John Hamasaki of San Francisco, represents a defendant who allegedly participate in an anonymous denial-of-service attack on PayPal during the Wiki War we talked about earlier. He contends that even if the allegations against his client are true, the most that can be said is that his client engaged in political protests that caused a minor inconvenience. Or, as Eugene H. Spafford, a computer security professor at Purdue, recently put it in describing this Wiki War, quote, a whole bunch of people were angry. They didn't really think about whether it was legal or not. It never entered their minds. This was kind of the equivalent of a spontaneous street protest where they may have been throwing rocks through windows but never thought that was against the law or of hurting anybody. Now, some may wonder whether the analogy holds. After all, most of us would think that throwing a rock through a window is clearly against the law. Nevertheless, for many in America, though not in all the other countries around the globe, this claim resonates, at least to the extent that the protests are nonviolent and don't amount to the virtual equivalent of rock throwing. Many people see the Internet as a, a global commons for political protests, and they watch with a large degree of approval as Internet communications tools like Facebook and Twitter are used to foster debate and dissent, as in the Arab Spring movement stirring rebellion in the Middle East. There is reluctance, then, to apply law enforcement principles to some of these insurgents' less disruptive activities. 
a reluctance that is even greater when we think of responding with force of arms instead of criminal law. In the end, however, the cyber insurgents also live in the real world. They cannot occupy only the cyber persona layer without also occupying the true personal layer. And therein lies the easiest means of responding to their tactics. For some, like the LulzSec members, the response may be an arrest and criminal prosecution. 25 members of Anonymous were likewise arrested in early 2012 by Interpol. And in March 2012, the FBI demonstrated the usefulness of human intelligence in combating cyber insurgents when it arrested more members of LulzSec. It turned out that one of the leaders, the infamous Sabu, whose real name is Hector Xavier Monsegur, had been identified earlier, and he'd become an informant, cooperating with the government in identifying his colleagues. For other institutions, like WikiLeaks, the physical world response has also had a significant effect. By the second half of 2011, the financial pressures brought to bear on WikiLeaks by the cutoff of its traditional funding streams had led it to suspend operations entirely. Subsequent efforts to revive the brand have been fitful at best. Though WikiLeaks has arguably changed the world, it may not survive to see what changes it has wrought. At this juncture, it's worth stepping back a second and noting an important limitation on some of this discussion. That it, it presupposes that we know what a hacktivist insurgency looks like. Our image thus far is of a group of hacktivists like Anonymous, or in a slightly more organized form, like the patriotic Russian hackers who brought Estonia to its knees. But those aren't the only types of activists who exert control over the Internet. In fact, they may be comparatively less effective in their activities than another more powerful group, the large companies who provide services on the Internet themselves. Consider the events of January 18, 2012 a day when a worldwide protest by service providers shut down many portions of the web and modified many others. The protest was directed against a proposed set of online piracy laws under consideration by the U.S. Congress. They went by the acronyms SOPA and PIPA. Wikipedia's English language site went dark completely. Reddit, which is an Internet news accumulator, encouraged its users to take today as a day of focus and action to learn about these destructive bills and do what you can to prevent them from becoming a reality. And Google's iconic white search page featured a large black rectangle over their name, symbolizing the alleged censorship that was being protested. Other sites participating in the protest included Craigslist, Mozilla, Imager, and the Consumer Electronics Association. For our purposes, what these sites were protesting is less important than the mechanism they chose for conveying their message. These are not the acts of insurgents in any classical sense of the term. They don't seek to overthrow governments or, or start a revolution. But in many ways, both their ideology for an Internet free of regulation and government interference and their tactics, blocking or modifying Internet content access, are more than vaguely reminiscent of those adopted by some of the more radical Internet activists like Anonymous. It seems that some of the most dynamic members of America's innovative corporate community can, when pressed, take advantage of their position at the center of all communications to advance their own interests.
And that, too, should give us all pause. It demonstrates that in a real way, many levers of control in the cyber domain are now held by private sector actors. What if, to take a wild hypothetical example, the owners of Verizon, Google, and Facebook were all opposed to a war that an American administration proposed to wage against, say, Iran? What if they pulled the plug on Internet communications, not in support of the other side, but as an expression of their own views on world peace? Would the result be any different than if a patriotic Iranian hacker who supported his country acted to achieve the same result? It seems not. Yet the Iranian hackers would be insurgents in our frame of reference, or even military forces, while the corporations would be... What? Nobody quite knows. So let's end this lecture with one final cautionary note about hacktivism and our response to it. We should not assume that everyone reacting to a cyber insurgency will do so in the same way. As practiced by Western nations, the fight against activists and insurgents has certain rules. Though the rules can sometimes be broken, for example, with the My Lai massacre in Vietnam, that's the exception rather than the rule. But that's not necessarily the case around the globe. Some nations, Syria and Iran come immediately to mind, can be quite brutal in their response to activism. And that includes cyber activism. Adding even more complexity, non-state actors can also have a varying degree of respect for the rule of law and the conventions of conflict. And there are many non-state actors. When two non-state actors go after each other, almost anything is possible. Late in 2011, for example, Anonymous announced that it had, been, it had hacked into the database of the notorious Mexican drug cartel known as the Zetas. Inside the database, they had uncovered the names of those Mexican officials who were on the Zetas payroll and were collaborating with them. Anonymous released a video. They said it would disclose the list unless an anonymous member who had been kidnapped in Veracruz was released. The Zetas' response was chilling, but effective. They warned Anonymous that if it published the names of the collaborators, the Zetas would retaliate by conducting a mass killing of civilians. Ten people for every collaborator named. Faced with this threat, Anonymous withdrew its own threat and closed down its program known as Operation Cartel. I should add that in the end, the Anonymous member was released. But even so, in a highly disturbing way, this story confirms that the cyber domain really can't be disassociated from the physical world. More fundamentally, it suggests that as with other insurgencies, the advantages held by cyber insurgents depend to some extent on the Western nation's adherence to the rule of law. And that may evaporate if an opponent declines to play by those rules. Which is not to say that there's nothing lawful that we can do, though we would never threaten brutal tactics such as those proposed by the Zetas, we can take steps to create real-world consequences, arrest and prosecution, for example, for those non-state actors who otherwise would face none. But the range of tactics that might be available in response is different for the Western nation-state than for the insurgents. And therein lies the challenge in a nutshell. In this lecture, we've seen that the risks from hacktivism and cyber insurgency are 
different from those posed by cybercrime. But we've also seen that these risks are just as real, if not more so. And here's the last bit of news. It will likely get worse before it gets better. Today, hacker groups have only limited tools for disrupting the network. Only nation-states like the U.S., China, and Israel possess advanced cyber capabilities to create things like the Stuxnet virus that can cause catastrophic real-world damage. For that reason, today's hackers pose less systemic risk. But that will not last. Soon, we may see hacker groups with significant warlike capabilities. And so, in our next lecture, we'll turn to that topic. What is cyber war? And what will it look like? I look forward to continuing with you next time. Some observers believe that when Israel destroyed the Syrian nuclear power plant in 2007. Their planes used sophisticated cyber tactics to defeat Syrian air defenses. A series of successful systematic cyber attacks in 2008 were aimed at taking al-Qaeda websites offline. They were initiated by persons or entities unknown, though if motive is any indicator, it's very likely that it was a Western nation. In 2011, the United States contemplated but did not launch a cyber attack on Libyan anti-aircraft defenses in conjunction with its close air support of the resistance to the regime of Muammar Gaddafi. In today's lecture, we look finally at the highest level of our pyramid of conflict. This is the level where we consider a cyber war between nation-states, that is, countries with sophisticated cyber capabilities. We've yet to see an all-out cyber war in the real world, thankfully, and perhaps we never will. But as the examples I opened the lecture with indicate, nations are increasingly considering cyberspace as a separate domain for conflict. If we do have a cyber war, it is likely that the conflict will emerge as a collateral part of a true kinetic war. When and if a full-on cyber war begins, its destructive capacity will likely rival that of a physical conflict. But we can't be sure of its true scope until we actually experience one. So, what is war in the cyber realm? It has a clear legal definition in the real world, but in the cyber world there is no consensus yet on what constitutes the kind of aggression that would justify a hostile response. And if you're the leader of a nation that has just experienced a cyber attack, well, that's a big problem. In fact, the only thing we really are sure of is that some form of cyber war is inevitable. And when it does happen, we're going to look to the physical world for analogies. There is a reason that all of our words about cybersecurity are reflections of the reality in the physical world. Think, for example, of the word virus or the phrase logic bomb, a program left behind in the computer something like a mine that will explode on command. We can't help but borrow images and words from our experience in the physical world. That's the reality we are comfortable with and that we know. So in this lecture, we're going to try and think about this definitional problem. We'll try to define cyber war and think about how we will know when or if we've been attacked. 
will also ask about whether, when, and how a country can respond. So let's start at the beginning. What would be an act of war in cyberspace? Consider the following hypotheticals, all of which are reasonably realistic. Imagine that an adversary of the United States, either known or possibly unknown, disrupts the stock exchanges for two days, preventing any trading, or introduces a logic bomb into a military command and control system, disabling it, cutting off communications between the commander and the units in the field, or implants a worm that slowly corrupts and degrades data on which certain military applications rely, say, for example, by degrading global positioning system location data so that the accuracy of our weapons is affected, or probes a Pentagon computer to map its structure and identify its vulnerabilities, or disables an entire industry, say, part of the electric grid. Now, some of these, like probing the Pentagon computer, are clearly analogous to espionage in the physical or kinetic world. And we wouldn't think of them as acts of war. Others, like disrupting our military command and control system, look just like acts of war in the kinetic world. But what about that middle ground? Is leaving a logic bomb behind that slowly degrades GPS accuracy like espionage? Or is it like planting a mine in another country's harbor as a preparation for war? Is causing a brownout by degrading the electric grid an attack? We've only begun to answer these questions. For now, the Pentagon has decided that the traditional laws of armed conflict apply in cyberspace just as they do in the physical world. Though unsurprising, if not the traditional world rules, then which ones? It is by no means clear that this decision will work out, or even what it means in practice. But the Pentagon isn't waiting around to find out. In fact, America's warriors are already busy training in virtual cyber cities, getting practice in how to defend U.S. infrastructure, like our electric grid and the transportation system, against cyber attacks. Still, the questions raised by the Pentagon's definition of cyber war need to be answered. For example, is the battlefield of cyberspace limited to geographic areas of military conduct, conflict? Or does U.S. Cyber Command have authority to execute cyber military operations against adversaries wherever they may be. That makes a huge difference when, for example, Al-Qaeda websites are hosted on servers in, say, Malaysia. Are those servers military targets or not? More fundamentally, adopting the traditional laws of armed conflict defines an act of war as any act that is equivalent in kinetic effect to a military attack. Under this definition, an attack on the electric grid would be an armed attack if the cyber assault had the same effect as, say, a missile attack on the electric grid might have. The logical consequence of this analysis is also part of the Pentagon's policy, which is to authorize the U.S. military to use any weapon in its arsenal in response. After all, if an enemy attacks us with tanks, that doesn't mean we have to use tanks in response. We can use airplanes. So if an enemy attacks us with a cyber weapon, we have said that we reserve the right to answer with a real-world weapon of proportional effect. 
Now, when the policy was first publicized, the caricature headline in one press report was, Obama threatens to nuke hackers. That isn't quite right. A nuke would not be allowed, but only because it would be disproportionate, like answering a BB gun with a 500-pound bomb. But at heart, the headline does capture the broad outline of the policy. We don't have to fight back just with cyber weapons. If we accept the Pentagon's de facto definition of war, then, the fact of the matter is that as of today, the world has not seen a true cyber war. The Russian attack on Georgia is a close approximation, however. In August 2008, Russian troops fought Georgian troops regarding a disputed border area between the two countries. During the course of that conflict, a number of cyber attacks were made on Georgian internet services. A distributed denial of service, or DDoS attack, prevented the Georgian Ministry of Foreign Affairs and other official Georgian sites from using the internet to convey information about the attack to interested third parties. Remember, a DDoS attack is one that uses multiple computers and accounts to flood a computer server with messages and overload it, preventing any legitimate efforts to connect to the server. In other instances, the cyber intruders corrupted the code for various official Georgian websites, defacing them with pro-Russian messages. I'm told, though I don't read Russian, that those messages were often quite rude and scatological. In this particular conflict, the website of the Georgian president was attacked from 500 IP addresses. According to the United States Cyber Consequences Unit, which is a nonprofit research institution here in America, these attacks were actually carried out by Russian civilians, so-called patriotic hackers, who had advanced notice of Russia's military intentions and were aware of the timing of Russia's military operations. The civilians were, in turn, aided by elements of Russian organized crime in their efforts, including the Russian business network that we talked about in an earlier lecture. These Russian criminal networks, they provided access to their own network of controlled computer botnets for use in the attacks. In addition, the main social media chat room that was used to organize the attacks, that chat room had the domain name stopgeorgia.ru, where RU is for Russia. That domain name was registered to an address that's located just blocks from the headquarters of the GRU, which is the main intelligence directorate of the Russian Armed Forces. This suggests the strong possibility that Russian intelligence agents may have helped in coordinating the attacks. The attacks were effective, not only in preventing Georgia from getting its own message out to the world, but also in preventing the Georgian government from communicating with its own people in order to respond to the Russian military invasion. The cyber attacks on Georgia represent the first use of cyber weapons in a combined operation with military forces. But even in this context, it's not clear whether the attacks standing alone met the traditional definition of an armed conflict. Though highly disruptive, it's difficult to say that their effect was equivalent to that of a kinetic attack. In the end, no physical damage was done. So this is only thought of as a cyber war because it was tied to the Russian invasion. The Russian-Georgian War demonstrates the limits of our practical knowledge about cyber conflict between nation-states. Repeating a theme from an earlier lecture, in the cyber domain, 
Unlike the real world, the attacker may not be so readily identified. In the end, the critical question in a cyber war will be, who attacked us? For even though we have grave suspicions about Russian intent in the Georgian war, the reality is that we don't have conclusive identification of official Russian responsibility. In addition, we need to be cautious in defining what cyber war is. After all, what is sauce for the goose is also inevitably sauce for the gander. Some, for example, have argued that Iran might view the Stuxnet virus as an armed attack, which allows it to use military means in its self-defense. In late 2012, that fear may have become a reality. When a virus known as Shamoon was launched, it wiped out 30,000 computers used by the Saudi oil giant Aramco. And another DDoS attack took several major American online banking systems offline for several days. Most observers have tied these attacks to Iran and saw them as a response to Stuxnet. They were so significant that U.S. Secretary of Defense Leon Panetta actually gave a speech warning about an impending cyber Pearl Harbor. And so time and war wait for no man. Even while national security lawyers and scholars seek to define cyber war, the national security apparatus must move forward, developing an understanding around key practical issues. How will we fight in cyberspace? And who are we likely to fight? So let's think first about how. You may remember our discussion about the lack of distinction in cyberspace. That is, the problem that all the ones and zeros in the logic layer look alike, and you can't tell a weapon from a cookie recipe. That problem, combined with the borderless nature of the Internet, can lead to a host of almost insoluble issues regarding the use of cyber force. Consider the following sample of questions. First, International law allows the targeting of combatants who are participants in the war. Killing armed combatants is a lawful act under international law, and it's not murder. But who is a cyber combatant? Is a civilian hacker an armed combatant? How about a civilian employee with cyber responsibilities in a non-military government agency like the CIA or its Russian equivalent? And what about the unwitting individual whose computer has been hijacked? If they're combatants, then, in effect, the domain of lawful warfare is as broad and as wide as cyberspace itself. Another issue. Certain targets, like hospitals, are immune from attack under international law. But IP addresses, Internet protocol addresses, they don't come with labels that say, I am a hospital system. And most server systems are inextricably intertwined with one another. How, if at all, can a military attack ensure that it avoids damage to privileged targets? And if it can't, does that mean that all cyber attacks are illegal? Under the laws of war, combatants must carry their arms openly and be readily identified as combatants by the uniforms they wear. The main purpose of this is to allow opposing military forces to distinguish between combatants and non-combatant civilians and target only lawful combatants. Yet almost no cyber warriors wear uniforms, nor are they readily distinguishable from non-combatant civilians. Indeed, 
One of the principal tactics of a cyber warrior is to hide his actions behind the veneer of seemingly innocent civilian activity. An innocuous email, for example. Since these cyber soldiers don't abide by the laws of war, does that mean that they, like terrorists, are not entitled to, to the protections of those laws if they're identified or even captured? The laws of armed conflict also respect the rights of neutrals. World War I was, at least in part, exacerbated by Germany's violation of Belgium neutrality. In the cyber domain, however, successful attacks will almost always violate neutrality by using servers and computers that are located in non-combatant countries as a means of masking the attack. Only a fool would, for example, make a direct attack from a U.S. server to one in China. Yet, due respect for the principle of neutrality suggests that this is precisely what is currently required by international law. Apparently, lawyers in the Department of Justice, in fact, believe that network attacks on servers outside of a formal war zone require the host country's permission, and that absent the permission, the attacks are unlawful. Now, you can see why this is confusing, and why, increasingly, lawyers are being asked to manage cyber war. Whether that's a good thing or not is the next question I want to consider. The nature of cyber operations allows for the increasing centralization of command and control. For analogies to this trend, we don't need to look far. One of the least well-kept secrets in America is the CIA's operation of a covert drone campaign in the borderland between Pakistan and Afghanistan. If press reports are to be believed, the program has been successful in steadily constraining action by the core al-Qaeda leadership and slowly whittling down their numbers. One little recognized consequence of this new practical reality has been a restructuring and centralization of command and control. Because the drone program acts at a distance and because it is mostly operated from inside the United States, we've seen the development of a system where key targeting decisions are being taken by increasingly more senior officials. Indeed, it's been reported that when any significant chance of collateral damage from an attack exists, the go-no-go decision is typically being made by a general officer and is sometimes even made by the Secretary of Defense or the President. Cyber weapons, just like drones, act at a distance. They're often deployed with forethought, and they're part of a pre-planned series of military actions. As such, they are, like drones, far more likely to be controlled by more senior authority than is typical for a military engagement. It is difficult to overstress how significant this change truly is. In war, as we know it in the physical world, decisions are typically made by a commander on the scene in relatively close geographic proximity to events. One consequence of that situation is that legal judgments about proposed courses of action will be made by military attorneys who are attached to the combat units at the front and who have a situational awareness of that conflict. By contrast, when decisions about whether or not to launch a cyber weapon are made by a central authority and higher-ranking officials, we see an increasingly important role for lawyers, where there is time for a reflection lawyers are far more likely to intervene. Many observers, of course, will see this as a good thing, but it is likely to produce some odd results. 
As we noted a moment ago, Department of Justice lawyers have tentatively concluded that as a matter of law, U.S. cyber attacks must respect the neutrality of other countries, and that therefore they cannot transit through servers in neutral countries. Now, to non-lawyer technologists, this seems to elevate form over substance. We might as well say that the United States will disarm and not conduct cyber offensive operations at all. In their view, it is impossible to conduct a successful operation when neutrality is strictly respected. Thus, while there are benefits to centralizing command and control, the proximity to an unwieldy bureaucracy also poses challenges for the management of military operations when the bureaucrats are behind the front lines and they're detached from the field of battle. Let's turn now from how a cyber war might be waged to ask our second question. Who are we likely to fight in a cyber war? Or to put it another way, who are the most effective national actors in cyberspace? In a word, China. As the Department of Defense's 2010 report to Congress concluded, quote, numerous computer systems around the world, including those owned by the U.S. government, continue to be the target of intrusions that appear to have originated within the People's Republic of China. These intrusions focus on exfiltrating information, some of which could be of strategic or military utility. The skills required for these intrusions are similar to those necessary to conduct computer network attacks. Scary, huh? Indeed, China has demonstrated significant cyber capabilities in recent years. You'll remember from Lecture 4 the case of GhostNet, the intrusion that targeted the Dalai Lama and other countries in Southeast Asia. GhostNet was just one part of a vast systematic effort being made by the Chinese. Let me tell you about a few more of China's cyber incursions from the last years. And believe me, I could double the number and still not run out of stories to tell you. Titan Rain and Byzantine Hades are the formerly classified code names given by the United States government to a series of coordinated attacks on American government and industrial computer systems. The attacks began in roughly 2003, and they have in some form continued to this very day. A number of the Chinese websites that have been used as portals for Byzantine Hades intrusions were registered in China using the same postal code that is used by an electronic espionage unit of the Chinese military. According to American investigators, these programs have stolen terabytes of data, including the designs of the F-35, America's newest fighter jet from the defense contractor who's building the plane. This is also the program that got inside the computer of former U.S. Defense Secretary Robert Gates, an embarrassing incident that we talked about in an earlier lecture. A different, more technologically troubling display of Chinese capabilities occurred in April 2010, when the Internet was hijacked. Traffic on the Internet is, typically, routed through the most efficient route. Servers calculate that route based upon a a kind of call-and-response interaction with other servers. In effect, downstream servers advertise their own carrying capacity and current load, soliciting traffic. On April 8, 2010, China Telecom began broadcasting erroneous network traffic routes. As a result, American 
and other foreign servers were instructed to send Internet traffic through Chinese servers. In the end, according to the United States-China Economic and Security Review Commission, roughly 15% of the world's traffic was routed to China. This included official government traffic from the United States, as well as the traffic from any number of commercial websites. And of course, as the traffic went through China, nobody knows what happened to it. Perhaps nothing. Or perhaps it was copied and stored for later analysis. The Chinese said it was all a mistake, and they've apologized. Sometimes, the attacks are just stepping stones to bigger and better things. In December 2011, the FBI told the U.S. Chamber of Commerce that the chamber's servers had been penetrated by intrusions from China. Until the FBI told them, the chamber had no idea it had been compromised. Now, the chamber is not normally thought of as a repository for classified information. Most of its activities are done in the open as it lobbies for legislation. So this time, most analysts think that the chamber was attacked as a way of getting at other major American companies. Using the email addresses and other personal information harvested from the Chamber of Commerce, the intruders would be better able to craft a a host of sophisticated spear phishing attacks against the CEOs, CFOs, and CIOs of the Fortune 500. We may never learn how successful those follow-on attacks are, but we're sure they're coming. One of the more unusual efforts made by China appears to have been an attempt to hack the patches and get ahead of the defense. Here's what I mean by that. Typically, Microsoft and other companies release patches to known software vulnerabilities on a fixed schedule. The schedule is is so well established that some call the second Tuesday of every month Patch Tuesday because window users can expect a routine monthly patch of vulnerabilities as as an automatic download that day. To make the patches that they ship more work more effectively, Microsoft gives advance notice of the patches to a, a select group of cybersecurity companies. With proof-of-concept code that they receive in advance, those companies can prioritize and test the fixes before installing them to provide protection to their customers. But what if the hackers had advance notice of the patches? Since even the patches can be reverse-engineered, Hackers who were inside the system and had advanced notice of what patches were coming out would be well-positioned to develop their own offensive countermeasures that get around the patches before they're even installed. Something like that seems to have happened to the March 2012 Microsoft patch. The proof-of-concept code for the patches was found on a website in China before Microsoft's official patches had shipped to the security companies. Now, It may have been an error, or an insider leaking the data, or a hack from the outside. Nobody knows. Once again, however, a sophisticated operational plan that seems to have originated in China created a vulnerability in America and around the globe. Now, finally, and perhaps most chillingly, in 2012, the security firm RSA was penetrated by an intrusion that compromised the company's secure ID system. This secure ID system was, at the time, the single most common piece of security hardware in use by banks and private companies. Maybe you've seen one. It's this little token that 
periodically generates random six-digit numbers. So when you go to log into your bank or access your company's servers from off-site, in addition to your regular login, your username and your password, you're also asked to type in your six-digit number, which will be matched against the one held by the company or bank that you're trying to connect to. If they do match, you're considered authentic. And if they don't, then the company or bank thinks that your password has been compromised. So secure ID tokens are an important extra layer of security. Though details of this attack remain very unclear even now, the intruders apparently compromised the random number generation algorithm so that they would be able to infiltrate the companies that use the RSA secure ID token. Just a few weeks later, Lockheed Martin was attacked by someone using the stolen RSA data who attempted to gain remote access to their system. The attack is said to have been thwarted, but the focus on a defense contractor rather than on a bank seems a clear indication that the RSA hack was done by a sovereign nation, not by cybercriminals who would have used the data to break into bank accounts instead. China denied responsibility for the RSA hack, but of the 334 command and control servers used by the malware, 299 were located in China. In fact, to be clear, except for the one mistake that they apologize for, the Chinese have denied any role in all of the attacks we've been discussing, and also for all of the dozens of other known attacks that I haven't listed. What are we to make of these Chinese activities? How should we assess them? Are they significant threats? Should we credit the routine denials that China makes? Well, first, though it is a bit controversial to say so, I think that there is really little basis for accepting Chinese denials of awareness and responsibility. I was particularly amused by a recent propaganda error by the government. Chinese news was broadcasting a story about China's military system on TV. It was typical fare, a summary of new things that the military was doing and such. But suddenly, in the midst of the story, there was a segment on cyber war. And that segment included footage showing a computer screen. And on the screen itself, you could see cyber attack commands directing an attack against a server in the United States. Oops! Shortly after Western news outlets noticed the TV segment and translated it, the government recognized its mistake and the video was pulled from Chinese websites. In fact, the evidence is so overwhelming that, in my view, the Chinese have only the barest fig leaf of deniability. Nobody who seriously studies the issue doubts that the attacks on American systems are part of a systematic campaign that could not really occur without Chinese state approval. And what is true for China is true of other nations and non-state organizations who've demonstrated equally threatening capabilities. Russia's prowess has been discussed earlier. It resides mostly in their patriotic hackers and the criminal groups that they co-opt. In addition to the Shamoon virus we talked about a few moments ago, Iran is thought to have been responsible for a DDoS attack on American banks in September 2012, one that cut many Americans off from their online banking services. In short, there is no lack of potential enemies on the horizon. All of which leaves us with one final question. If these exploits are the ones we can identify, typically after the fact, what about the ones we're missing? By definition, we can't know what they are. 
To paraphrase former U.S. Secretary of Defense Donald Rumsfeld, they are known unknowns. But the thought is clearly a daunting one. And so we're on the horns of a dilemma, or more accurately, more than one dilemma. The laws of armed conflict are not readily translated to cyberspace. They were developed for warfare involving armies and munitions and are in the cyber domain inherently ambiguous. We have no idea, to add another question to the list, what the cyber equivalent of mutually assured destruction is. Maybe mutually assured disruption. All of this vagueness leaves us deeply unsettled. We know that cyber war is possible, but we have no idea what rules, if any, will apply. That is not a formula for a stable international regime where the rule of law prevails. It is instead a formula for the Hobbesian law of nature. In the end, while some think that cyber war is imminent, others, including me, think that cyber war with another country is neither more nor less likely than a real-world kinetic war. We may fight a cyber war with China, but only, I suspect, if we fight a real shooting war at the same time. On the other hand, it does appear that cyber espionage of the sort that China practices is rampant. But whatever you think, I hope this lecture has impressed upon you how transformative cyber war might be. It might have the same destructive effect as a physical war, but we may not know we've been attacked or who attacked us or how we are allowed to respond. And so, having now finished our survey of the dangers lurking in cyberspace, we'll turn to trying to figure out how we might address and mitigate those dangers. We'll begin in our next lecture by talking about the government's role in regulating cyberspace. I'll talk to you then. So we've just spent several lectures outlining all of the vulnerabilities in the cyber domain and identifying all of the bad actors, from criminals to other nations who might want to do harm. So the question that must be pressing in your mind is whether or not the cyber realm can be made safer, and if so, how? As we will see in the next few lectures, there are a number of ways in which society is slowly bringing order to the chaos. That may not be an altogether good thing, because with order often comes control. But we begin in this lecture exploring various ways and efforts to make cyberspace a safer place. Not perfectly safe, but safer. So today, we'll start our exploration with a look at the debate in America over government regulation of cybersecurity. Many in Congress and the executive branch are calling for the government to set minimum standards for cybersecurity and to regulate the network. Others, including me, are skeptical that would be a good idea. By the end of the lecture, you'll know enough to be able to decide for yourself whether we're missing an opportunity or exercising wise restraint. Now, the first question, of course, is a basic one. Why do some people think we need any security regulation at all? After all, we don't have regulations that say 
require you to put bars on your windows or, or locks on your doors, why do we need rules that say you have to put firewalls on your computers? The most substantial reason we might need regulation is because our national security requires it. Imagine your General Keith Alexander, who's the commander of U.S. Cyber Command at Fort Meade in Maryland. Where do you get the electricity that runs the servers you use to do cyber defense and offensive operations? You may have many on-site backup generators, but your primary source of power is a private company, Baltimore Gas and Electric. Now, if Baltimore Gas and Electric goes down for a week because of a cyber attack, that would be a great hardship for the citizens of Baltimore and the surrounding suburbs. But for Cyber Command and the National Security Agency, which is also located at Fort Meade, that would be a significant national security concern. And of course, the problem is not limited to BG&E and Cyber Command. Across the board, our military response is critically dependent on cyber capabilities for transportation, for communication, and for power. So some see the lack of private sector cyber protection as a problem that threatens our very national existence. Indeed, as Michael Chertoff, the former secretary of the Department of Homeland Security, explained in testimony that he gave to Congress in February 2012, quote, left to their own devices, few private companies would invest more in securing their cyber assets than the actual value of those assets. Yet in an interconnected and interdependent world, the failure of one part of the network can have devastating collateral and cascading effects across a wide range of physical, economic, and social systems. Thus, the marketplace is likely to fail in allocating the correct amount of investment to manage risk across the breadth of the networks on which our society relies. In October 2012, when he spoke about the topic, U.S. Secretary of Defense Leon Panetta echoed that sentiment, saying that America was facing an imminent cyber Pearl Harbor. That, in a nutshell, is why some U.S. senators were so anxious to pass a bill regulating network cybersecurity, and why President Obama wanted to issue an executive order for cybersecurity. So what are we to make of this argument? Uh, it certainly seems persuasive. If the threat of a cyber Pearl Harbor is real, who would not want to take any step, including regulation, to prevent it? After all, if the threat of economic disruption on a grand enough scale is real, then the U.S. government would be disabled from responding to external threats or at least severely dissuaded. For example, if China gets into a conflict with Taiwan, then the U.S. might be prevented from intervening militarily by virtue of the vulnerability of our critical infrastructure. Or alternatively, the NSA might be preemptively disabled by a, a takedown of the BG&E electric grid. Note, though, that this entire line of thought equates vulnerability with risk. And yes, vulnerabilities exist, even for catastrophic critical infrastructure attacks. And the consequence of such an attack would be severe. But vulnerability isn't risk. You have to find someone who actually wants to implement a threat and has the capability to do so. Right now, 
there aren't a lot of someones out there. Just reflect for a moment on what it took to make the Stuxnet virus operational. According to public reports, which I hasten to add are the only basis for my knowledge, the creators of Stuxnet had a detailed insider's knowledge of the way in which the Siemens controllers worked. This suggests either active assistance from the company or a significant intrusion there in the first instance. That knowledge was not, however, enough. A broad-scale cyber espionage program, active over the course of several years, known as FLAME, was also required to closely map the Iranian cyber systems to discover the precise contours of the vulnerabilities to be exploited. Mock-ups of the centrifuge system had to be built, using, allegedly, centrifuges received from Libya, back when Libya was trying to be nice to the West, and then tests run to prove the viability of the virus. Four separate zero-day exploits had to be identified and incorporated, a wildly profligate use of zero days. And once the program was ready, then some type of espionage, a human agent, social engineering, where someone was tricked into putting the malware on through, say, a spear phishing attack. Some of that was necessary to get the virus inside the Iranian system. Plus, of course, someone had to have the the cyber Jedi skills to write the code in the first place. This is most assuredly not the stuff of a small-scale hacker group or terrorist cell. It's the product of a nation-state. So, do we really think China's going to do that to us when we can do it to them in return? I don't mean to sound overly sanguine about the prospect of a catastrophic cyber intrusion on critical infrastructure. Clearly, the vulnerabilities do exist. Indeed, in 2007, the U.S. National Research Council said that high-level threats from sophisticated adversaries could result in a digital Pearl Harbor that would require a very quick and active response from our IT vendors and users. But what is striking, at least to me, is that this prediction was made in 2007, which is almost three generations ago in terms of cyber processing power. And yet, nothing that bad has happened. And the first person to speak about a cyber Pearl Harbor that I'm aware of was the Clinton-era director of the CIA, John Deutsch, back in 1996. That's an awful long time to be on the hook for Pearl Harbor. Of course, we must be painfully aware of all of the people who've gone wrong in predicting technological developments. The folks who said planes would never fly or that battleships would never be sunk by airplanes. And the equally dismal record of those predicting future political developments, including the prediction that the Soviet Union would never fall. But we can only work with what we have in front of us. And the bottom line on the cyber threat is this. In my judgment, today, right now, the only actors capable of even thinking about a large-scale crippling cyber assault are other nation-states. The likelihood that they will do so is roughly the same as the chances of a large-scale kinetic war, meaning a war with guns, bombs, planes, and the like. If you think we're going to get into a shooting war with China anytime soon, then, by all means, be afraid of a cyber war. But if you think that the chance of a kinetic conflict with nation-state peers is slim, then I think so too is the chance of a cyber war. 
And for now, today, the chaotic actors who we might fear more, like anonymous or, or terrorists, well, they just don't have these capabilities. They are likely to get them sometime in the future, but exactly when they will is deeply and radically uncertain. It won't be tomorrow. It may not be for five years, and it might not be for 20. And so, without a better case for critical infrastructure catastrophe as a a realistic possibility and not just a theoretical vulnerability, some are not persuaded that a cyber regulatory system is needed. Now, there are also other reasons to think regulation might be necessary, more traditional ones relating to market failures and economics. To understand this part of the problem, let me start with a a short game. You don't need anything to play except your brain. It's actually a multi-part game, so here's the first part. I want you to think in your mind about everything you personally do in cyberspace. Think about how you use the internet to collect information, how you Google, how your iPhone tells you where the nearest Starbucks is. Think about how you use cyberspace to communicate all the emails you send, and the the video conferences you may do using Skype. Think of how you post your status on Facebook and upload your pictures to Flickr. Now think about the commerce that you do on the internet, the books you buy from Amazon, the shoes you get from Zappos. And now we add in some of the other stuff you do, the political campaigns that you work on, the hobbies you talk about, the news you get, and the doctors you consult. And if you're on the cutting edge and have, say, one of those wired homes, think about those uses, like the, the ability to turn on the heat from a distance before you get home. Think of all those things that you do in cyberspace. And now imagine giving it all up. How much money would it take today, right now, right here, cash on the barrelhead, for me to convince you to completely give up cyberspace? This is for real. This is not give it up a little and get the information from your wife or your brother or your friend. This is really and truly give it up completely. If you want to make a phone call, use a landline phone. If you want to buy a book, you have to go to a a brick and mortar bookstore, assuming you can find one today. To buy theater tickets, you actually have to go to the movie theater. So how much money would it take? What would you take? Would you accept a million dollars? How about five million? Now, I often ask this question of students, and the average amount that seems to be something like two million dollars. Now, your value may be more or less. The lowest I ever heard was $500,000, and the highest was a pure refusal for any amount. But let's use two million dollars as our number. And now, let's assume you're 40 years old, and that you're going to live until you're 90, so for another 50 years. That makes the math easy for me. And that gives us an annualized value of 40, 40,000, of $40,000 a year. That's what economists would say is your utility valuation of internet access. So now here's the second part of the question. How much do you spend annually to get that access? If you're like me, you spend maybe $50 a month for your DSL line. That's the American average, or $600 a year. Add in maybe another $1,000 a year for your cell phone. 
talk about the value proposition of cyberspace. You spend $1,600 a year for something that you value at $40,000. That's pretty good, right? And now the next question, the third part. How much do you spend protecting that investment? Maybe you have a firewall system that costs you $40 a year, if that. So in some way, you personally think that your chances of being subject to an intrusion are less than one in a thousand each year, $40 over 40,000. By now, in this series of lectures, you've probably figured out that you're kidding yourself. And now the closing part. Let's change the perspective from you personally to all the public and private corporations and entities in our lives. Consider all the things that they do in cyberspace from a, a business perspective. They keep records of government activity, they communicate with their constituents, they keep track of projects, schedule meetings, hold on to the personal data of their taxpayers or customers, they follow the markets, and their engineers use it to operate the wastewater treatment plant. School principals send out letters to parents and post grades, Zappo sends shoes, and Amazon sends you books, while Walmart tracks all of its thousands of products. If they were forced to do without the internet, the engineers would actually have to be at the facility, and taxes would have to be assessed and collected by regular mail. Meter readers would go back to paper records, books would be sold in bookstores, and operational costs would skyrocket. Yet, businesses also systematically underinvest in internet security. Why is that? Because at least in the short term, it saves them money. They don't need to take the cost of that underinvestment into account. It's what economists call an externality. That's when private goods cause public harms. In other words, when something I do privately affects you. A classic example might be if I kept a dog in my house. His barking may protect me, but if it disrupts your sleep, that's an externality. These external effects can be either negative, if my dog keeps you from sleeping, or positive, if he protects the entire neighborhood from burglars. Many cybersecurity activities have positive external effects. By securing my own server or a laptop against intrusion, for example, I benefit others on the network, since it makes it harder for my computer to be hijacked into a botnet and used to attack other people. Indeed, almost every security measure performed on any part of cyberspace improves the overall cybersecurity by raising the costs of attack. But cybersecurity also has negative external effects in at least two ways. The first is what we call a diversion effect. Most methods of protections, like firewalls, have the effect of diverting attacks from one target to another. Any improvement in one actor's security is equivalent to a decrease in security for systems that are not as well protected. So if I have a really good intrusion detection system and you don't, guess who the hackers go after? The second negative effect is a pricing problem that reflects the failure of the private market. Sometimes the price of a product doesn't have all of the costs of the product built in. A classic example is air pollution, where the long-term costs from adding carbon to the atmosphere aren't part of the cost of the car or of the gasoline used to drive it. When costs like that aren't included in the price of a product, 
the product is, in some sense, too cheap. And somebody else winds up paying the costs in the end. The costs of cybersecurity failures are just like that. When software fails to prevent an intrusion, or when a service provider fails to stop a malware attack, Microsoft and Verizon, they don't bear the expense of fixing the problem. Instead, the end user who owns the computer pays the cost to clean his machine or recover his stolen identity. In general, and there are a few exceptions, no mechanism currently exists by which the software manufacturer or the internet service provider can be made responsible for the costs of those failures. In this way, security of the broader system of the entire internet is a classic market externality whose true costs are not adequately recognized in the prices charged and the costs experienced by individual actors. And that's why some people think regulation is necessary. If the market isn't functioning, then they say it needs to be fixed. So let's say you're persuaded that regulation is necessary, either for national security reasons or for reasons of economics. Just how would that work? Who might be regulated? And who would set the standards? And how much would compliance cost? Of course, the devil is in the details, and there are many, many possible variations. So let's make some middle-of-the-road assumptions and see what effects they would have. Who's covered? Well, as you might guess from our discussion so far, the basic idea is that any new regulatory system would cover only cyber infrastructure that's connected to physical systems where damage to the physical system would have a major impact. For example, causing a catastrophic interruption of life-sustaining services, catastrophic economic damage, or a severe degradation of our national security capabilities. There's no value in requiring small and unimportant systems to comply with an expensive federal requirement. So how will we know which systems are the important ones? Well, one model would be to ask the Secretary of the Department of Homeland Security to decide. She would determine which sectors, like, say, the electric grid, are critical, and which, say, perhaps the financial sector, have already taken significant steps to counter an attack. Others, like the agriculture sector, they might not be vulnerable because they don't depend on cyber systems that much. After that, the secretary might decide which are the most critical systems within a particular sector. Nobody knows how to do that right now. We can't say, for example, exactly which electrical systems are the most important. We might guess that larger electrical grids will be more critical than smaller ones based on the the size of the population they serve, but perhaps some small system might support a, a vital industry or a critical switching station. So we'd have to do an analysis and make some decisions. And of course, to be fair, owners would have to be able to challenge their designation as critical through a, a civil action if, in court if they wished. So what would this mean? Well, one thing is clear. As James Lewis of the Center for Strategic and International Studies has noted, the entire enterprise of creating a protected list, by definition, creates an unprotected list of systems that might be less secure. This is, quote, a bit like writing a targeting list for our opponents, close quote. I don't know how you avoid that problem unless you expand this regulatory structure to cover all cyber systems in America. But the reality is we can't protect all systems all the time. 
Still, once we know what to protect, we'll have to face the question of how to decide how to protect it. One way might be for the federal government to set protection standards directly. Almost nobody thinks that's a good idea. The government is too slow in writing rules and not nearly as innovative in developing defenses as the private sector is. So a better way would be to set up a regulatory structure that's based on performance standards instead of regulatory mandates. What's the difference between the two? Well, under performance standards, you're given a goal to achieve. Say, prevent 95% of cyber attacks. And then you're left to your own devices to achieve it. In a regulatory structure, the government tells you what to do exactly. For example, install a firewall, because that is how it thinks you should achieve the objective. To establish performance standards, the government would have to consult with the private sector to learn about performance requirements that they've already developed. Once that review of practices, regulations, and performance requirements is completed, we would have to decide whether or not the existing rules are adequate. If they're not, then someone would have to develop sector-specific, risk-based cybersecurity performance requirements for the owners of the covered critical infrastructure. In other words, the standards for the electric grid might be different than those for, say, the transportation network. By and large, this system of guidance and standards rather than regulatory direction makes real sense. As Stuart Baker, former Assistant Secretary for Policy at the Department of Homeland Security, said in February 2012, quote, this broad structure is meant to solve the problem of how to regulate a fast-moving and complex technology. It does so by leaving as much discretion as possible in the hands of the private sector. This doesn't call for government simply to tell industry what security technologies to adopt. The point of the process is to identify the risks, warn industry of those risks, and challenge industry to develop standards and adopt measures that industry finds best adapted to the risks. So all that seems quite reasonable and even plausible. So what's not to like about this proposal? Here's what some of the critics say. First, and wholly apart from questions about whether the performance requirements will be any good, the main criticism has been that implementing them will simply cost too much. That's what the U.S. Chamber of Commerce thinks. The truth, I think, is that nobody has any real idea. The problem with performance standards as an approach, which otherwise is far superior to the command and control system of rules, is that the legislation is really just an agreement to agree. It's a command to begin a process that identifies standards of cybersecurity protection. Nobody knows what those standards might be in the end. And until the standards are defined, nobody can really know how owners will achieve them. And thus, nobody can reasonably predict what the costs of compliance will be. They may be cheap and easy. If all it takes, for example, is to air gap some critical systems, that is, disconnect them from the Internet. Or they may be expensive as heck if the only way to achieve compliance is to deploy a suite of hyper-sophisticated, costly intrusion detection and prevention systems. Given this uncertainty, in the end, the commitment to a performance standard is a, a bit like going out on a blind date. You know you're in the game, but you can't be exactly sure how the game's going to turn out. Another significant criticism is that the regulatory process is slow. 
if we're going to have a process, how is that process going to play out? And how long will it take? Federal rulemaking is very long and cumbersome. We don't have time here to talk about the details of the process, but the bottom line is that any new cybersecurity measure might not be in place until eight to ten years after enactment of a law. Now, that's the worst-case scenario, but even at its fastest pace, significant government regulatory initiatives like this one would take at least two to three years. Now, realize that processing speed for computers doubles every 18 to 24 months. That means that the regulatory process in America is too slow for the cyber environment. Critics say that the standards we develop are guaranteed to be at least one or two computer generations behind, out of date before they're even published. And while we're waiting for the standards to be developed, innovators and investors would be frozen because nobody wants to invest in a product that the government might reject as inadequate. If you take this view of the regulatory timeline, well, then the game just isn't worth the candle. Finally, some technologists say that the standards would just be ineffective. The ultra-sophisticated cyber attacks that could disable critical infrastructure are not going to be stopped by the adoption of best practices and standards, they say. These attacks are non-standard attacks that overcome defenses like intrusion detection, firewalls, and passwords. So, according to the technologists, the regulatory solutions we're proposing won't solve the gravest problems we're actually trying to address. I'll give the final word in this debate to Jack Goldsmith, a professor at Harvard University. He makes the case for regulation in the following terms. Quote, Cybersecurity is an enormous challenge because most of the targets and the channels of the attack are owned by the private sector. And we do not trust government regulation of the private sector, especially in the technology and communications context. But the government is the only institution with the resources and the incentives to ensure that the critical infrastructure on which we all depend is secure. And we must find a way for it to meet its responsibilities. Any particular proposal might not be ideal, but the issue should be how to improve the proposal not whether the government should have a serious role in ensuring that the private sector adequately protects critical infrastructure. To this, one can only add a final question. If not government regulation, then what? The externalities of cybersecurity are altogether too real. If we don't want government involved, how do we fix them? There are any number of possibilities, but let's end with one novel idea to turn Shakespeare on his head. And first thing we do, let's send in the lawyers. Here's what I mean. Right now, today, there is no liability rule for cybersecurity failures. As we discussed, when you buy a Microsoft software product or a Cisco router or any other commercial IT product, you sign away your right to sue for failures. As a result, Microsoft is not legally responsible if there are bugs in the code. What if that were not the case? Some think that's just what we need. They argue that liability would make IT providers more careful. They would have to exercise a reasonable degree of care in writing code or making their products or be subject to suit. They pay, they buy insurance to pay for damages if the suits were successful. And the insurers would, in turn, 
require the IT providers to meet certain standards before they were insured. That's how liability works in a host of commercial industries today, ranging from cars to ladders. So why not software and hardware systems? Of course, this would be a big change. It might stifle innovation, for example. Fearful of lawsuits, cyber companies would be cautious and development could slow to a crawl. And for consumers, it might mean significantly higher prices as we pay the real costs for better cybersecurity. In any event, thinking more deeply about this type of proposal requires a great deal more time than we have today, I'm afraid. But I offer it as a thought experiment for you to consider. Well, there you have it. Both sides of the regulatory debate. And it's a terribly vital question. If you value security, we need government regulation. But it will clearly come at the cost of increasing government control of the network, a cost that I personally think is too high. But what do you think? Is the government the only entity we can trust to spend enough money on cybersecurity? Or will government regulation just mess up a good thing? In our next lecture, we will look at another possible source of rules and regulations, this time the international community. International regulation will look very different from the domestic U.S. regulatory system, and it poses a different set of questions. But it might be just as effective, or maybe ineffective, as the U.S. system of cybersecurity. We'll think about that next time. Until then, thanks for joining me. Cyberspace is a domain without distinct borders, where action at a distance is the new reality. In effect, almost every computer in America is a potential border entry point. This reality makes international engagement on cybersecurity essential. Even more notably, the sheer scale of the network demands a global approach. The Internet is as large a human enterprise as has ever been created. More than 2.5 billion users send more than 88 quadrillion emails annually. Of course, most of that is spam, but still, that's an immense number. And they register a new domain name with the Internet Corporation for Assigned Names and Numbers, also known as ICANN, every second of every day. The scope of the Internet is as broad as the globe, and that makes the scope of the Internet governance question equally broad. Who sets the rules for the Internet and what rules they set is a question that can only be answered on an international basis. This, then, is a fundamental question, perhaps even the fundamental question of cybersecurity today. How should a fractured international community respond to the phenomenon of the network. In this lecture, we're going to look at the international responses. We will start by talking about the existing Internet governance and describe the dynamic that is leading to change. 
Then we will assess some of the barriers to effective international internet governance. And by the end, I think you'll agree that the current structure, with all of its flaws, is likely better than any of the alternatives. Let me start with a cybersecurity scenario that shows you what makes cyberspace so inherently international. Let's assume that you've thought long and hard about our last lecture on regulation, and you've decided that a regulatory system is necessary. That's hardly the end of the story, because that's only for America. Much of American critical infrastructure is interconnected with international counterparts. For example, our electric grids are actually aligned vertically so that Eastern Canada and the Eastern United States are like a a joint operation. Likewise in the West. Texas, as always, goes its own way. When the Great Northeast Blackout happened in 2003, its effects rolled up from Ohio into Ontario and then back into Michigan, recognizing no border at all. As we've already seen, the vulnerability of the electric grid is one of the principal factors driving cybersecurity concerns. The SCADA systems that control the grid are considered highly vulnerable. Indeed, in March 2012, a U.S. Senate cyber exercise involved a simulated attack on the electric grid in New York City. But New York's retail electricity provider, Con Edison, gets a lot of its electricity from Canadian companies like Hydro-Quebec. How stupid would America feel if, say, the following events took place? The NSA, through sources and methods, uncovers a significant skate of vulnerability. Using the newly promulgated authorities of the sort being considered for implementation in America, NSA shares that information with Con Edison, who spends significant resources patching the vulnerability. Six months later, the lights go out in New York because a malicious actor exploits a nearly identical vulnerability in the SCADA system at Hydro-Quebec, causing a cascading blackout in the entire Northeast Corridor. Nobody ever told Hydro-Quebec about the vulnerability. And this information-sharing hypothetical can be broadened to a regulatory hypothetical. How useful is it for the U.S. Department of Homeland Security to promulgate new security standards for U.S. critical infrastructure if Canada doesn't follow suit? At a minimum, should Canadian companies be part of the conversation? And if that's true for Canadian power generation, what other critical systems are international in nature? So with that in mind, let's step back a bit and get a historical perspective. One has the clear sense that in the 1970s, when the Internet was born, the various sovereign nations of the world really didn't think much about the innovation. By and large, they systematically ignored it, and they let it grow on its own with only relatively unstructured sets of governing authority. And then, sometime around the turn of the century, the nations of the world suddenly looked up and recognized that the Internet had become this this immense entity possibly the largest human enterprise in existence, and that it had a vast influence and power. The Internet could be used to change governments or spread culture. It could run nuclear power plants and fight wars. With that realization, sovereign nations became quickly and intensely interested in the Internet. The result is a trend towards the re-sovereignization of cyberspace. 
or what Chris Demchak and Pete Dombrowski of the U.S. Naval College call the rise of a cybered Westphalian age. That is, an age in which nations, sovereign nations, regain control of the Internet. The reference, of course, is to the Peace of Westphalia in 1648, which more or less defines our current system of nation-state international governance. And so the question is, who, if anyone, should control the Internet? Will it be separate sovereign nations? Will it be the UN? Or non-governmental organizations like ICANN? Or perhaps a series of binational or multilateral groups? For America, this question poses a real challenge. Some think it is critical that we protect American interests and maintain American freedom of action. By contrast, others favor the development of a multilateral norms that preserve the openness of the Internet while relying on supranational organizations like treaty groups or the UN to manage cybersecurity problems. The choice is of truly profound significance, perhaps more so than any other question to be addressed in the cyber domain. In one direction may lie authoritarian state control. In another, chaos, where bad actors reign. Can we perhaps find a way to, to thread the needle and manage to maximize both security and freedom without severely compromising either? Today's Internet is controlled, to the extent anyone can be said to control it, by non-governmental organizations, or NGOs. We've already talked about one organization that is partly in charge of a portion of the Internet. Back in the lecture on identity, we discussed the Internet Corporation for Assigned Names and Numbers, or ICANN. ICANN is a nonprofit organization that sets the rules for creating and distributing domain names. Today, ICANN has a global constituency, registering new domain names every day. You will recall, however, that some think that it's an American creation, and they don't trust it. Just as ICANN is the international organization that runs the program for assigning domain names, another non-governmental organization, the Internet Engineering Task Force, or IETF, is responsible in an indirect way for developing the technical aspects of the computer code and protocols that drive the Internet. In other words, the actual rules for how the cyber domain works are set by the IETF, which is an open international community of network designers, operators, vendors, and researchers, all concerned with the evolution of the Internet's architecture and the smooth operation of the Internet. This community sets the technical standards, which in the end become the de facto operating requirements for any activity in cyberspace. Put another way, the IETF's self-described mission is to quote, make the Internet work better. But it quickly notes that it's an engineering group. So what it means by better is more technically effective, not better in some metaphysical sense. The IETF is a self-organized group that considers technical specifications for the Internet. Anyone may join, even you. And the group's proposals, or decisions not to make proposals, are the product of a rough consensus. The IETF has no enforcement function at all. Anyone is free to disregard the technical standards it sets. 
but they do so at their own peril. Because of the openness, inclusiveness, and nonpartisan nature of its endeavors, IETF standards are or have become the gold standard for Internet engineering. In addition to the standard-setting function, IETF also identifies lesser standards, known as best current practices, that are more in the nature of good advice than operating requirements. Given the near universality of IETF standards and practices, anyone who chooses not to follow the standards develops risks of ineffective connection to the broader network. And so, even without a single means of forcing people to follow its dictates, the IETF, in effect, sets the rules of the road for the Internet's technical functions. The international regime of NGO Internet governments works pretty effectively, but there are some who doubt its neutrality. Others worry that an NGO system is a threat to nation-state power. For example, despite requests from several countries, the IETF has refused to set an encryption standard for Internet traffic that would help governments monitor criminal or subversive Internet traffic. This has led sovereign nations to think of ways to, to reassert their authority. So let's consider four non-NGO alternatives to Internet governance. Isolation, international competition, multilateral agreements, and an international organization. As we'll soon see, None of them is particularly attractive, leaving many, including me, to think that the status quo of NGO control is the least bad alternative. One method that some countries have chosen is isolation, to attempt to cut themselves off from the Internet or censor traffic arriving at their cyber borders. The most notorious example is China's attempt to construct a Great Firewall, to keep Internet traffic out of the country. China conducts an active effort to suppress adverse news on the Internet, with more than 300,000 Internet monitors engaged in the process. These monitors closely watch domestic postings on chat rooms and Twitter accounts and quickly update the government's data screening programs to intercept information. For example, a search for the words Tiananmen Square on Google from a computer in China will simply return a null result. News of pro-democracy movements outside of China is also suppressed. And in late 2012, when the New York Times reported on the extraordinary wealth of some of China's rulers, that information too was blocked from the general population. As a result of some of this, the recent unrest in the Middle East seems to be unable to find traction in China. The instinct to regulate is not, however, limited to authoritarian regimes. Even liberal Western countries like Australia have proposed restrictions on Internet traffic, albeit for reasons that some people would find more legitimate, like limiting the spread of child pornography. Or consider another example of isolation, this from a relatively small nation, Belarus. According to the U.S. Library of Congress, on December 21, 2011, the Republic of Belarus published Law Number 317-3. The law imposes restrictions on visiting and or using foreign websites by Belarusian citizens and residents, 
enforced by the Belarus Internet Service Providers. It also requires that all companies and individuals who are registered as entrepreneurs in Belarus use only domestic Internet domains for providing online services, conducting sales, or even exchanging email messages. In addition, the owners and administrators of Internet cafes or other places that offer access to the Internet might be found guilty of violating this law and fined, and their businesses might be closed if users of Internet services provided by those places are found visiting websites located outside of Belarus. And if such behavior of the clients was not properly identified, recorded, and reported to the authorities. Boy, talk about a Westphalian response to the borderless Internet. Now, instead of the isolation approach, we might leave the governance of the Internet to the nations of the world to sort out in competition with one another. But when nation states get into the act, their institutional interests often lead to conflict rather than cooperation. Even Western nations sometimes wind up in conflict because they can't agree on the right course of action. One of the best examples of this is the critical issue identified by the phrase data sovereignty. At its core, the question is, whose law controls the data that is accessed and transmitted via the Internet? Answering that question is a pretty significant challenge. The question of control is is not a new one. Issues of data sovereignty have been around since the first bits and bytes of data were transferred to cheaper offshore data storage facilities. But the transition to a broader Internet-based model has greatly exacerbated the problem. When a customer uses cloud data storage, that is, storing his data on a server in the Internet rather than on his own laptop, he outsources data storage requirements to a third party. The service provider owns the equipment and is responsible for housing, running, and maintaining it. And those servers can be anywhere. In the United States, in Europe, in Russia, or in a smaller third world country. When the customer is a private sector company, the transition to this cloud storage and processing services model creates difficult jurisdictional issues. Whose law is to be applied? The law of the country where the customer created the data? The law of the country or several countries where the servers are maintained? Or the law of the home country where the data storage provider is headquartered? At a minimum, Customers need to exercise caution and get concrete legal advice before transferring any data offshore. There is, today, no international standard that governs the question of data sovereignty. Nor is any institution, like, say, the United Nations, likely to sponsor an agreement of this nature in the near future. Rather, disputes about the control of data are resolved on a case-by-case basis, often turning on geography and or economic factors that underlie the problem. The fundamental factor that is likely to determine the resolution of the dispute is the physical location of the server. Let's take two recent examples as a way of making that theoretical discussion seem more concrete. In one case, the United States began demanding that Swiss banks provide it information on American overseas accounts to be used for enhanced tax collection purposes. Because the Swiss banks 
had to have a physical presence in the United States in order to be effective in the international financial marketplace, they had to yield to American law. In the other case, when American Treasury officials sought bank transaction information in order to track terrorist finances around the globe, they were denied access to that information. Why? Because there, the data was located on servers in Belgium, where European law applied. The lesson here is that the Internet has a real-world physical presence with its fiber-optic transmission lines and server farms. Every data storage facility is located somewhere. And when that somewhere is not in the United States, American companies run the risk that the data stored overseas will be subject to the sovereign control of the country where the data is located. That's probably tolerable and manageable for a private company, but maybe not for the U.S. government. Should our tax data be stored overseas, for example? And for individuals like you who use cloud services, you don't really have a choice. If you use a cloud provider like Google for your email, you have no real idea where your data is. Perhaps that won't matter to you, but someday it might. Your data could wind up in a tug of war between two or more competing countries, and you may have no say at all in who ultimately gets control over it. But if Internet governance via international competition seems unappealing, the prospects for a multilateral response are no more promising. Consider how the multilateral impulse has begun to drive negotiations over a cyber warfare convention. For years, the United States resisted Russian blandishments to begin negotiations over a cyber warfare convention akin to the chemical warfare convention. The Russian model would outlaw certain types of cyber attacks, say, on civilian targets like the electric grid. At its core, this seems like a reasonable objective. The principal American objection has been that a cyber treaty, unlike, say, a ballistic missile treaty, is inherently unverifiable. In other words, in a world where weapons cannot be identified and counted, and where attribution is difficult, if not impossible, how could any country be assured that others were abiding by the terms of the agreement? Beyond verifiability, there is also a question of enforceability. Those who are skeptics of a cyber warfare convention point, for example, to the provisions of the 1899 Hague Convention, which prohibited the aerial bombardment of civilian targets. We know how well that worked out. The commitment to withhold bombing of civilian targets did not survive the World War II Blitz of London or the firebombing of Dresden, not to mention the nuclear targeting of Hiroshima and Nagasaki. There's therefore good reason to doubt that a prohibition on targeting, say, electric grids would be actually sustainable in a truly significant conflict. One interesting note is to contrast the Russian eagerness for a cyber war treaty with their unwillingness to negotiate over a cyber crime treaty. The political realist in me sees this as perfectly understandable. Russia benefits from having an unregulated criminal element to which it can turn for cyber assistance in times of crisis, as they did in the Russia-Georgia war, which we discussed in Lecture 8. But they would benefit from a cyber war treaty because it might restrain the growth of American cyber power 
that they fear. Now, notwithstanding these concerns, in 2009, the United States abandoned its position and agreed to discussions with Russia and other leading cyber nations under the auspices of a UN group of experts. Now, so far, little has come of those conversations. The principal reason for this lack of progress is that the proposed treaty comes with some additional baggage because many of the other nations of the world see the domain of cyber conflict as much broader than we do here in the West. Non-Western states view the cyber domain less as a means of communication and more as a means of control, a viewpoint they want to import into any global treaty that might be adopted. Consider the International Information Security Agreement that's been written between the Shanghai Cooperation Organization nations. That's China, Kazakhstan, Kyrgyzstan, Russia, Tajikistan, and Uzbekistan. Under that agreement, state security and state control over information technologies and threats is permitted. In the view of these SCO nations, the major threats to their own sovereignty are the dominant position in the information space of Western nations and the, quote, dissemination of information harmful to the social political systems as well as spiritual, moral, and cultural spheres of other states, end quote. In other words, they want to enshrine cyber censorship as an approved practice under international law. Let's pause here for a moment and think about censorship and Internet freedom. The United States' position on Internet freedom has been somewhat conflicted. After all, freedom to use the Internet for political purposes often comes at the cost of decreased security on the network. But by and large, we've come to see freedom of expression on the Internet as a fundamental good. That's why Secretary of State Hillary Clinton emphasized that, quote, those who disrupt the free flow of information in our society or any other pose a threat to our economy, our government, and our civil society. Indeed, as a symbol of our view that freedom of expression is critical, the United States is actually leading efforts to develop the technology for a shadow Internet, one that can be deployed independent of the main backbone of the network. What it is, essentially, is a technical means of allowing users to bypass the landline and fiber optic backbone of the network and correct connect directly to it via satellite connections. These types of connections are significantly harder to block. This new technology would, in effect, create an internet in a suitcase, and it would enable dissidents to avoid the censorship of repressive authoritarian countries. So what do you think? Do human beings have a fundamental right to have access to the internet? How you view the question may very well drive your assessment of the right structure for the international governance of the Internet. Indeed, if you think access is a fundamental right, you'll be unalterably opposed to the new cybered Westphalia. Vinton G. Cerf thinks that the answer is clearly no. People don't have a right to Internet access. And he ought to know. After all, Cerf is one of the famous fathers of the Internet and currently serves as the chief internet evangelist for Google. He is one of the grand old men of the network, if any endeavor that is as young as the internet can be said to have grand old men. According to Cerf, 
the right way to think about technology is as an enabler of rights, not as the right itself. Human rights, he says, quote, must be among the things we as humans need in order to lead healthy, meaningful lives, like freedom from torture or freedom of conscience. It is a mistake to place any particular technology in this exalted category, since over time, we will end up valuing the wrong things. After all, 150 years ago, having a horse might have been an essential enabler. 50 years ago, a, a car. The internet, like any technology, is a means to an end, Surf maintains, not the end itself. But others disagree. For example, the United Nations Special Rapporteur on the Promotion and Protection of the Right to a Freedom of Opinion and Expression is of the view that a complete denial of access to the internet is a violation of international law. Quote, cutting off users from internet access, regardless of the justification provided, is disproportionate and thus a violation of the International Covenant on Civil and Political Rights. End quote. The rapporteur views the denial of internet access as an unacceptable means of controlling freedom of expression and limiting dissent. Set against the backdrop of the Arab Spring, there's a certain force to his concerns. So, if the Westphalian model leads to conflict, and if the multilateral model involves disagreements over fundamental values that can't be squared, why not go whole hog and create an international institution to run the internet? Alas, that option too is problematic. As we've said, the architecture of the internet has been defined for years by two NGO organizations, the IETF and ICANN. Both are nonpartisan and professional, but their policymaking is highly influenced by nations that are technologically reliant on the internet and have contributed the most to its development and growth. In other words, one reason the internet is the way it is is because of who its parents are, so to speak. In essence, liberal Western democracies. As a consequence, America has an influential role in those organizations. Consider, for example, the wish of some non-Western nations to enshrine cyber censorship in international law. Reflecting back, this is one of the reasons that some national governments see NGO control of the Internet as a threat. The IETF is very unlikely to adopt technical standards to allow the easy implementation of a censorship regime, something that authoritarian nations very much want to see built into the Internet. Many in the world see Western influence over IETF and ICANN as problematic. The International Telecommunication Union, or ITU, which dates back to 1865 but is now a part of the UN, has been proposed as a better model for Internet governance. Transferring authority to the ITU, or a similar organization, is seen as a means of opening up the control of the Internet into a more conventional international process that dismantles what some see as the current position of global dominance of U.S. national interests. In the ITU, like most United Nations institutions, a one-nation-one-vote rule applies, a prospect that would certainly diminish Western influence on Internet governance. Indeed, some argue that giving the ITU a role in Internet governance 
is no different from the role that the World Customs Organization has in setting shipping standards or the International Civil Aviation Organization has in setting aviation traffic rules. To some degree, that may be true. On the other hand, aviation communication frequency requirements and standard shipping container sizes are not fraught with political significance in the same way that the Internet has become. Rather, those institutions succeed precisely because they manage the mundane technical aspects of a highly specialized industry. They would be ill-suited to provide broadly applicable content regulation for a world-girding communication system of the sort that China and the SCO countries would advocate. To be sure, it might be theoretically feasible for the ITU to restrict itself to technical questions of the sort the IETF addresses, but as we've already seen, those technical questions of encryption, attribution, and content blocking are riddled with political implications. That's why some fear that a transition to the ITU would run the risk of politicizing an already contentious domain even further. At bottom, however, the preference for ICANN over the ITU is not just about national interests. It's also, more fundamentally, about the contrast between ICANN's general adherence to a deregulated market-driven approach and the turgid, ineffective process of the international public regulatory sector. Recall our discussion in the last lecture about the challenges from the slow pace of American regulatory and policy apparatus. The problem will, if anything, be exacerbated in the international sphere. Given the scale of the problem, it is likely that the mechanisms for multinational cooperation are too cumbersome, hierarchical, and slow to be of much use in the development of international standards. Acceptable behavior on the Internet mutates across multiple dimensions at a pace that far outstrips the speed of the policy-making apparatus within the U.S. government already, and the international system is immeasurably slower. Indeed, some are reasonably concerned that there is no surer way to kill the economic value of the Internet than to let the U.N. run it. And so, though there is a real intellectual appeal to the idea of an international governance system to manage an international entity like the Internet, the prognosis of a cyber Westphalian age, lightly controlled by NGOs such as ICANN and IETF, is almost certainly the more realistic. We are likely to see the United States make common cause with trustworthy allies and friends around the globe to establish cooperative mechanisms that yield strong standards of conduct while forging engagement with multilateral organizations and authoritarian sovereigns. This doesn't mean, however, that there won't be conflicts over control of the Internet in the years ahead. Fundamentally, the West, along with ICANN and the IETF, is committed to the rule of law, broadly understood as fostering freedom within the structure of ordered liberty. Other institutions, authoritarian governments, and maybe the ITU, where the authoritarian governments will have a voting majority, are more about the law of rules, that is, about asserting sovereign affirmative control of the cyber domain. And standing against both of those groups are non-state actors who are dedicated to a more unstructured, chaotic view of the world. Some, like the happy ninjas we talked about, might be forces of good and backers of pure Internet freedom. Other, more destructive actors, like Anonymous or LulzSec, are much more anarchistic in their intent. We can be reasonably sure that these groups will, over the next years, 
contest for control of the Internet domain. As I said, the international dimension of cybersecurity is a puzzle without an easy answer. None of the options seems terribly satisfying. For now, however, I think we can be reasonably content. The NGO system run by the IETF and ICANN seems to work reasonably well. So perhaps the best answer is, if it ain't broke, don't fix it. I look forward to talking with you in our next lecture, when we will return our attention to the United States and start talking about the Internet and the U.S. Constitution. We'll look at what the government is, isn't, should, and shouldn't be doing in cyberspace. So in the last two lectures, we have basically asked whether or not the government can and should regulate the security of the cyber domain. We first asked how the U.S. government might do the job. And then in the last lecture, we asked about the possibility of international regulation. In this lecture, we're going to shift the focus slightly to a different question. We're going to return our attention to America and ask not about government regulation, but about the idea of government control and protection. After all, one of the goals of the Constitution is the creation of government to provide for the common defense. We might say that the federal government is also responsible for defending cyberspace. We don't expect every manufacturing plant to have anti-aircraft guns, so why do we expect every cyber facility to have the cyber equivalent? And we do expect the police to patrol the streets and provide us with protection against murder and robbery. So shouldn't the government be patrolling for us the Internet network and protecting us against attack there? I assume you can see some of the problems with that idea right away. <laughs> if the government is on the network monitoring it for malicious activity, then... Well, then the government is on the network monitoring it. And that might be a good thing. But in America, we have a healthy skepticism of government surveillance. We don't have the government routinely watching our conduct because we don't want the government knowing all our business. If the monitoring is for illegal malicious activity, well, then it could also be for political activity, can't it? Well, whether you realize it or not, government monitoring of the Internet is already a fact. So in this lecture, we have two goals. First, I want to briefly talk to you about how the on-network monitoring systems work. Then I want to step back a bit and tell you about how government monitoring is governed by laws, and particularly how it is limited by, but not prohibited by, the U.S. Constitution. Let's start with the monitoring programs. The federal programs go by the generic name of Einstein. Einstein 2 is an intrusion detection cybersecurity system fully deployed by the federal government in 2008 to protect the federal cyber networks. Its successor program, Einstein 3 of course, which is still in development as of late 2012, not only detects cyber intrusions on the federal network, 
but also seeks to actively prevent them. In the next iteration, these programs will be moved from the federal system and increasingly be deployed on private networks to protect critical infrastructure. And therein hangs our tale, and a constitutional issue worthy of consideration. Because these private networks are also the ones that you and I use every day to talk to our friends or to participate in political rallies. An intrusion detection system like Einstein 2.0 operates through what one might call a lookup system for spotting malicious code. Every piece of code is unique. It has what is known as a, a signature, essentially an identifying code component that serves as a marker for the program, like its DNA. Now, when we spoke about the problem of distinction in Lecture 3, we were talking about the difficulty of identifying malicious code. The problem, you may recall, is that when we first encounter malicious code, we can't tell that it's malicious. But eventually, with effort, the code can be identified as such, and its unique characteristics can be mapped. The detection program has a database of known malicious code signatures on file, and constantly compares incoming messages with malicious signatures. When it finds a match, it sends an alert to the recipient. For the federal system, Einstein 2 gets its database of malicious signatures from a variety of sources, including both commercial sources like Symantec, that's the private internet cybersecurity company, and classified sources at the U.S. National Security Agency, or NSA. And for reasons that will become clear in a second, it's important to note that Einstein 2 is a, a gateway system, one that screens traffic as it arrives at federal portals, but does not stop any traffic at all. Einstein 3, the next generation of the program, is based on a classified NSA program known as Tutelage, and is different in several respects. First, its goal is to go beyond Einstein 2's capabilities of detection of malware and an alert to take the next step of actual intrusion prevention. After all, simple detection is a bit like telling someone you're being robbed after the bank robber is already inside the vault. It is naturally far more valuable to prevent the robber from getting into the bank in the first instance. To do this, Einstein 3 must intercept all internet traffic bound for federal computers before it's delivered, delay it temporarily for screening, and then pass it along or quarantine the malware as appropriate. Einstein 3 also adopts another less definitive and more probabilistic method of identifying malware, something different from the lookup malware check system we already have. This new system goes by the generic name of anomaly detection. In essence, the Einstein 3 program knows what normal internet traffic looks like and can produce an alert when the incoming traffic differs from normal by some set tolerance level. So if traffic is coming from an IP address that has never been used before, or if it's occurring in large volumes at odd hours, that might trigger an alert even in cases where we don't have a malicious code signature to compare the traffic to. And for that system to be effective, the Einstein 3 screening protocols must reside outside the federal government firewalls, on the servers of trusted internet connections. As you might expect, for the federal government, 
These trusted internet connections are all operated by American companies. There's little real legal debate over the operation of Einstein 2 or Einstein 3 as applied to government networks. Almost everyone who's examined the question agrees with the conclusion reached by the Department of Justice's Office of Legal Counsel. It is appropriate and necessary for the government to monitor traffic to and from its own computers. After all, if any citizen sends a cyber transmission to the federal government, we can fairly presume that he wants it opened, and that if it is a malicious transmission, he has no legitimate interest in having it opened only in the way he wants it to be, so that it has a bad effect. Legal disagreement is much more likely to be over how deeply a government-owned and operated system such as Einstein, let's call it Einstein 4 if we want to, may be inserted into private networks, either to protect the government or to protect private sector users. The question is whether such a system would pass constitutional muster. Now, we should note here that in addition to constitutional questions, the full operation of Einstein 4 would require several amendments of existing statutory restrictions, amendments whose political viability is, frankly, highly questionable. Thus, while we begin with a discussion of the legality of the system, that doesn't mean we should lose sight of the related question of whether or not it's a good idea. Legal isn't always wise, and unwise isn't always illegal. But let's start with the law. To begin with, current doctrine makes it clear that there is a difference in the level of constitutional protection between the content of a message, the text of what it says, and the non-content portions, like the address on the outside of an envelope. In general, the non-content portions of intercepted traffic are not protected by the Fourth Amendment. That's the constitutional amendment that protects against unreasonable searches and seizures. The Supreme Court addressed these questions in a related context in two 1970s-era cases, United States versus Miller and Smith versus Maryland. In both cases, the question was, in effect, does an individual have any constitutional protection against the wholesale disclosure of personal information that had been collected legally by third parties? And in particular, could an individual use the Fourth Amendment to prevent the government from using data it had received from a third-party collector without first getting a warrant? In both of these cases, the court answered with a resounding no. Along the way, it developed an interpretation of the Fourth Amendment that has come, unsurprisingly, to be known as the third-party doctrine. One has no constitutional rights to protect information voluntarily disclosed to others. The reasoning is that by disclosing it, the data owner has given up any reasonable expectation of privacy that he might have had. So the Miller case involved bank records. According to the court, financial information voluntarily disclosed by an individual to a bank is not protected by the Fourth Amendment against subsequent disclosure to the government. So if you, say, write a check to a doctor or a political campaign, and the government wants a copy of the check from your bank, there is, according to the court, nothing in the Constitution that limits how they get it. 
They can just go and ask the bank for it. That probably surprises you. Yeah. It certainly surprised Congress, so much so that they immediately passed the Right to Financial Privacy Act, which put limits back onto what law enforcement could do. Now, the Smith case, Smith versus Maryland, that was pretty much the same song, just sung in a different key. In that case, the court held that an individual's telephone toll records, that is, the records of the phone numbers called by the individual, were not protected against disclosure. If you're willing to tell the phone number you're calling to AT&T or Verizon, you can't, the court said, complain if they, in turn, tell it to the government. In effect, the court has adopted a gestational theory of First Amendment privacy. Just as you can't be a little bit pregnant, you can't, according to the court, be a little bit public and a little bit private. What you disclose to anyone is fair game for everyone else. One of the oddities of these two cases is that they're both pretty old. They come from the 1970s, back before personal computers even existed, and back before there was any real reason to be concerned with the wholesale collection of personal information, a topic for our next lecture. It's pretty curious, in the end, to talk about privacy on the Internet when the basic case law predates the Apple computer. Recently, in a case in January 2012 called United States versus Jones, the Supreme Court indicated that it might reconsider the third-party doctrine in light of technological changes. But it hasn't taken that step, at least not yet. So we're left right now with this old 1970s doctrine. In the context of cybersecurity and intrusion detection, the same result follows pretty easily. Non-content header information in the internet traffic, like IP addresses and the to and from lines of your email and such, are not protected from disclosure as a matter of constitutional law. Because that information has been provided to your internet service provider, it loses any constitutional privacy protection it might have. And a government-operated Einstein 4 system is free to scan the non-content portions of the message for malware. This legal analysis, however, gets us only part of the way to an answer. The Miller-Smith rule does not, by its terms, permit the use of an intrusion prevention system to routinely scan the content portions of an Internet exchange. Those portions, the actual messages themselves, remain private, just as telephone conversations are also private. As a result, a government program typically may not review those content portions of a message without probable cause and a warrant. Now, to think of this clearly, just <clears throat> think of the difference between an address on the outside of the envelope, which anyone can read, and the letter inside, which is protected by law from interception without a judicial warrant. One problem with this analysis is that in the cyber realm, the line between content and non-content is not so clear. Is the web address you type into your web browser content or not? In, in many ways, it looks like a non-content address on the outside of the envelope. But domain names on the Internet often reveal the website's content in a way that regular addresses just don't. If you go to aa.org, then we know you're visiting Alcoholics Anonymous, 
with all of the resulting inferences about the content of your communications. Even more importantly, the content portions of an internet transmission may also be the portions of a message that contain malware. Indeed, it would be an extremely poor rule that permitted screening of only non-content information for malware, as that would simply draw a map for malfeasant actors on how to avoid the intrusion detection systems. As a consequence, any intrusion detection or prevention system that will be of any value in protecting the network must inherently have the ability to look at the content of communications if it's to be effective. So bridging that gap, finding, if any, a con constitutionally permissible way of looking at content is the difficult question. And again, as a reminder, even if the gap is bridged, that still leaves a large policy question. Uh, do we really want the NSA, or any portion of the government for that matter, to be inspecting the private communications of American citizens? So while we continue to talk about the law for now, let's not lose sight of the underlying policy question. For internet traffic directed to federal computers, the content-non-content distinction is comparatively easy to solve. Our Fourth Amendment concerns can be addressed by using a robust form of consent. The idea here is that protection against government scrutiny is a constitutional right. But it is a right you can give up voluntarily if you want to. If you give your consent to the government screening of your email, then all of the legality problems go away. So it turns out that consent is a, a pretty powerful tool. Interestingly... The consent concerns are more for the recipient, some federal employee, than they are for the sender. As we've said already, the sender loses his privacy interest in the content of an internet communication with the government when it's delivered. After all, he intended the recipient to get the message, and lawfully, the recipient may do with it what he likes, including putting it in the spam folder. The sender has little or no legitimate interest once the mail is delivered to its intended recipient, in fooling the recipient into doing the wrong thing. So in Einstein 2 and 3, the main consent concern is actually for the recipient employee, who might have a privacy interest in the contents of the email. He doesn't necessarily want his federal employer screening the contents of his incoming mail. For these employees, however, the government can and almost always does, make consent to email monitoring a condition of employment. You can't work for the government unless you agree, and your agreement is reinforced every day by a login click-through banner that warns you that your email will be monitored. Now, in the past, the government has monitored Internet traffic to prevent government resources from being used for illegal or inappropriate purposes, say, downloading pornography. Today, that legal concept has simply been translated to the cybersecurity realm. And that discussion paints a good roadmap for how the government can and has begun to expand its presence into the private sector, where neither the sender nor the recipient is a federal employee or agency. The extension has begun with voluntary agreements between the government and big government contractors in the defense industrial base what we sometimes call the DIB. Unsurprisingly, this program is known as the DIB pilot. 
So how's that work? To foster their ability to do business with the federal government, these DIB companies have all agreed to deploy Einstein on their own systems and monitor incoming internet traffic using government-provided threat signature information. To be sure, their decision to do that is voluntary, but it is voluntary in the same way that Don Corleone makes you an offer you can't refuse. Those who don't join the program will likely lose some of their opportunity to get federal business. As with communications bound for the federal government, the non-content addressing information is not protected by the Fourth Amendment at all. And the senders have no expectation of privacy as against the recipient. And as to the actual content or substance of the message, all of the employees for the DIB participants, companies like Raytheon and Boeing, are, like their federal brethren, asked to consent to scrutiny of their communications as a condition of employment. Now, you may ask, is this consent really consent? After all, if you have a good job as an engineer at, say, Lockheed Martin, and the company tells you that you have to consent to email screening or lose your job, how much real choice do you have? In practice, probably not much. But the answer in law is pretty clear, and it's the opposite. So long as you have a choice, it really doesn't matter if one of those choices is harder than the other. Thomas Hobson of Hobson's Choice fame had nothing on the government. So this so-called voluntary consent model is readily expandable to almost any industry that is dependent on federal financing and therefore susceptible to government pressure. Already, there's talk of expanding this DIB model to the financial and nuclear industries. A more problematic extension might be to the healthcare industry or the education community. We could, for example, imagine the government saying to healthcare providers that continuing to receive Medicare reimbursements requires their consent to come under the federal protective cyber umbrella. At least in theory, there's no legal reason why any industry or company might not agree to those terms. And there's no real limit on how the government might gently use its financial clout to coerce cooperation. In the end, our objection to these further expansions is more likely to be one of policy than of law. The expanse of this voluntary consent model is quite wide, and it seems likely to occupy a significant fraction of the field. So now let's finally talk about policy. Even though it is probably legal to expand the federal government's protection of critical infrastructure, is it a good idea? The honest answer is that nobody knows yet. For me, this is really an empirical question. How effective is the extended protection and how great a risk of abuse is there? While it's easy to think of theoretical answers, our policymakers are seeking hard data. And to their credit, they're doing so in a relatively cautious way. Most notably, instead of the National Security Agency, or NSA, actually running an Einstein 4 program on the private sector networks, the DIP program involves two limitations that are not legally necessary. First, the Einstein 4 program is actually going to be run by Internet Service Providers, or ISPs. The organizations like Verizon or AT&T 
who transmit Internet traffic to other private sector companies. The ISPs are using both software and threat signatures provided by the NSA. This means that, at least in part, the government has taken a a hands-off approach to the screening. Second, because of fears that NSA's direct involvement in the program might raise the specter of Big Brother and the government collection of private communications, the private sector DIB pilot members are not required to provide any feedback to the NSA on the effectiveness of the program, though they may voluntarily provide some data on network intrusions. And so NSA is generally cut off from any private-to-government communications and cannot generally gain access to private sector content. Now, from this pilot, we've already learned two things. First, there is a persistent controversy over federal involvement in cybersecurity. Some, mostly the large Internet service providers and other major Internet players, argue that the private sector has made large investments in cybersecurity and that it is generally more nimble and more knowledgeable in key respects about its systems than the federal government could ever be. There's some support for this proposition. A recent internal study by the Department of Defense suggested that the DIB pilot's effectiveness has been a mixed success and some failures to meet expectations. Notably, in the first test phase during a six-month period, only two of 52 discoveries of cyber threats by the DIB program relied on classified NSA signatures. All the rest were private sector. But neither the private sector nor the government really thinks that the DIB pilot is unnecessary, and there's at least some evidence that the government, and more particularly the NSA, is a value-added contributor to cybersecurity in the private sector. For example, in 2010, Google was hacked by the Chinese. The Chinese subverted Google's operating code and used it to try and get information on Chinese activists who were communicating through Gmail. When Google discovered the attack, it turned to the NSA for assistance in analyzing the intrusion. So, at least to some degree, even cyber market leaders like Google recognize the value of federal cyber assistance. The second thing the DIB pilot shows is that a fear of government intervention can have a tendency to hamstring the effectiveness of our collective approach to cybersecurity. This may not necessarily be a bad thing. Sometimes social values of independence are more important than efficiency and effectiveness, but we should at least be clear about the choices we're making. As I noted earlier, NSA agreed to forego any mandatory feedback from the DIB pilot partners on the effectiveness of the threat signatures that it provided. That was a pragmatic decision. NSA made the judgment that because providing enhanced security to the DIB was so important, it would rather do so without some feedback than risk the political controversy that might arise if it was suspected of performing secret wiretaps and threatening civil liberties. Even if the suspicion was false, its common acceptance would have paralyzed the pilot program and probably killed it before it even began. But we should make no mistake, this form of of self-limitation was not intended to enhance effectiveness or efficiency. In short, though it is likely that the government could lawfully have expanded NSA's role through a strong consent model to include its active participation in the DIB pilot, it deliberately chose not to go to the limits of legal authority for political and policy reasons. As a pragmatic judgment of the politically possible in America today, 
That was probably a wise decision. As a policy for completely effective cybersecurity, it's probably the second best option. In any event, in mid-2012, the Department of Defense expanded the pilot and made it a permanent program and transitioned part of its management to the Department of Homeland Security. DHS is a civilian agency that's thought better suited for long-term management of civilian cybersecurity programs. So this form of consented government monitoring of critical infrastructure is likely to be part of our plan for defense for the foreseeable future. And what then of the remaining internet traffic? Private to private traffic that is not directed to or from a critical infrastructure industry or connected in some other way to the government. Here, the legal limits on the scrutiny of private content network traffic are at their highest, and they're likely to prevail. This is not to say that the private sector internet is without protection. Uh, We will talk more about private sector protections in a later lecture. But what it does mean is that the American government is likely to have little, if any, active role in the protection of most of the internet, both domestically and globally. For many in the cyber community, this is the right result. Others, however, look at this dichotomy and see a trend towards a bifurcated internet. One portion, a closed, walled garden, protected by high security, and the other, a a virtual free fire zone, reminiscent of the Wild West in the mid-1800s. Neither model seems quite optimal. The walled garden loses the vibrancy, transparency, and ease of borderless access that are the main characteristics of the Internet as we currently know it. It is, if you will, Internet light, all the features without the pizzazz. The Wild West, however, is a lawless domain where nobody is safe. No doubt, we will continue to search for a better way. One reasonably safe prediction is that governments will come under increasing pressure to provide security services on the Internet. This will likely come to pass notwithstanding the fears of a threat to civil liberties, but only with significant oversight, I think. If government scrutiny of the network increases, then the constitutional issues we've been discussing will come back to the fore. And so, as a final thought experiment, Let's consider two legal grounds on which the government might proceed to monitor the entire Internet, at least in the United States. I should again hasten to note that a lawful plan is not necessarily a wise one as a policy matter, and I'm certainly not recommending these arguments. But here they are for you to think about for yourself. First, one might argue that wholesale scrutiny of network traffic is reasonable because the threat is so large. There's just an awful lot of malware in Internet traffic. Here's how this argument might pass constitutional muster. First, the government could adopt an automated system that looks at all traffic but did not save any traffic that is determined to be safe, in effect using an auto-delete function, unless malware was found. Second, the government could agree not to prosecute anyone whose malware was stopped. The government could argue that Broad-based scrutiny is akin to a a sobriety checkpoint on the highway. That is a necessary special needs administrative inspection that is acceptable precisely because of the harm it averts. Or here's a second, somewhat more ambitious approach, as if the other wasn't ambitious enough. 
the government could adopt a law that made consent to malware intrusion detection systems a condition of access to the Internet. The analogy here would be to the implied consent laws that have been adopted by many states with respect to sobriety tests. In these states, acceptance of a driver's license and the right to travel on the public roads brings with it mandatory consent to a sobriety test. Refusal to blow is itself a crime. One can at least imagine, though probably not welcome, the adoption of such a regulatory system for the Internet. All of which is to say that there is probably a wide scope of constitutionally permissible activity for the government, even on the private networks that are part of the Internet. Exactly how far the government is permitted to go in the end is more likely a question of wise policy than it is of constitutional law. So I hope that's given you some food for thought and a better understanding of the legal issues and policy issues behind cybersecurity. In our next lecture, I'll tell you about the remarkable and sometimes disturbing things that people can do with your personal information on the web as we explore the concept of big data. I look forward to talking to you then. Have you seen the movie Minority Report? If you have, you remember its chilling portrayal of a world where three psychics called precogs are able to predict future acts. And as a result, you can be arrested for the murder you're about to commit, not the one you've already committed. They, whoever they are, know what you're going to do before you even do it. Married to that is a universal identification system using retina scans that links to a giant database that remembers everything about you. When you go into a store, the holographic welcomers happily chirp, Welcome back, Mr. Rosenzweig. Will you be looking for another pair of shoes today? They also know everything you've ever done in your life. You really do have a permanent record. The image is in a word, horrifying. It portrays a world where everything about you is known and where your future actions can be predicted with accuracy. It's the world of George Orwell's 1984 made real by advanced technology. Now, it's a myth, of course, but nobody is sure for how much longer. Today, we call this phenomenon the problem of big data. Every click you take in cyberspace can be tracked. Your cell phone broadcasts your geolocation constantly. And all your purchases and phone calls are cataloged somewhere. Taken together, this information can be analyzed to paint a picture of you, one that increasingly others can see. And the result is a loss of privacy. In today's lecture, we begin a two-part discussion of how this is happening and what it means. In this first lecture, I want to mostly tell you about the idea of big data and show you some examples of how it works. In the next lecture, we'll talk about privacy laws and how we might go about reclaiming some privacy for ourselves. 
So what exactly do we mean by big data? Well, in an increasingly networked world, personal information is widely collected and widely available. As the storehouse of data has grown, so have governmental and commercial efforts to use this personal data for their own purposes. Commercial enterprises target ads and solicit new customers. Governments use the data to, for example, identify and target previously unknown terror suspects, to find what are called clean skins, who are not in any intelligence database. We have discovered that we can link together individual bits of data to build a picture of a person that is more detailed than the individual parts. If you want a way of thinking about this, think of a, a tile mosaic or a pointillist painting by Seurat. Each bit of color by itself isn't much, but you put them all together and you can see a complete picture. We call this growth in the amount of data available married to the increase in analytical capability, the phenomena of big data. Now, clearly, big data offers all kinds of opportunities to those who have access to it. Yet this new capability also comes at a price, the peril of creating an ineradicable trove of information about innocent individuals. If the government collects data to build a picture of, say, an unknown terrorist threat, it can also, if it's minded to, use it to build a picture of its political opponents. That sort of use of cyberspace poses threats both in America and perhaps even more so in authoritarian nations abroad. In thinking about this capability and the opportunities and threats it presents, we sometimes talk out of both sides of our mouths. Back in 2004, for example, there was a significant hype surrounding the most ambitious of these new big data programs. The Total Information Awareness Program which was known as TIA. TIA was a research program initiated by the Defense Advanced Research Projects Agency, or DARPA, in the immediate aftermath of September 11. The concept was to use advanced data analytical techniques to search the information space of commercial and public sector data, looking for threat signatures that were indicative of a terrorist threat. Because it would have given the government access to vast quantities of data about individuals, it was condemned as the harbinger of Big Brother and eventually killed. Compare that condemnation with the universal criticism of the government for its failure to connect the dots during the Christmas 2009 bombing plot attempt by Umar Farouk Abdul-Muttalib. In that case, we were, it is said, not doing enough data analysis, not linking NSA intercepts to State Department reporting or to travel records. So that conflict gives you some idea of the cross-currents that are at play here. The conundrum arises because the analytical techniques are fundamentally similar to those used by traditional law enforcement agencies, taking a lead and finding connections, but they operate on a much more vast set of data, and that data is much more readily capable of analysis and manipulation. As a result, the differences in degree tend to become differences in kind. To put this issue in perspective, just consider a, a partial listing of relevant databases that might be targeted. Credit cards, telephone calls, criminal records, 
real estate purchases, travel itineraries, and so on. The technological reality is that all of that information is available somewhere in cyberspace. And it's easy for others to access, even though the average citizen probably thinks that his or her credit card records and web serving habits are private. This is a fundamental change caused by technological advances that, like King Canute's fabled tide, cannot be stopped or slowed. The phenomenon derives from two related yet distinct trends, increases in computing power and decreases in data storage costs. Most of you have seen with your own eyes the steady increase in the power of computers. It's best expressed in Moore's Law, named after Intel computer science scientist Gordon Moore, who first articulated the law back in 1965. Moore's Law predicts that computer chip capacities will double every 18 to 24 months. Moore's Law has been remarkably accurate for nearly 30 years. The effect of routine doubling is so great that we have to graph it logarithmically, where each step up the y-axis shows an increase by a factor of 10. In practice, what this means is that processor capacity today is more than a million times greater than in 1970. The power of this processing capacity translates almost directly into processing speed. It is what drives the information technology tools that power Google and Amazon and what makes Walmart's purchasing system a reality. And though no one predicts that processing speed will double indefinitely, surely that's a physical impossibility, there is no current expectation that the limits of chip capacity have been reached. Married to this trend is another one, the remarkable reduction in the costs of data storage. Data storage costs have also been decreasing at a logarithmic rate, almost identical to the increases we've experienced in chip capacity, but in the exact opposite direction. What this means, in practical terms, is that while in 1984 it cost roughly $200 to store a megabyte of data, by 1999 that cost had sunk to 75 cents, and today you can buy 100 megabytes of data storage capacity for a penny. On eBay, you can frequently purchase a terabyte storage device for your desktop for less than $100. A terabyte is roughly one trillion bytes of data, a huge volume for storing simple alphanumeric information. Here too, the prospects are for ever cheaper data storage. One can readily imagine peta, or even exabyte-sized personal storage devices. A petabyte is one million gigabytes. An exabyte is one billion gigabytes. In 2009, the entire internet was roughly 500 exabytes of data. Yet within 10 years or so, that storage capacity may be available to a small corporation. So just imagine what a large corporation or a government could purchase and maintain. Therefore, the story of technology today requires us to answer the question, what happens when ever quicker processing power meets ever cheaper storage capacity? Anyone who uses Gmail knows the answer to that question. No longer do you have to laboriously label, file, and tag your email in order to find it again. 
you now simply store all the email you want to retain, and you use a simple natural language search algorithm to pull up relevant emails from storage when needed. The storage cost of Gmail to the user is zero. Google offers it for free. And the processing time for any search request for the average individual is measured in, at most, seconds. So here is how former IBM chairman Samuel J. Palmisano put it in a speech he gave in September 2011. Quote, We're all aware of the approximately 2 billion people now on the Internet, in every part of the planet, thanks to the explosion of mobile technology. But there are also upwards of a trillion interconnected and intelligent objects and organisms, what we call the Internet of Things. All of this is generating vast stores of information. It is estimated that there will be 44 times as much data and content coming over the next decade, reaching 35 zettabytes in 2020. A zettabyte is a one followed by 21 zeros. And thanks to advanced computation and analytics, we can now make sense of that data in something like real time. This enables very different kinds of insights, foresight, and decision-making. Now, our law and policy thinking hasn't caught up with this reality yet. Ten years ago, surveying the technology of the time, which by and large was a hundred times less powerful than today's data processing capacity, Scott McNeely, who was then CEO of Sun Microsystems, said, quote, privacy is dead. Get over it. What he was describing was the loss of public anonymity. The ability to act, whether physically or in cyberspace, without anyone having the technological capacity to permanently record and retain data about your activity for later analysis. American law actually has a phrase to describe this phenomenon. It's practical obscurity, derived from a 1989 Supreme Court case, Department of Justice versus Reporters Committee. The origin of the phrase is instructive in illuminating the effects of the change in technology. Back in the late 1980s, practically at the dawn of time for computers, the Department of Justice went to a great deal of trouble to create a database with information about the criminal records of known offenders. At the time, those types of records were kept in lots of disparate databases that were not connected to each other. Arrest records might be held by a local police station, charging records by a district attorney, and disposition and sentencing records by a state court. Federal records were, of course, held by still other law enforcement authorities, attorneys, and courts. All of these records were generally public and, in theory, available for inspection by the press or private citizens. But in practice, the records were so widely scattered among so many data holders that no newspaper or individual could incur the expense of finding all the information and creating a comprehensive dossier on any individual. They were, in a phrase, practically obscure. Only the federal government had the degree of need and adequacy of resources to undertake the task of creating, at great expense, the precursor of what is today the National Crime Information Center. At very great cost, 
the Department of Justice began the collection of criminal records on a small number of criminals, mostly prominent mafia dons, who were of national interest. The Reporters' Committee case was a powerful expression of the strength of the paradigm of practical obscurity. A CBS News correspondent and a press organization filed a Freedom of Information Act request with the Department of Justice, asking for the collated dossier, or the rap sheet, on alleged mafia figures. Their reasoning was, to me, quite persuasive. Since the information was all public when found in the disparate databases, it did not lose that public character when collected by the federal government. And if it was public information, then it was clearly subject to disclosure under the Freedom of Information Act, known as FOIA. The department denied the FOIA request, and a unanimous Supreme Court, whose membership at the time included jurists ranging from liberal Justice William Brennan to conservative Justice William Rehnquist, approved the denial. According to the court, quote, plainly there is a vast difference between the public records that might be found after a diligent search of courthouse files, county archives, and local police stations throughout the country and a computerized summary located in a single clearinghouse of information, end quote. Because of that difference, the court concluded that the, quote, privacy interest in maintaining the practical obscurity of rap sheet information will always be high. Today, the court's confident assertion that obscurity will always be high has proven to have a half-life of less than 20 years. Large data collection and aggregation companies with names like Experian and ChoicePoint hire retirees to harvest by hand public records from government databases. Paper records are digitized and electronic records are downloaded. These data aggregation companies typically hold birth records, credit and conviction records, real estate transactions and liens, bridal registries, and even kennel club records. One company, Axiom, estimates that it holds on average approximately 1,500 pieces of data on each adult American. That's you. Since most, though not all of these records are governmental in origin, the government has equivalent access to the data. And while they cannot create themselves, they can likely buy or demand from the private sector. The day is now here where anyone with enough data and sufficient computing power can develop a detailed picture of any identifiable individual. The picture might tell your food preferences or your underwear size. It might tell something about your politics or your friend's friend's politics. Remember the 1993 New Yorker cartoon by Peter Steiner that we talked about in Lecture 3? The one that depicted a dog seated at a computer and telling a fellow canine on the internet, nobody knows you're a dog? Well, today, as one observer has said, they not only know you're a dog, but they know your favorite leash color and whether or not you've been neutered. It's all in some pervasive database somewhere. So what does all this mean in practice? And how does it work? These systems of data analysis are remarkably technologically sophisticated. They are, in the end, an attempt to sift through large quantities of personal information to identify subjects whose identities are not known or 
In the commercial context, these individuals are called potential customers. In the world of global activism, they might be called anonymous or Russian patriotic hackers. In the terrorism context, they're often called cleanskins, individuals who are dangerous because nothing is known of their predilections. For precisely this reason, this form of data analysis is sometimes called knowledge discovery, as the intention is to discover something previously unknown about an individual or group of individuals. So let me give you a few examples to illustrate the point. Probably the best place to start is with the 9-11 attacks. By now, everyone has heard that they happened because we couldn't connect the dots. But what exactly does that mean? Well, at bottom, it means that the government didn't use big data. Here's how it should have worked, but didn't. In short, as a Department of Defense Review Committee concluded, with just seven clicks of the mouse through existing public databases, all 19 terrorists could have been identified and linked to each other. Two of the terrorists made reservations on American Airlines Flight 77. Their names were also on the CIA's watch list for terrorists in the United States. But we didn't connect those two pieces of information. If we had, we would have learned that the two addresses they gave to the airline and a simple cross-check would have found three other terrorists, including the infamous Mohammed Atta, who also made reservations for flights on September 11th and who also used those two addresses. Now, if we also cross-checked the callback phone numbers that Atta gave to the airlines, we would have found another five terrorists who gave the same phone number to the reservation agents and also made flight reservations for September 11th. Yet another terrorist would have been identified because he used the same frequent flyer number as one of the other men on the list. And two more were in public databases like the Yellow Pages and listed as sharing living arrangements with one of the terrorists. Finally, the remaining six terrorists could have been identified by links to a different list. The U.S. Immigration and Naturalization Service's expired visa illegal entry list. One of those terrorists was on the list and the other five had public records of having lived with him or with each other. And all, of course, shared this common characteristic of making reservations on flights for the morning of September 11th. In short, as a Department of Defense Review Committee concluded, with just seven clicks of the mouse through existing public databases, all 19 terrorists could have been identified and linked to each other. The story of Raid Albania, a Jordanian who attempted to enter, enter the United States at Chicago's O'Hare Airport on June 14, 2003, is another powerful illustration of how big data can be used. And this time, it was a success. In some ways, it shows how much changed in just two years. Albania was probably a clean skin, a terrorist with no known record at all. He was carrying a valid business visa in his Jordanian passport and on the surface appeared to be an unremarkable business traveler from the Middle East. The Department of Homeland Security operates a sophisticated data analysis program called the Automated Targeting System, or ATS, to assess the comparative risks of arriving passengers. They use ATS to decide who to stop and talk to and who to let through easily. 
The system is essential, given the sheer volume of travelers to America. In a typical year, approximately 350 million people cross American borders. More than 85 million of those arrived by air. Since over 350 million individuals cannot obviously be subject to intense scrutiny, some form of assessment and analysis must be used to make choices about how and when to conduct inspections. ATS is that system. ATS flagged Albania for heightened scrutiny. He was pulled from the main line of entrance at O'Hare and individually questioned. During the interview, Albania's answers were inconsistent and evasive, so much so that the U.S. Customs and Border Protection officer who conducted the interview decided to deny his application for entry and ordered him returned to his origin point. As a matter of routine, Albania's photograph and fingerprints were collected before he was sent on his way. Now, there this story might have ended, since CBP officers reject entry applications daily for a host of reasons. But Albania proved an unusual case. More than a year later, in February 2005, a car filled with explosives drove into a crowd of military and police recruits in the town of Hila, Iraq. More than 125 people died, the largest death toll for a single incident in Iraq until that time. The suicide bomber's hand and forearm were found chained to the steering wheel of the exploded car. Why they were chained is a fascinating question of psychology. When the fingerprints were taken by U.S. military forces, a match was found to the fingerprints taken from Albania 20 months earlier in Chicago. Most similar successes are are not made public. Often the factors that form part of the analysis cannot be revealed, and success in identifying terrorist suspects, or in other contexts, members of a criminal organization, would be negated by disclosure of the success. Only Albania's death made his case fit for public disclosure. So now let's change our focus from counterterrorism to the power of big data to reveal personal information and patterns. David McCandless of London created a chart based on research which used sophisticated computer programs to scour the web and scrape bits of data from a lot of sources. For obvious reasons, we call these web-crawling programs spiders. McCandless's chart represents hundreds of thousands of data points displayed graphically. It represents an annual human activity, and it shows a large peak in spring and another peak toward the end of the year. So what is this activity? Why don't you take a guess? I'll tell you some things that it's not. For example, it's not the frequency with which we watch sporting events, even though the college basketball March Madness and fall football seasons occur near the time of the activity peaks. It's not greeting card buying either, though the peaks are near Easter and Christmas. So what is it? What is a human activity that occurs most frequently in March and then again around the Thanksgiving-Christmas holiday season in the U.S. If you want, pause the lecture for a second to think about it, and then start it up again when you want to continue. Go ahead. We'll wait for you. Ready? Here's the answer. Facebook breakup data. It's a graph about how love ends, at least among Facebook users. The big peaks are for spring break and the holidays. 
There are even small peaks on Mondays, since people usually break up over the weekend and report it to their Facebook friends on Monday. This is pretty amazing stuff. It's really knowledge discovery, a pattern we would not see without big data. It's kind of exciting, or from a different viewpoint, maybe disturbing. And it's also why Facebook is worth billions of dollars. They are collecting information about you that you voluntarily provide and using it to build a picture of who you are. That picture is worth money to them and to other people. I don't know about you, but to me, it's sometimes a little spooky how accurate the Google ads are that show up on my system. They really do seem to know what I'm thinking. So let's try another example. I have a little program on my computer called Collusion. You can run it on your own computer if you want, provided you use Firefox as your web browser. What the program does is simply watch as you browse the web and then keep track of how your browsing habits are being collected. See, what you probably don't know is that when you go to a particular website, well, say Google, that website shares your visit with lots of other websites. It colludes with them, if you will, to build a better picture of who you are. A snapshot of my own recent web browsing shows a field of dots, each one representing a different website. If I hover over the dot that represents Google, I can see that Google shares my browsing history with more than 20 other websites. Some of those, like Facebook, are other sites that I actually use. But several of them, like Hot Air and Daily Caller, are places I never go. And there are even some, like Cornell.edu, that make me wonder. I have absolutely no idea why they're connected to Google. But there you go. This picture is a graphic example of how my personal web browsing history is being converted into information about me. So ask yourself this. Did you realize how much of your browsing history is public? Did you know that the places you go actually broadcast that fact to other folks on the web? You can see how that, too, is a bit creepy. Of course, in other contexts, what seems only a bit creepy can become pretty scary and downright authoritarian. Here's a final example. Your cell phone is constantly reporting your location to the nearest cell towers. That's how the system knows where you are, so it can connect a call to you. When I go to visit my grandchildren in Evanston, Illinois, my cell phone checks in with the local cell towers, and so the cell service provider knows that I'm not near my home in Washington, D.C. That's a, a perfectly sensible idea. Otherwise, cell phone service wouldn't work. But the company keeps those records of where your cell phone is, and that means they know not only where you are, but where you've been. A German politician created a video from his cell phone records that shows a six-month log of all his movements. He put it together to make a point. Because most of where we go is innocuous. But if I have six months of your travel logs, I'll know if you're a churchgoer or a gym fanatic or if you visit local porn shops. They say that you are what you eat, but really and truly, you are where you visit. Now, maybe you're not worried that your phone company knows all this. But what if they sell it to some commercial advertiser? Or what if the government issues a subpoena 
and collects all those records. The issue is highly contentious right now, and we'll talk more about it in the next lecture. But at the present time, the Miller-Smith third-party doctrine applies. That's the doctrine that says that information you share with a third party, like Facebook or your phone provider, is not protected by the Fourth Amendment. And that means that you have no privacy interest in the location data that you voluntarily broadcast to the cell phone company. That's a pretty odd definition of voluntary, to be sure, but there it is. And so that's our introduction to the world of big data and how your actions are being watched in cyberspace. Whether we like it or not, the phenomena is here to stay. The only question is when and how we can monitor and control the use of these techniques so that we get the benefits of the growth in data and analytics without the potential harms to privacy and civil liberties. How we can do that is the subject of our next lecture. We look at the phenomena of big data, the one we discussed in the last lecture, and all we see are new technologies that are going to collect more data and analyze it more quickly. In the end, it looks like our current conceptions of privacy will be eroded, if not destroyed. So what are we going to do about it? In this lecture, I want to talk about where our privacy laws come from, how we got to where we are today, and what if anything, we might think about as a way of changing the privacy laws without being complete Luddites about the new technology. So we're going to break this discussion into two parts. First, talking about the government's use of big data, and then talking about the private sector's commercial use of big data. And we'll end with a, a closely related topic, how big data analysis also can be used against the government itself to keep it honest. So let's begin with what, to me, is pretty obvious, though I caution you that some people disagree with me. In my judgment, our current privacy rules are simply not up to the task. They are, to a very real degree, antique, relics of the last century. The relevant Supreme Court precedents date from the 1970s. Is it any wonder that the current structure of law does not match the technological reality? As we saw in the last lecture, the third party doctrine was developed by the Supreme Court in two cases, United States versus Miller and Smith versus Maryland, back in the 1970s at the dawn of the computer era. It means that information you disclose to a third party is not protected by the Fourth Amendment to the Constitution. In the context of data privacy, this means that there is no constitutional protection against the collection and aggregation of your cyber data, credit card purchases and the like, for purposes of data analysis and piercing the veil of anonymity. Now, there's some hope that this constitutional status quo might change. In January 2012, the Supreme Court considered a case by the title United States versus Jones. And full disclosure here, I did some work on Jones's side of the case. 
The case involved the decision by some federal agents to put a GPS tracking device on Jones's car. Do you remember the German politician we talked about in the last lecture? The one who produced a video of how his cell phone was tracked? The global positioning system, or GPS tracker, works in the same way, except it is a device that's independent of your phone. In this case, the agents attached the GPS tracker to Jones's car because they suspected he was a drug dealer. Sure enough, they tracked him to a drug stash house, and eventually he was convicted. But the agents had made a mistake. Maybe. They hadn't gotten a valid warrant to put the tracker on the car. Now, the government's argument was simple. Cars travel on public roads. Public roads are exposed to the public. So Jones had no expectation of privacy in his travel. And therefore, no warrant was needed. If you believe in the third-party doctrine, this was an easy case. But Jones won. Nine to nothing. Five justices thought that he should win on a very narrow and limited ground. That is, that in putting the GPS on his car, the federal agents had actually trespassed on his property. And that trespass required a warrant before they could do it. But four of the justices would have decided the case on a much broader ground. They would have said that the collection of large volumes of data, what we called the big data problem, raises constitutional issues because it allows the collection of enough data to create a mosaic picture. As we said in the last lecture, this mosaic allows us to piece together individual bits of data about Jones's life to develop a revealing picture of who he is. Now, to be sure, in this case, the picture indicated that he was a drug dealer. But in other cases, the technology might have been used to determine whether he was a Democrat or a Republican. Obviously, this type of rule would require some line drawing. How much data is enough to create an impermissibly large mosaic? Nobody knows. And the majority of the court didn't answer the question. But one thing we can say for sure is that the Supreme Court is thinking hard about how the standard Fourth Amendment analysis applies in the era of big data. For now, however, officially, the court and the Constitution are still on the sidelines. So all that's left to protect anonymity from government intrusion are the statutory protections created at the federal level by Congress. But those, too, are out of date. Our concepts of privacy are embedded in a set of principles known as the Fair Information Practice Principles, or FIPS which were first developed in the United States in the early 1970s and have now become the keystone of the Privacy Act of 1974. In brief summary, which does not do them justice for want of detail, the principles say that a government should limit the collection of personal information to what is necessary. It should use it only for a specific and limited purpose and be transparent and open with the public in how the information is collected and used. It should also allow the individual about whom the data is collected to see the data collected about him or her and correct it if necessary. I think you can probably see the problem already. The technology of big data collection and analysis just 
destroys these types of rules. A conscientious and fair application of these principles is in many ways fundamentally inconsistent with the way in which personal information is often used in the counterterrorism context, or for that matter, in the context of commercial data analysis. Recognizing this fact is not at this juncture to make a normative judgment, but the truth is that the way in which data analysis programs function is at odds with these principles. The automated targeting system that discovered Raid Albania, that's the terrorist we discussed in the last lecture, who was turned away from O'Hare Airport and later bombed a market in Iraq. That simply can't work with these types of limitations. And consider, just as an example, the purpose and use specification principle. The one that says that data collected for one purpose should not be used for another. If fully applied, this idea would make it impossible for many sophisticated knowledge discovery systems to work well. Often the data that provides the missing link and makes a previously unknown connection is information that was collected for a different purpose and intended for a different use. To take the most prosaic example, recall our discussion in the last lecture about the 9-11 hijackers and how big data might have been used to foil their plot. Ordinarily, a phone number is collected from an air traveler when he books a flight for the purpose of allowing the airline to contact him. And his frequent fly flyer number is collected so that his loyalty account can be credited. The automated targeting system that we discussed in the last lecture uses those data fields for another purpose. That is, to identify potential connections between known terrorists and those who are otherwise unknown. It might have enabled us to spot the 9-11 plot before it was executed. But the way that system uses data is precisely what the purpose and use limitation principles forbid. In short, in this modern world of widely distributed networks with massive data storage capacity and computational capacity, so much analysis becomes possible that the old principles seem no longer to fit. What is needed then is a, a modernized conception of privacy, one with the flexibility to allow effective government action, but with the surety necessary to protect against governmental abuse. So before we start this next part of the discussion, I have a confession to make. In most of this course, I've tried to present the facts and the information in a way that lets you decide what the right answer is. But today, we're moving into new terrain. A comprehensive new anonymity protective legal structure doesn't exist and has yet to be developed. So any answer proposed is more in the nature of a, of a proscription rather than a description. And opinions differ wildly on how we should move forward. Some people think that the old privacy rules should just be reinforced. I tend to think that's a mugs game and that technology is forcing change. So for the next few minutes, what I want to do is outline for you my own thoughts about a new way forward. In this view, the old idea of collection and purpose limitations yield because they can't withstand the new technology. Instead, we focus on how data is used. And more importantly, we refocus our laws so that our concern is not with use that is mere analysis, 
but rather with uses that constitute the imposition of an adverse consequence. So here are a couple of building blocks for this idea. First, we really need to dig deep into the idea of what we mean by privacy. Privacy is a misnomer in some respects. What it reflects is a desire for the independence of personal activity, a form of autonomy. We protect that privacy in many ways. Sometimes we do so through secrecy, which is effectively obscuring the observation of conduct and the identity of those engaging in the conduct. An example of this might be the voting booth, where who you are and what you do are both literally obscured behind a screen to create a secret environment. In other instances, we protect the autonomy directly. As, for example, when we talk about privacy rights in connection with freedom of religion or the right to marry whom you want. Indeed, the whole point of that kind of privacy is, allow, is to allow people to act as they wish in public, which is a bit of an odd idea of privacy if you think about it. The concept of privacy that most applies to this new information technology regime and to the use of big data is the idea of anonymity. It's kind of a middle ground where observation is permitted, that is, we expose our actions in public, but where our identities and our intentions are not ordinarily subject to close scrutiny. The information data space is, as we've seen, suffused with information of this middle ground sort. Bank account transactions, phone records, airplane reservations, and smart card travel logs, to name but a few. They constitute the core of the transactions and electronic signature or verification information that's available in cyberspace. The type of anonymity that one has in respect of these transactions is not terribly different from real-world anonymity. Consider as an example the act of driving a car. It's done in public, but one is generally not subject to routine identification and scrutiny. So protecting the anonymity we value requires, in the first instance, defining it accurately. We might posit that anonymity is, in effect, the ability to walk through the world unexamined. But that's not strictly accurate, for our conduct is examined numerous times every day. Sometimes the examination is by a private individual. For, for example, one may notice that the individual sitting next to them is wearing a wedding ring. Other routine examinations are by governmental authorities or commercial entities. The policeman in the car who watches the street, or the security camera that records us at the bank or the airport, for example. So what we really must mean by anonymity is not a pure form of privacy akin to secrecy. Rather, what we mean is that even though one's conduct is examined routinely and regularly, both with and without one's knowledge, nothing adverse should happen to you without good cause. In other words, the veil of anonymity, previously protected by the practical obscurity that we discussed in the last lecture, is now readily pierced by technology. So instead of relying on the lack of technical ability to protect privacy, the veil must be protected by rules that limit when piercing is allowed. These rules are needed to protect our privacy and to prevent governmental abuse. So to put it more precisely, 
the key to my conception of privacy is that privacy's principal virtue is as a limitation on consequence. If there are no unjustified consequences, that is, if the consequences that are the product of abuse or error or the application of an unwise policy are excluded, then under this vision, there's no real effect on a cognizable liberty or privacy interest. In effect, if nobody is there to hear the tree or identify the actor, it really does not make a sound. So, what's that mean? In the government context, the questions to be asked of a data analysis program are things like this. What is the consequence of identification? What's the trigger for that consequence? Who decides when the trigger is met? These questions are the ones that really matter. And questions of collection limitation or purpose limitation, for example, are, in my judgment, rightly seen as as distractions from the main point. The right answers to these questions will vary, of course, depending on the context of the inquiry. But the critical first step is making sure that we're asking the right questions. So now we've got a working definition of modern privacy. How do we protect it and its essential component of anonymity? The traditional way is with a system of rules and a system of oversight for compliance with those rules. Here, too, modifications need to be made in light of technological change. Rules, for example, tend to be static and unchanging, and they don't account readily for changes in technology. Indeed, the Privacy Act, the central statute intended to protect individual privacy against government intrusion, is emblematic of this problem. The principles of the Privacy Act are ill-suited to most of the new technological methodologies. It was designed, for example, at a time when the only way we could imagine organizing data was based on the name of the person to whom it related. In modern databases, we can sort the data in any one of a thousand different ways. Thus, we've begun to develop new systems and structures to replace these old privacy systems. First, We're changing from a a top-down process of command and control rule to one in which the principal means of privacy protection is through institutional oversight. To that end, for example, the Department of Homeland Security was created with a statutorily required privacy officer and another officer for civil rights and civil liberties. The 2004 Intelligence Reform and Terrorism Prevention Act and the Implementing Recommendations of the 9-11 Commission Act of 2007 have gone further. For the first time, they've created a civil liberties protection officer within the intelligence community. More generally, intelligence activities are to be overseen by an independent privacy and civil liberties oversight board. All of this is a good set of changes. These institutions serve a novel dual function. They are, in effect, internal watchdogs for privacy concerns. And in addition, they naturally serve as a focus for external complaints that require them to exercise some of the functions of an ombudsman. In either capacity, they're in a position to influence and change how the government approaches the privacy of its citizens. Finally, and perhaps most significantly, the very same systems that are used to advance our government's interests are equally well-suited to ensure that government officials 
comply with the limitations imposed on them in respect of individual citizens' privacy. Put another way, the data analysis systems, what we sometimes call the data valence systems, or short for data surveillance, are uniquely well-equipped to watch the watchers. And the first people who should lose their privacy are the officials who might wrongfully invade the privacy of others. Indeed, there are already indications that these sorts of strong audit mechanisms are effective. You may remember the incident in the 2008 presidential campaign in which contractors hacked into Barack Obama's passport file. In this instance, there was no lawful reason for the disclosure of the file. It was disclosed purely for prurient or political reasons. As a result, candidate Obama suffered an adverse consequence of disclosure, which had not met any legal trigger that would have permitted the disclosure. A strong audit function quickly identified the wrongdoers and allowed punitive action to be taken. They mostly lost their jobs. So if we did these three things, reconfigured our conception of privacy, put the right control systems in place, and used a strong audit system for the government, we could be reasonably confident that a consequence-based system of privacy protection would move us towards a place where real legal protections could be maintained. It would not be perfect. There would always be mistakes and abuse. And it would be a lot more difficult to manage in the real world than the cut-and-dried, pure privacy protections we have in place now. But those protections are today more honored in the breach than in reality. We need a solution that is more in sync with today's technological realities, and what I've suggested should, I think, at least get us a little bit closer. So let's turn our focus from the government to the collection of private data by the commercial sector. Here we see a whole different set of challenges. On the one hand, the Constitution doesn't apply to private commercial actors, so that's not even a potential avenue for protecting privacy. On the other hand, the field is wide open for Congress to regulate in this area. Unlike government data mining, where the purpose is at least theoretically to protect national security, there is no urgent interest in commercial data mining. So when Congress steps in to limit it, the only negative consequence is that it upsets some settled commercial expectations. Now, I don't mean to diminish the costs involved with that kind of interference in the market. Far from it. In fact, at this point, the value of commercial use of big data has become so deeply embedded in the business model of cyberspace that it will be very difficult to modify. After all, why do you think that Facebook and Google and lots of other web-based services are free? You're getting something of pretty significant value from them, and for this part of the service, you're not paying a penny. That's one of the reasons why, if you think back to our economics and regulation lecture, it turned out that you were paying maybe one-tenth of what your personal utility value for Internet access is. But, of course, you're paying in another way, with information about you. Commercial companies value that information. It lets them know what to sell you or how to try and influence you. In a very real way, some web services are free to you precisely because the accumulation of your data is their product. Now, if we change that business model, and we can, 
then in the end, you'll have to pay for social media that is currently free. Here, however, we're already moving toward a system that looks more like my consequence idea of privacy. In order to protect your privacy and prevent the misuse of your data, you need to know what will happen to that data, and you need to be able to control the use of it. Slowly, the laws are moving that way. Increasingly, companies are being criticized for how they use your data, and they are changing what they do. Throughout the world, but especially in Europe, free web services are being called to account and told to publicize what they do, and to build in options that allow you to manage how your data is collected and used. It isn't pretty, and the commercial sector is resisting, but the trend is pretty clear. Meanwhile, here in the United States, we will almost certainly move in the near future to a, a do-not-track rule. Just like you can put yourself on a do-not-call list to avoid telemarketers, we may soon have a do-not-track list that you can sign up for that would prohibit anyone, except those you give permission to, from tracking your web traffic. Now, the truth is that do not call doesn't work perfectly. I know I still get too many junk calls. But it is better than the unregulated time before the law. And I expect that the same will be true of do not track when and if Congress and the executive branch get it up and running. Keep in mind, though, that any revision to existing privacy rules will face significant challenges. There is a growing connection between the commercial and political uses of your data. And politicians and political institutions may not want to see the privacy rules changed. For example, it is said that President Obama's 2012 re-election campaign had one of the largest and most effective databases ever, merging commercial data like your magazine subscriptions with your voting records to target individual voter preferences. If that kind of use of your data is effective, and the president was re-elected after all, how likely is Washington to ban it? So let me end this lecture looking at the subject of privacy from a different direction. This is, after all, a flip side to the loss of privacy. There are many in the world who see it as a gain in transparency. And this is especially so for governments. We're quickly coming to the point where governments won't be able to keep secrets very well just like citizens are losing their privacy. One example from the last few years tells that story better than any analysis I could give you. Our case in point is a very macabre one involving the death of a Hamas operative in Dubai. On January 19, 2010, Hamas commander Mahmoud al-Mabhu, one of the founders of the group's military wing, was murdered in his hotel. Suspicion naturally fell immediately on Israel, since the government would be one of the few in the world with both a motive to kill al-Mabhu and the means to do so. Suspicion soon became proof. The law enforcement authorities in Dubai were able to identify a hit squad with more than 20 members who were responsible for the killing, many of whom had traveled to Dubai on fraudulent passports. How they did it shows just how hard it is to keep secrets these days. To begin with, some of the team were spotted on security camera footage in the hotel, 
acting suspiciously. Two were seen putting on disguises in the bathroom, and two others hung out in the lobby in tennis clothes for hours on end. But the hotel surveillance footage was just the beginning of the story. According to an Israeli investigative reporter, Ronan Bergman, the hit team apparently did not anticipate the ability of the Dubai authorities to piece together the bits of data from across disparate databases. For starters, the hit team's activities were tracked through a series of transactions using prepaid debit cards. The operatives all used the same type of card issued through Metabank in, of all places, Iowa. They were also connected through phone call records. The team members used phone numbers in Austria as relay stations to route calls amongst themselves. As Bergman puts it, quote, Since dozens of calls were made to and from this short list of Austrian numbers over a period of less than two days, the moment that the cover of a single operative was blown and his cell phone records became available to the authorities, all others who called or received calls from the same number were at risk of being identified. Another piece of the puzzle was a trick that America had taught the Dubai authorities, the analysis of travel records. Dubai authorities searched their customs and immigration databases to identify anyone who entered and left Dubai shortly before and after the killing. They then cross-referenced this result against lists of visitors who were in Dubai during Al-Mabhu's previous visits to the United Arab Emirates. This created a target list of possible suspects, which could be matched against hotel registries. Video footage of check-in then matched faces to names. As a consequence, the Dubai authorities were able to compile a meticulous video record of the hit team from the Israeli intelligence service, the Mossad, both on the day of the murder and in their earlier visits to Dubai. Finally, the Dubai authorities published the passport photos of the suspects, leading in the end to a near certain identification. And of course, it isn't just the Mossad who has problems. All spy agencies do. The development of technology has made it very difficult, for example, for an undercover spy to move around with a covert false identity. Too many trails in cyberspace can now provide evidence that a false identity is a recent creation. The credit card was issued recently. The biometric data on the passport links to a person's true identity in another database somewhere. The claimed employment record can't be verified. All of these basic background facts are now subject to ready research on the network, making revelation of the falsity an increasingly easier task we may well be reaching the point where human spying with a fictitious identity is a thing of the past, thanks to the Internet. While governments might think that's a problem, some people might think it's a good thing. If you want another example of this new transparency, think of this. I'm sure you remember how the U.S. Navy SEALs flew into Abbottabad and killed Osama bin Laden. Before they did that, they practiced on a mock-up of bin Laden's compound, constructed in secret. Well, maybe not so secret. It turns out that Bing Maps had a satellite picture of the facility in its storage. Someone eventually recognized it for what it was and made it public in October 2012, long after the actual facility had been destroyed 
and bin Laden killed. But what if the picture had been public before the raid? How you feel about transparency may depend upon whether you favor or oppose what it reveals. And even if you think that bin Laden is an easy case, you probably agree that there will be harder cases in the gray area. Big data, I think, is here to stay. And it will be a significant challenge to determine the right answers to many of the questions posed in this lecture. My vision is that we will have a different answer depending on the context, with different rules for, say, determining who can work at a nuclear facility from those that determine when we can deny someone the ability to board an airplane. Yet these are the questions that must be answered. The improvements in computational power and data storage will not slow down, and we cannot expect to stop the deployment of new anonymity-invasive technology. I suspect that any effort to do so is doomed to failure before it's begun. So rather than vainly trying to stop progress or trying to fit the new technologies into old principles of privacy that no longer apply, we'll need to go about the business of answering the hard policy questions. Instead of reflexively opposing technological change, in my judgment, a wiser strategy is to accept the change and work within it to channel it in beneficial ways. This will require a rethinking of privacy, both a reconception of what we think it means and a reconfiguration of how we think it's to be protected. It may be true that Privacy is dead, but for those who truly want to protect privacy, the motto should be, privacy is dead, long live the new privacy. As communication technology moves to cyberspace, law enforcement and national security officials are becoming frustrated. The messages that travel through cyberspace are encrypted and broken up into packets, so they can't be intercepted. We call this the going dark problem, and it's serious enough that I'm going to devote this entire lecture to it because our criminal and counterterrorism agents are losing the ability to listen in on the conversations of crooks, terrorists, and spies. Here's an example. In 2010, the government of India approached Research in Motion, RIM. They're the manufacturers of BlackBerry devices. They approached them with a demand. India wanted to monitor the encrypted emails and BlackBerry messages which are a form of internet chat that passed across RIM's servers between corporate clients. And it wanted help in decrypting the encrypted messages. All of this was legal under Indian law. And it was, the Indian government argued, essential to allow it to combat terrorism. Finally, they added, if you don't give us this access, well then... We'll pull your wireless license and close down BlackBerry in India. Faced with the loss of more than one million Indian corporate customers, RIM compromised. It found a way to share with the Indian government 
where the encrypted messages the government wanted were, in effect, identifying the servers where the information originated without actually decrypting the messages themselves. In making this arrangement, RIM nicely illustrated two distinct yet linked issues that relate to the security of cyber communications and are deeply embedded in all aspects of cybersecurity. One is the issue of encryption. When and how communications and information can be encoded and decoded so that only the people you want to read the information can have access to it. The other is wiretapping. That is, whether and under what rules someone can intercept messages in transit and divert or copy them for their own purposes. The linkage between the two seems obvious. Wiretapping a message you cannot decrypt still leaves the content of the message concealed. And even unencrypted information is safe if the transmission channels are absolutely secure. Those who work in cybersecurity want both capabilities to intercept or divert information, and to decode it so that they can read its contents. And therein hangs our tale. India is not alone in its desire to read people's encrypted mail. Other governments from Dubai and China to the United States have the same interests, for good or for ill. Indeed, in late 2012, the United States government disclosed plans to expand its wiretapping laws to apply to encrypted email transmitters like BlackBerry, social networking websites like Facebook, and software that allows direct peer-to-peer messaging like Skype. Peer-to-peer messaging, by the way, means that you talk directly to someone else. There is no central switching point. Even Google has a central point where emails are stored as former CIA director David Petraeus found out to his regret when his correspondence with his mistress was uncovered in late 2012. But Skype and other peer-to-peer services do not. The United States considers this expansion in wiretapping important to combat espionage, crime, and war in cyberspace. But it may also be a harbinger of increased government intrusion into the communications of its private citizens. The idea behind encryption as a defensive mechanism is not, as we shall see, a perfect solution. But what it can do, if done properly, is ensure that your information is confidential and can't be read by anyone else. It also can, using modern algorithms, provide you with a means of confirming that the information has not been tampered with in any way. Encoding information can keep it secret and sealed. Properly used, it can also allow you to share information with a trusted partner while excluding others. But this expansion of cryptographic capabilities to protect cyber networks comes with an uncertain cost to order and governance. Advances in cryptographic technology have made it increasingly difficult for individuals to crack a code. Now, code breaking is as old as code making, of course. But as the run of technology has played out, encryption increasingly has an advantage over decryption. And recent advances have brought us to the point where decryption can, in some cases, be effectively impossible. This has the positive benefit of allowing legitimate users to protect their lawful secrets, 
but it also has the inevitable effect of distributing a technology that can protect malevolent uses of the Internet. If the U.S. government or Syrian activists can encrypt their data, so can China or the Russian mob or a Mexican drug cartel. An alternative strategy that works in concert with encryption is to make your information transmission immune to interception. Here, too, the changes wrought by Internet technology have made interception more difficult and enhanced the security of communications. In the world of telephone communications, for example, intercepting a communication was as simple as attaching two alligator clips to the right wire. That's where we get the word wiretapping from. Communications through the Internet are, you'll remember, wholly different. The information being transmitted is broken up into small packets that are separately transmitted along different routes and then reassembled when they arrive at their destination. This disassembly of the data makes effective interception appreciably more difficult. So these two technological developments have led to controversy over critical policy issues that bear on cybersecurity today. Can, for example, a government require the manufacturers of encryption technology to limit their distribution to prevent strong cryptography from falling into malevolent hands? And can they require communications transmission companies to ensure that the government has access to those communications? Can they, in effect, require that code makers build in a back door by which they can access and decrypt encoded messages? And can they require internet service providers ISPs, to provide them access to the data as it transits the net. And if they can, under what rules would these backdoors be accessed? At the whim of a government? Or only with an appropriate court order? Under what sorts of standards? Encryption, or secret writing, is one of the oldest forms of human activity. Secret coding has been around almost as long as there have been secrets worth keeping. One of the earliest instances is recorded in the histories by Herodotus, who described how secret writing techniques saved the Greeks from being conquered by Xerxes, the king of Persia. A Greek, witnessing the buildup of the Persian fleet, sent a message to Sparta, warning of Xerxes' plans. To keep the message from being intercepted, he concealed the writing beneath the wax covering of a wood tablet. Forewarned and prepared, the Greeks were able to assemble their navy and to defeat the Persian fleet at the Battle of Salamis. Conceptually, encryption involves three separate components that come together. The plain text, the algorithm, and the key. Now, the plain text is the substance of the message that the sender wants to convey. Of course, this information doesn't have to be a text at all. It can be the numerical firing code for a nuclear missile, or the formula for Coca-Cola products, or quite literally any data of any form that is more valuable to the sender if not known by someone else. The algorithm is a general system of encryption. In other words, a general set of rules for transforming a plaintext. An example of an algorithm is a cipher, where, say, each letter of the plaintext, and let's assume it's actually a written text, is replaced with another letter. The algorithm here is replace each letter with another. The third and most vital component of an encryption system 
is the key. That is the specific set of instructions that will be used to apply the algorithm to a particular message. A cipher key might therefore be replace the original letter with the letter which is five letters after it in the English alphabet. Using that simple algorithm and key, the plain text cat would then be converted to the word HFY, and that result would now be known as the cipher text. The critical feature, of course, is that, as an initial premise at least, only someone who has the algorithm and the key can decrypt the cipher text. So even if the text is physically intercepted, the contents remain confidential. Now, we've been creating ciphertext for quite a long time. Earliest mentions of coded writing can be found in the Kama Sutra, which counsel women to record their liaisons in secret writing. Julius Caesar's use of codes was so common that the type of algorithm he used, the, the very letter shift system we just talked about, is actually sometimes called the Caesar shift cipher. Of course, where some seek to keep secrets, others seek to reveal them. It is one of the truisms of encryption that the key to keeping a secret is the key, not the algorithm. The algorithm, the general method, is often too widely known to be usefully kept secret. So the strength of the key, how hard it is to guess, defines how good the encryption product is. Let's return to the Caesar shift cipher. If we restrict ourselves to just shifting letters of the alphabet, there are only 25 possible keys to use, depending upon how far down the alphabet we shift the letters. Now, that's a pretty weak key. If someone knows the general algorithm, the key can be cracked with brute force in a short period of time. That means all they have to do is try each of the 25 possible keys, and eventually one of them will work. Now, if we loosen the algorithm a bit, however, and instead of a shift rule, apply a rule that allows any rearrangement of the 26 letters of the English alphabet, then the number of keys increases astronomically to well over 400 septillion possible arrangements. That's a four followed by 24 zeros. That makes a brute force effort to discover the key by trying every possible one difficult indeed. But brute force is not the only method of breaking a cipher. Since at least the 9th century, when the method was first reported by Arab scholars, it has been well established that a cipher can be broken by frequency analysis rather than brute force. Frequency analysis is relatively simple to describe. It rests on the knowledge that, for example, in English, the letter E is the most common vowel. Other common letters in regular usage include A, I, N, O, and T. Now, with this knowledge, derived from analysis that's external to the code, the deciphering of a ciphertext is made much easier. It is far more likely than not that the most frequently used cipher letter, whatever it may be, represents one of these common English letters. In a ciphertext of any reasonable length, there is virtually no chance, for example, that the most common cipher letter is being used to signify a Q or a Z. This sort of knowledge makes decryption easier and reduces the need for a brute force approach. Indeed, it's a fair assessment of the art of cryptography that until the dawn of the computer era, those decrypting ciphers had the upper hand. Either the keys themselves could be stolen or they could be decrypted using sophisticated techniques like frequency analysis. 
even the notoriously difficult German Enigma code from World War II eventually yielded to frequency analysis. That code was used to send orders to German U-boats, and it was eventually cracked by the English cryptographers at Bletchley Park. Their thing stood for a number of years. Those who wanted to keep secrets were at a fundamental disadvantage. In order to transmit a secret message, they first had to exchange a secret key to the message. Besides the possibilities of backwards analysis to determine what the key was, there were all sorts of problems with the exchange of keys in the first instance. They could be lost, stolen, revealed, or compromised in any number of ways. By their very nature, private keys were only good for as long as they were private. In the late 1970s, however, enterprising cryptographers developed a way to encrypt information using the multiplication of two extremely large prime numbers and certain one-way mathematical functions. Most mathematical functions, like addition and subtraction, work in both directions. You can get the results from the precursors or the precursors from the results, so to speak. A one-way function is one that only works in one direction. Here's the best analogy I can give you. You can get a nice omelet from eggs, but you can't get unbroken eggs from an omelet. Some math functions work like that too, only in one direction. Now, with one-way functions, someone who wants to receive encrypted messages can publish the results of the extremely large multiplication and a one-way function as a public key. People who want to send this person a message can use the public key to encrypt their message. And since only the creator knows how to break down this number back to its original primes, only he can decrypt the message. Today, you can embed this type of encryption in your email system using a program that can be purchased over the internet for less than $100. If the users at both ends of the message use this form of public key encryption, the secret message they exchange between themselves becomes effectively undecryptable by anyone other than the key's creator. Unless, of course, a hacker attacks the creation of the key at its source by breaking into the key generation algorithm in some way. Now, this last scenario was thought to be entirely theoretical and outside of the box. Nobody could break into the key generation process until someone did. In March 2011, someone probably the Chinese, hacked into a company named RSA. RSA is named after its founders, Rivest, Shamer, and Edelman, who were some of the inventors of public key cryptography. RSA was the leading manufacturer of public sec encryption security key devices. Those are these little key fobs that people carry around and which generate random six-digit numbers every 60 seconds. RSA's product, known as the Secure ID token, was a way of granting remote access to a, a set of servers for people who were working off-site. But someone hacked in and stole the core of the random number generation code. Later, in May 2011, someone who had access to the stolen RSA data used that knowledge to attack the systems of Lockheed Martin, a major defense contractor, and they attempted to gain access to their system. Given the sophistication of the breach at RSA and the focus of the attack on a defense contractor, espionage rather than theft was suspected. And inferences have been drawn that another state actor, 
as I said, probably the Chinese, was behind the attack. Whatever the source, this experience demonstrates that for even the strongest of encryption keys, key security is vital. But the U.S. government is not likely to hack RSA or any other key generator because it's a violation of law and, by and large, the government is law-abiding. And so the government's solution is, if we can't decrypt information by analysis or brute force, we need to force those who manufacture encryption software to build into the system a backdoor decryption key that would allow the government to read any encrypted messages. These decryption keys would be stored or escrowed with a trusted third party, say a federal judge at the federal court who would only release the key under specified limited circumstances. Hence, this cluster of issues often goes by the name of key escrow, a system where the makers of technology would be required by law to include decryption keys that the government could get access to. Needless to say, many privacy advocates oppose this effort, and their opposition has so far been successful. In the 1990s, the FBI sought to require encryption technology manufacturers to include just such a backdoor that went by the name of Clipper Chip. In part, opposition to Clipper was based on civil liberties objections. Many people were concerned that the backdoor would be used for political purposes rather than to, say, combat crime. But opposition was also based on a practical realization that the government itself was a beneficiary of strong encryption to protect its own secrets. A backdoor into encryption programs would not necessarily be available only to the U.S. government, after all. The opposition also recognized that the U.S. has no monopoly on the development of encryption algorithms. If the U.S. required backdoors in American products, purchasers abroad would naturally tend to favor non-American products. And our own national security would have a backdoor primarily into our own secrets. Indeed, At this juncture, encryption technology is widely available with exceedingly strong encryption keys. For free software, for example, that provided by TrueCrypt.org, is readily available and easy to install, as are open-source public key encryption programs. In effect, with the death of the clipper chip backdoor movement, it is now possible to encrypt data in a way that cannot be decrypted after even a year of effort. So, just as changes in cyber technology have made encryption a reality, they've also come close to ending the practice of wiretapping. Pre-internet, wiretap was an easy physical task. Early telephony worked by connecting two people who wished to communicate through a single continuous wire, typically made of copper. The image that captures this concept most readily is of a telephone operator moving plugs around on a board, and by that effort physically establishing an end-to-end wire connection between the two speakers. That made wiretapping easy. All that was required was attaching a wire to a terminal post and then hooking the connection up to a tape recorder. The interception didn't even need to be made at the Central Public Switch Telephone Network, or PSTN switching station. Any place on the line would do. And there was, with limited exceptions, only one telephone company, AT&T, and only one system. So 
Coordination with the PSTN was easy if it was authorized. Today, the problem is more complex. In addition to cellular phones, we now have instant messaging and email and text messaging for written communications. If you want to communicate by voice, you can use Skype, that's the web-based video conferencing system, or Google Chat, which is an embedded browser-based chat program. Businesses use web teleconferencing tools for teleconferences, and many people, particularly in the younger generation, communicate while present in virtual worlds through their avatars. Twitter and Facebook allow instant communication between large groups of people. In short, we've created an almost infinite number of ways in which one can communicate. A good example is from the 2009 film, He's Just Not That Into You. One of the characters, Mary, played brilliantly by Drew Barrymore, bemoans the proliferation of communications methods. Quote, I had this guy leave me a voicemail at work, so I called him at home, and then he emailed to my BlackBerry, and so I texted to his cell, and now you just have to go around checking all these different portals just to get rejected by seven different technologies. When combined with the packet-switching nature of internet web transmissions and the development of peer-to-peer networks, remember, those are the networks that are completely do away with a centralized server, the centralized telephone network has become a dodo. With these changes, the laws and policies for authorized wiretapping have effectively become obsolete. The law enforcement and intelligence communities face two challenges in administering wiretap laws in the age of Internet. One of law and one of technology. The legal issue is relatively benign and in some ways unencumbered by technical complexity. We need a series of laws that define when and under what circumstances the government may lawfully intercept a communication. For the most part, the authorization issues are ones involving the updating of existing authorities to apply explicitly to new technologies. The technical issue is far harder to solve. Precisely how can the desired wiretap be achieved? In 1994, Congress attempted to address the legal problem through the Communications Assistance for Law Enforcement Act, known as CALEA. CALEA's purpose was to ensure that all law enforcement and the intelligence agencies would not be left behind the technology curve. It did so by requiring telecommunications providers to build the ability to intercept communications into their evolving communication systems. And so the providers of the then-new digital technologies of cell phones and email services were required to create a way of intercepting these new forms of communication, interception methods that were made available to law enforcement if a search warrant was issued. But that was a generation ago. And that's an eternity in cyber time. Unsurprisingly, as technology has moved forward, the law has not kept pace. Nothing today requires the manufacturers of new communications technologies. Video and audio communication systems like GoToMeeting or voice over internet protocol transmission systems like Google Voice to have similar interception capabilities. Quite literally, for some systems, even if a lawful order were forthcoming from a court, there would be no there there, no place in the system to hook in the figurative alligator clips and intercept the communication. Naturally, 
This means that cyber criminals, cyber spies, and cyber warriors are increasingly migrating to alternative communication systems, ones like Skype and virtual worlds that are completely disconnected from the traditional public-switched telephone networks, and even from the centralized email system operated by companies like Google. And as we've already discussed, the distributed nature of communication via these systems makes message interception extremely difficult. To compensate, the government must use sampling techniques to intercept portions of a message, and then, when a problematic message fragment is encountered, apply sophisticated methods to reassemble the entire message. Often, the reassembly is achieved by arranging for the whole message to be redirected to a government endpoint. The FBI developed such a system in the late 1990s called Carnivore. It was designed to sniff packets of information for targeted messages. When the Carnivore program became public, the uproar over this sort of interception technique forced the FBI to end the program. Now, it is said that the National Security Agency, the NSA, uses a packet sniffing system called Echelon that it is significantly more effective for intercepting foreign communications traffic than Carnivore ever was. Indeed, according to the New York Times, the Echelon system was at the core of the NSA's post-9-11 domestic surveillance system. While little is publicly known about the capacity of the Echelon system, one observer, an European Union parliamentary investigation, has estimated that the system could intercept 3 million faxes, telephone calls, or emails per minute. In order for a system like Carnivore or Echelon to work, however, the routing system must ensure either that traffic is routed to the sniffer along the way or that the sniffer is physically located between the two endpoints. But therein lies the problem. Many of the peer-to-peer systems are not configured to permit routing traffic to law enforcement sniffers even if we wanted to. To address these problems, the U.S. government has spoken publicly of its intent to seek an amendment to CALEA in early 2010, and then again in late 2012. The director of the FBI sought legislation to extend CALEA's wiretapping requirements for traditional telecommunications providers to digital communications technologies. Doing so would, according to the government, close a growing gap in existing surveillance capabilities that increasingly places criminal or espionage activity behind a veil that the government cannot pierce, a phenomenon the government calls going dark. Manufacturers of new communications technologies would, to the extent possible, be required to build in centralized access points for law enforcement and counterterrorism officials to connect to with court authorization. Now, for now, this is just a request, but I suspect it's one that Congress will give serious consideration to. But even the amendment of CALEA only gets the government so far. Let's consider an individual who encrypts his own messages before he sends them across the Internet or encrypts his own data on his computer. He holds his own key. Can he be forced to give it up? Courts have yet to determine whether or not an effort to compel that individual to disclose the decryption key constitutes a violation of his Fifth Amendment privilege. 
The Fifth Amendment says that nobody can be compelled to give evidence against himself. We think of it as a privilege against self-incrimination. Is being forced to give up your decryption key a form of compelled self-incrimination? In general, the answer to the question will turn on whether disclosing the decryption key is thought of more like the production of a physical object, like giving over the physical key to a lockbox, which under current law may be compelled, or like the production of a person's mental conceptions, such as the memorized combination to a safe, which may not be. The reality is that these Fifth Amendment considerations are likely to be of limited applicability. In the end, for practical reasons, the government usually gets access to the encrypted information. For one thing, most people don't encrypt at the endpoint, relying on the encryption built into the applications, for example, peer-to-peer applications like Skype. But for that system, the encryption keys are held by a centralized provider who uses the user-generated keys to enable encrypted communications from a variety of different platforms where the user might log in. In effect, to make the system more convenient, the user, you, allows the third-party coordinator, here Skype, to have access to the key. And in doing so, Fifth Amendment protections are likely waived. Moreover, despite the widespread availability of encryption tools that provide solid security, it seems that nobody uses them, (laughs) not even the bad guys. Every year, the United States court system publishes a report on the wiretapping activities of the federal government. In 2010, Of the more than 3,100 wiretaps authorized that year, only six of the wiretap parties had encryption in use. And even those six cases didn't stop the government's efforts. It was able to get the evidence it was seeking every time through alternate sources. So finally, we need to recognize that the issues raised by the government's push for greater wiretapping authority are more policy questions than legal questions. Here are just two. What would be the security implications of requiring interception capabilities in new technologies? Building in these capabilities would necessarily introduce potential vulnerabilities that could be exploited, not by those who would have authorized access, but rather by hackers who might find a way to crack the capabilities of the protection itself. That actually happened to the Greek government in 2010 when their own backdoor was used probably by a rival intelligence agency, to get inside government communications. And finally, how would granting the U.S. government the access it wants affect international perceptions of American conduct? Since 2010, various foreign governments, for example, Dubai or the Indian request we talked about at the start of this lecture, have made efforts to gain access to Internet communications. It is difficult if not impossible, for the United States to oppose such efforts in international forms when its own policy favors expansions of interception capabilities domestically. Indeed, our stated public policy favors Internet freedom, in large part as a way of energizing democracy movements around the globe. That policy is difficult to square with a domestic move toward greater governmental interception capabilities. Encryption and wiretapping capabilities are yet another example of the type of problem we've come to expect in the cyber domain. They bring benefits and cause problems, and any solution brings with it problems of its own. In the end, 
we will probably see some increased government access to unencrypted internet communications. But at least in the U.S., only under the control of the courts. In our next lecture, we'll turn to what is, in my judgment, the very hardest problem we face. Figuring out how to make sure that the hardware that makes our computers run isn't a security problem itself. Let me start this lecture with a true story, albeit a bit of an obscure one, from back when I was working for the Department of Homeland Security. It's about one of the most significant cyber dangers we face, from a place where we would least expect it. One day, I got called to a classified briefing that was conducted by the Office of the National Counterintelligence Executive, the NCIX. The NCIX, as its name implies, is the internal U.S. agency working for the Director of National Intelligence, whose job it is to counter the intelligence activities of our adversaries. In the olden days, they would be hunting Russian spies here in America. Today, in addition to the traditional things they do, they hunt cyber spies. The purpose of the briefing was an urgent lessons learned seminar based on a recent cyber intelligence failure. But unlike most such briefings, which, as you will by now have come to expect, involve a discussion of software attacks, this one was different. It was about an insider threat, and not a human insider threat, but a threat from inside our machines. We were warned about a specific type of machine that had been the subject of a malicious hardware attack. Its innards had been built in a way that allowed an adversary to gain vital information from the machine itself without a software attack from the outside. Now, I can't tell you much more than that. The specific machine and the specific kind of attack remain classified. In fact, the only reason I can even tell you that such attacks are possible is because the government has said so publicly. In testimony before the House of Representatives in July 2011, the Department of Homeland Security confirmed that it was aware of situations where electronic equipment had arrived preloaded with malware, spyware, or other forms of hardware intrusion. That's the topic of this lecture, one of the most vexing problems in the entire cybersecurity domain. It can be reduced to a single question. How do we know that the machines we're using are actually going to do the things we tell them to and not something else that could be harmful? The reality is that cyber threats can lurk not only in computer software, but also within the various routers, switches, operating systems, and peripherals that comprise the real-world manifestations of cyberspace. The problem is not unique to the cyber domain, History records several examples where a, a state actor has made hardware changes to its systems before selling them overseas. As a result, those systems were under the seller's control, or at least his influence. One hardware intrusion of the sort we're discussing involved production equipment. The Farewell Dossier is a collection of documents released by former Soviet KGB colonel 
Vladimir Vetrov, codenamed Farewell, who was a KGB spy run as a double agent by the French intelligence service. According to Farewell, in 1982, the United States supplied flawed gas generators and turbines for use by the Soviet Union in its gas pipelines. At least one former U.S. government official has said that our hardware and software operations against the pipelines caused a massive explosion. But hardware intrusions in the cyber world create the potential for harm on an even broader scale. In 2012, for example, Reuters reported that Android mobile phone systems using a chip manufactured by the Chinese company ZTE were subject to exploitation. If the phone received a text message, ZTEX1609523, the sender got complete control over the phone with access to all the data stored on it. ZTE said the backdoor was a mistake and apologized, which one wag said is a bit like finding a camera in your shower and your landlord saying, sorry about that, I'll fix it. And also in 2012, the Barnes & Noble bookstore reported that its credit card keypads had a hardware hack inside that sent PIN numbers back to members of Russian organized crime groups. And those are just two instances of a much broader concern. In 2009, AT&T was considering subcontracting some of its production work to a large Chinese telecom company, Huawei. As it was preparing to do so, AT&T got a phone call from the National Security Agency, the NSA, warning the company that if it wanted to continue providing equipment to the American government, it had better reconsider any contractual agreements with Huawei. The NSA called AT&T because of fears that China's intelligence agencies could insert digital trapdoors into Huawei's technology that would serve as a secret listening post in U.S. communications networks. Huawei says that the suspicions about its relationship with the Chinese government are false, and it formally asked the U.S. government to investigate the issue. An invitation that the House Permanent Select Committee on Intelligence accepted. And in late 2012, the committee issued its bipartisan report, concluding that Huawei had not been transparent with details of its operation. The Congress urged both American government and non-government purchasers to decline to use Huawei products. So this is why it's a matter of significant concern that over the past decades, the U.S. government has become increasingly reliant on commercial off-the-shelf technology, sometimes known by the acronym COTS, for much of its cyber supply needs. Indeed, counterterrorism experts have sometimes said that American reliance on COTS computer technology, which is often manufactured or maintained overseas, poses a greater vulnerability to U.S. cyber systems than traditional cyber attacks. This new hardware-based form of espionage is completely different from regular spying. When, for example, Private Bradley Manning allegedly downloaded files onto a CD-ROM to give to WikiLeaks, what he did wasn't in practice that much different than if he had copied the files on a photocopier. Quicker and easier, to be sure, but not categorically distinct. And the systems we have developed and put in place to protect against traditional insider threats of espionage 
security clearances, and background checks are also available to counter the human insider cyber threat. But we have no good systems in place, none, to counter insider threats that are inside our machines. What this troubling new activity really is, is an attack on our supply chain. An adversary might get into our communication system by subverting the manufacturing process long before the product that will be added to the system makes it to our shores. We call this an assurance problem, since we need to assure ourselves that the hardware works. The Cyberspace Policy Review, conducted by President Obama early in his first administration, put the problem this way. Quote, The challenge with supply chain attacks is that a sophisticated adversary might narrowly focus on particular systems and make manipulation virtually impossible to discover. End quote. Or as the Defense Science Board, which is a science review team reporting to the Secretary of Defense, said in 2007, quote, the current systems designs, assurance methodologies, acquisition procedures, and knowledge of adversarial capabilities and intentions are inadequate to the magnitude of the threat. Sadly, the situation has changed little since these reports were issued. For this reason, the Comprehensive National Cybersecurity Initiative, or CNCI, which was released in declassified form in 2010, identified global supply chain risk management as one of the initiatives critical to enhance cybersecurity. Yet the United States has a very limited set of systems in place to respond to this challenge. Indeed, there's a disconnect between our counterintelligence, which is often aware of risks to our cyber supply chain, and our purchasing systems, which do not have permission to access classified information regarding supply chain threats. Setting aside intelligence concerns, the idea of creating a blacklist of unacceptable products for purchase is fraught with problematic issues relating to liability and accuracy. And even if we could devise a means of giving the procurement process access to sufficient information, and even if liability issues could be overcome, it might well be the case that no significant alternative source of supply exists. We are dependent on foreign chips in the same way, for example, that we are dependent on foreign supplies of rare earth metals and, to a lesser degree, oil. Nor is the problem limited to the government, though that is often our focus. As evidenced by the examples we just discussed involving Android mobile phones, Barnes & Noble, and AT&T, it applies to the private sector, too. Consider this. In April 2012, it was disclosed that a Canadian company that makes equipment and software for critical industrial control systems had planted a backdoor login account in its flagship operating system, potentially allowing attackers to access the devices online. The backdoor, which cannot be disabled, is found in all versions of the rugged operating system made by RuggedCom. The login credential for the backdoor includes a fixed username, factory that was assigned by the vendor and can't be changed by customers. Using the back door, Rugged can access their customer systems for maintenance. That's why they built it in, so that they could help their customers. But a malicious actor can likewise access the system if he or she knows the access information. And 
we think of the Canadians as nice guys. Imagine what happens if bad guys do this sort of thing. So let me give you a better idea of the scope of the problem. Today, more than 97% of silicon chips, the essential innards of the computer, are manufactured outside of the United States. And each chip has more than 1 billion transistors. In 2008, the world manufactured 10 quintillion transistors. That's a one followed by 19 zeros. And if you want a sense of that number, think of this. We produce more transistors each year than the number of grains of rice harvested each year. Grains. So the reality is there is assuredly no way, none at all, to inspect all of the transistors and all of the chips that are manufactured and incorporated in our computers and copiers and printers and, and, and. And even if there were, or even if we were able to sample them randomly somehow, there is also no effective way to detect when a chip has been deliberately and maliciously modified. So, since we can't solve the problem from the bottom up by inspecting the chips, the only way to look at the problem is from the top down and ask what we know about who is making the chips and, I might add, the software we rely on. And at present, there are only two structures in operation within the U.S. government that provide a means of addressing supply chain security issues. And frankly, neither is particularly adept or well-suited to the task. One is the Committee on Foreign Investment in the United States, known as CFIUS. CFIUS is an interagency committee authorized to review transactions that could result in control of a U.S. business by a foreign company. CFIUS conducts those reviews in order to determine the effect of such transactions on the national security of the United States. If CFIUS determines that the proposed transaction poses a risk of some sort, it can prohibit the transaction altogether, or, far more frequently, it can enter into an agreement with the purchaser that puts in place mechanisms and requirements to reduce the risk. CFIUS was initially created to focus on the sale of companies that would result in foreign control of defense-critical industries. Back in the 1950s, it was about the sale of steel manufacturing plants or precision manufacturers of specialty defense products. In the post-9-11 world, CFIUS has come as well to focus on sales that will affect critical infrastructure. You may remember the now infamous attempted sale of American port facilities to a company known as Dubai Ports World in 2006, and how much concern that caused. Another significant case involved an Israeli cybersecurity company that was trying to buy an American company and eventually led to the cancellation of the proposed purchase. A similar process is managed by the Federal Communications Commission, or the FCC. Whenever it has concerns about the purchase of an interest in an American telecommunications company, the FCC refers those questions to an interagency working group from the executive branch known as Team Telecom. The team includes staff from the Department of Homeland Security and the Department of Justice and representatives from the FBI and the Departments of Commerce, Defense, State, and Treasury. 
Team Telecom reviews the transaction to determine if there might be a national security concern about the sale of an interest in an American telecommunications company to a foreigner. This is another way that the U.S. government can sometimes address cyber assurance concerns that result from a foreign purchase. But these are very limited tools. They apply only when a foreign company plans to purchase control of an American one. If the American company simply purchases a product from overseas, as AT&T was thinking about with Huawei, there is absolutely no way currently for anyone in the government to do more than express concern. And if you ask counterintelligence experts, which they fear more, American vulnerability to an external cyber attack on the one hand, or the potential compromise of the operation of the hardware innards of our computers and internet switches on the other, they almost certainly will say that the hardware threat is more challenging. The globalization of production for both hardware and software makes it virtually impossible to provide either supply chain or product assurance. The vulnerability is made acute by the fact that the U.S. government and the private sector have come to rely on COTS technology. These COTS technologies have many obvious advantages. They are generally cheaper than custom-built U.S. government in-house solutions. And because they're produced in the private sector, they are modified and upgraded more rapidly in a manner that's far more consistent with the current technology life cycle. Particularly in the cyber realm, where upgrades occur with increasing frequency, reliance on COTS allows government and the private sector to field the most modern equipment possible. To get a sense of how this state of affairs came about, consider this example of the COTS phenomenon as it applies in this case to software. As recounted in an international telecommunication union publication, quote, in the mid-1980s, the Department of Defense mandated the use of the ADA programming language. ADA never gained popularity in the commercial sector, which used programming language evolved from more common commercial programs such as COBOL, FORTRAN, C, and C++, end quote. In fact, ADA was a pretty good program. It did the conversion of analog to digital information faster than the other languages. But soon, faster microprocessors and digital sensors available in the commercial sector wiped out most of these advantages. As a result, ADA fell into disuse, and the DOD systems moved away from their specially designed non-commercial programming language to commonly available commercial ones. But in doing so, the United States adopted a structure that was vulnerable to the same types of attack and hacking as commercial systems. The vulnerabilities that come from running commercial operating systems on most government computers would not exist in the same way if our computers operated on a non-commercial proprietary governmental system. The same phenomena occurs in our hardware purchases. COT systems have an open architecture design. In other words, the hardware is compatible with the equipment from many different manufacturers. That's what makes it possible for you to plug in your new printer and, after loading the software, be up and running quickly, even if your printer manufacturer is Canon and your computer is from Hewlett-Packard. But because they are so open to hardware additions, few of the COT systems have good security. Worse yet, 
Knowledge of the design of the systems and their manufacture is increasingly outsourced to overseas production. We live in a world where a significant fraction of the innards of our computers are manufactured overseas, often in plants located in peer competitor nation states. There's no clear way to deal with these vulnerabilities. It is unlikely that the US government and private sector will return to a time when all of its systems were made in the USA. Uh, doing so would be prohibitively expensive and would forego a substantial fraction of the economic benefits to be derived from the globalization of the world's economy. And even if we could, a made in the USA response would not eliminate the COTS problem. Even hardware constructed in the United States could be built with malicious intent. It is true that the origin of hardware components creates a significant difference, though, in the nature of the problem. For US-built components, the threat is that an insider may use his access to insert malicious hardware or code in the system. In general, the quality control and security process at a US manufacturing plant will try and negate that threat. The same is true of other countries, especially in Europe, that are as concerned as we are about hardware assurance. But some countries, like China, are ones we might not be able to trust. The American government suspects that in some foreign countries, the security process is actually designed to help a foreign intelligence agency get access to the manufacturing system. We think, for example, that Huawei is just an arm of the Chinese government. That may be true, or it may not, but the suspicion lingers. And that's critical because manufacturing is where the checks must be done. It is significantly more difficult, in fact, almost impossible, as we've said, for a purchaser to conduct an inspection for hardware or software assurance. For one thing, there are literally billions of chips to inspect. And for another, we don't really have a way of spotting deliberate changes that shouldn't be there. The only real place for inspection is at the manufacturer's plant. And here's another problem. The risk is not just from the hardware purchases we make. Many of the service functions that our cyber domain requires are also purchased from foreign providers. Think of the commonplace complaint that all of the helplines for products and services we buy are answered in India. That's a service function that is outsourced. But the far more significant fact is that many of the repair and maintenance services used for our cyber systems are also provided by foreign suppliers. When a Cisco router goes down, the access and repair typically is not done by an American company. And so the risk is not just that we purchase hardware from overseas sources, but that we rely on the same sources for much of our operational repair and maintenance capacity. The CNCI recognized this vulnerability. Hence, it proposed an initiative to, quote, develop a multi-pronged approach for global supply chain risk management, end quote. But multi-pronged approach is often code for, this is a very big problem that we don't have a handle on. So it is distressing, though unsurprising, that the CNCI initiative to address this problem consists of little more than anodyne platitudes. Quote, this initiative will enhance federal government skills, policies, and processes to provide departments and agencies with a robust tool set to better manage and mitigate supply chain risks at levels commensurate with the 
criticality of and risk to their systems and networks. I fear that's little more than a promise to work hard on the problem. More concrete action is necessary, perhaps even action that is moderately intrusive on the free flow of globalized commerce. One possible answer to the COTS problem might be better intelligence collection. After all, if NSA or the CIA were able to glean from their sources information about potential hardware intrusions, that would be a good thing, or so it would seem. Some of that information may already have been assembled. Unfortunately, the complexity of how to get it to American manufacturers and consumers has so far prevented us from taking effective action. The problem is both a legal one and a practical one. For one thing, there are always issues that arise when we consider disclosing the results of the government's intelligence analysis. We risk revealing our own sources and methods. This will have practical importance for disclosures about supply chain security risks. Airing our concerns in in a public way, for example, announcing, don't buy that computer, will paint a very clear picture of what the government knows and often let our adversaries figure out how we know it. In addition, while the government may be in a position to say that the risk from a purchase is high, there are no guarantees, and that creates ambiguity for the private sector and procurement officers. How should the government respond to an inquiry from a domestic company that that is considering a systems purchase? especially, say, an inquiry from a company that provides support to the U.S. defense or intelligence community through its own manufacturing. Under current law, if a company asks about the government's knowledge of a supplier, the unfortunate answer they must receive is, we can't tell you. That's because the intelligence community has no authority to create, in effect, a blacklist of suspect suppliers in the supply chain. In any event, the effort would create all sorts of potential liability questions. How certain are you? How often must you update or modify your assessment? And what would be the resource commitment to do so? In short, the intelligence community can and does share concerns about such issues as hardware intrusions within the U.S. government, but it is legally disabled from sharing the same information with critical private sector stakeholders. That's a problem and an area that requires work. So what else can we do about this threat? To date, strategies to eliminate the risk are more or less non-existent, and those required to mitigate it seem to be mostly nibbling around the edges. The Defense Science Board, for example, recommends that we figure out which missions and systems are most critical and focus our efforts on them. Having some of our computers go down is bad, Having the ones that control the nuclear missiles get hacked, that's a lot worse. So maybe we focus our effort on the nuclear systems and leave the others to fend for themselves. That seems a bit like accepting defeat from the get-go. The board also recommended, and this makes perfect sense, that purchasers need to find out more about their suppliers. Who owns them? How trustworthy are they? What security measures do they have in place? These are questions that need to be asked. The answers may not eliminate the risk, but we can certainly start making some judgments about whom to trust. But asking those questions takes time and money, neither of which are in large supply these days. 
The reality, however, is that these steps will not eliminate the cyber assurance risk posed by the use of COT systems. And we really don't know where to go next. As the Cyberspace Policy Review put it, quote, a broad holistic approach to risk management is required rather than a wholesale condemnation of foreign products and services, end quote. But nobody in government is tasked with developing this holistic approach. Maybe we need to set somebody, the National Academy of Sciences, I don't know, maybe we need to set somebody on the problem. Here are a few suggestions of my own for additional steps that do not thus far appear to have been actively considered. Maybe we should expand governmental review authority to include situations where foreign entities take control of service activities that affect the cyber domain, or where foreign influence is achieved without purchasing full control, like, say, in a lease arrangement. Neither of these situations falls within the current authority of CFIUS or Team Telecom, yet the threat is no different whether Cisco's router production system is purchased by a foreign entity or all service for the routers is provided by that same foreign entity. We should also consider rules that would diversify the types of hardware and software systems that are used within the federal government. If every agency buys their chips from a single source and uses the same operating system, then we are much more vulnerable than if we have multiple sources of hardware and software. Diversification would, in effect, create a herd immunity against attack by malicious actors. Creating herd immunity might be as simple as changing the federal acquisition regulations to require that agencies practice diversity when purchasing COTS products. If we, in fact, believe that a monoculture of having a single major supplier is a problem for the federal government, it's also a problem for the private sector. To fix that, we might think about more stringent enforcement of the antitrust laws. This might compel the private sector to diversify its own operating systems. If we did this, many manufacturers would be quite upset. But it's something we should talk about. And then, perhaps most importantly, we need to invest the time and resources to systematically evaluate the security of the products provided by the suppliers. These evaluations ought to encompass a wide range of factors. Who owns the company? Who manages it? What is its physical security like? How often does it audit its own products for defects and or tampering? These are, are detailed questions of minutia, to be sure. But asking these sorts of questions is, as far as I can tell, the only way to reduce the risk of hardware intrusions across the board. Now, to be fair, these suggestions are moderately controversial. Yet it seems self-evident that in the absence of concerted action, the potential vulnerability posed by the reliance on COTS will not be reduced. The hard truth is discomforting. For as long as the purchase of hardware products occurs on the global market, which is to say for the foreseeable future and beyond, there will be a significant risk of hardware intrusion. That risk can never be eliminated. It can only be managed and reduced. And so we come to the end of our tour of various cyber vulnerabilities and critical policy issues. By now, you must have a headache and be ready to give up on solving these problems. Fear not. In the next lecture, I'm going to try and cheer you up. I'll give you some practical tips on what steps you can personally take to reduce your own risk. 
I won't be able to tell you how to get rid of all the risks that are out there, but at least you'll feel a little more optimistic and in control. Talk to you then. Don't worry. Be happy. No, really. I mean it. By this point in the course, you're probably completely dismayed. The Constitution doesn't protect you. Big data can expose your secrets. And we've just learned that you can't even trust the chips in your computer to work properly. But the truth is that you really can protect yourself to a much greater degree than you probably do. How to go about that is the topic of today's lecture. You don't have to become perfectly invulnerable to protect yourself in cyberspace. The only real way to do that is to turn off your computer and use it as a paperweight. Or maybe never buy a computer at all. But if you're listening to this course, that seems pretty unlikely. So what you really need to do is do a better job of reducing your own risks. If you improve your own security enough, that'll make the bad guys go looking for an easier mark. We call this the diversion effect. You know it from real life. Using the club on your car to lock your steering wheel doesn't prevent a break-in. Good car thieves can still defeat the club within a few minutes of effort. But in addition to being crooked, they're lazy and cautious. So rather than spend those minutes on your car, they just move to the next one down the line that doesn't have a club on it. We see the same thing in cyberspace. Here's an example. One tactic that some hackers use is called war driving. You can almost guess what it is from the name. They literally drive around in a car looking for open Wi-Fi networks. Sometimes they're just looking for free Wi-Fi access to piggyback on. But not infrequently, some use an open Wi-Fi network to hack into your personal computer. What they're particularly looking for are networks that are not encrypted. They can sometimes break Wi-Fi encryption, but it takes time and it's harder to do. So if you encrypt access to your wireless router by requiring a password, then the war drivers will just bypass your house and move on to your neighbor. So in this lecture, I'm going to give you some suggestions for how to make yourself safer in cyberspace. Now, one preliminary note before I begin. In a 30-minute lecture, I don't have the time to give you step-by-step -step instructions on how to implement these suggestions. But almost everything you need to know is on the web somewhere. If you want a password to protect your wireless system, for example, just go to Google and search for the instruction manual for your wireless router. It's all there. And if you still can't figure it out, find a 15-year-old in your family and ask them to help. I guarantee they can do the necessary technical work for you. So what kind of steps can you take to make your cyber presence a harder nut to crack? First and foremost, keep in mind that cybersecurity is basically a human problem. The easiest place to make a change is right between your ears. A few simple changes in how you behave can go a long way to making you safer.
Because, you see, almost all of the vulnerabilities in a network are exploited principally through human error. You need to recognize that access to your network is most easily achieved through some form of trickery, what we call social engineering. In fact, one of the most infamous hackers of all time, Kevin Mitnick, has said that he is nearly 100% successful in tricking people into giving him access to their systems. According to him, quote, there is no Microsoft patch for stupidity, or rather, gullibility. One of the most famous, or perhaps infamous, examples of this is a study recently completed by the U.S. government in which the testers left USB thumb drives on the ground in the parking lots outside of various federal office buildings. One would have expected, indeed hoped, that federal employees well-schooled in cybersecurity would know better than to plug an unknown USB drive into a government computer system. On the contrary, of those who picked them up, 60% plugged the devices into their computers in their office. We know this because the only thing on the drives was a program that reached out through the Internet like a beacon and reported back, I've been plugged in. Even worse, if the drive or CD case had an official logo on it, something like the Great Seal of the United States with the eagle, our well-trained, cyber-savvy government employees and contractors plugged in 90% of the bogus mobile media. I suppose that means that official logos make mobile media much safer. And, of course, the employees are just like you and me. We're not likely to be any more cautious than they are, but we should be. So here's a good rule of thumb to keep in mind. If it's too good to be true, it's almost certainly too good to be true. Free thumb drives aren't free. And when you get an email that says it has a link to your favorite actor or actress in a compromising photo... Don't click on the link. In 2012, the movie star whose online photos resulted in the most hacking attempts was Emma Watson, the young actress who played Hermione in the Harry Potter series and who grew up to become quite a beautiful young woman. Apparently, she appeals to a certain cyber demographic, and so she's a good way of attracting thoughtless clicks. Here's another vulnerability. Tragedy attracts sympathy. In the aftermath of a natural disaster, like, say, the 2010 earthquake in Haiti or Hurricane Sandy in 2012, lots of good people set up websites in order to collect money and goods through cyberspace. Malicious actors are attracted to money like moths to flame. A significant fraction of those sites are frauds. If you're going to give money to people in need and... You should, because they need your help. Go only to sites you know and have chosen yourself, like the American Red Cross. Don't click on links in random emails that come to your inbox. Similarly, most of the official-looking emails you do receive from your service provider or your bank are fake. Remember the term phishing with a PH? The text of those messages is the bait. And you, unfortunately are supposed to be the fish. If Google sends you an email and says that you need to log into your account because they think it's been hacked, don't click on the link in the message. That's the link that hacks your account. And take a minute to turn off the auto-run function on your computer. That way, 
If you do click on a dangerous link, the invading programs that are inside it won't start running automatically. So the first and most important lesson is just one of education. Learn to practice good computer hygiene. Think before you click. That's not just a slogan. It's good practice. So now let's talk passwords. If you're like me, you hate them. You want to make them hard to guess, but then they're hard to remember. And if you make them easy, then you make yourself an easy mark. And if you write them down on a sheet of paper, well, then, of course, you'll lose the paper or someone will steal it. So what should you do? First, resist the temptation to go with easy passwords. I know that's easier said than done, but you really must. Your password's primary function isn't to protect you from some petty thief with a low IQ. Nowadays, cunningly designed computer programs are trolling the web for vulnerable accounts. Most password-cracking programs have a huge dictionary of the top 500,000 passwords or so, and they just check those first. If yours is on that list, you're, well, the technical term is toast. Did you know that the most common password of all is password? And the second most common is 123456. Don't use those. But also, don't use obvious personal information, like your birthday, either. If you are listening to the Big Data Lecture, you know that can be found on the web pretty easily. And don't use common cultural reference points. Do you have any idea how many people use Muggle or Frodo or Bruce Springsteen as their passwords? So what should you do? Well, first, you might consider a password safe. That's a program where you can store all of your passwords to various websites and such so that you and only you can find and use them when you need them. Then you protect that one program with a really strong password, a master password. It may be hard to remember, but since you won't need to worry about remembering all the others anymore, you can do it. Norton has a password safe program that it calls identity safe. Another good one is called LastPass. The difference is that Norton is on your laptop, while LastPass is a web-based program, which means that you can use it on any computer that is connected to the web. And how do you create a strong master password? Well, there are lots of tricks out there, but here's one that I use. Think of your favorite line from your favorite movie or play or book. Or if you prefer... Think of the opening line of the last book you read or the last 10 street names of streets you've lived on, something that you know. Then make a password from the first letter of the first 10 or 15 words in that movie line or of those street names. So to take a shorter example, if your favorite line in a movie was, here's looking at you, kid, from Casablanca, your password would be H-L-A-Y-K. And then you can vary the capitalization, say every third letter is capitalized, and add in some numbers. Again, pick ones that only you might know, like the last four digits of your home phone number back from when you were just a child. You remember those, others don't know them. 
throw in an asterisk just for fun, and in the end, your password might look like this. Capital H, L-A, capital Y, little k, asterisk 0956. Perfectly sensible to you because you created it, but utter gibberish to anyone else. Three final tips about passwords. First, for the passwords you use on websites and store in your vault, don't use the same password that you use for your master password. You don't want anyone to be able to find that all-important password in more than one place. In fact, don't make a habit of making all passwords the same. Have several different ones for different types of websites. They don't all have to be strong ones. You can use a, a really strong one, similar to the one we just created for your vault, but different in details, for your bank. But use a, a different, weaker password for the chat board, where you just log in and and talk about Civil War history. That way, if your Civil War site gets hacked, you don't lose your bank account, too. And always, always, always use a different password at work than you do at home. So at least if your work password is cracked, you haven't given the hackers the key to your home computer. Second, if the information you're trying to protect is really important, consider using a password alternative like a fingerprint scanner or a security token. That's expensive, but if you have a new patent coming out, maybe you should do it to protect your investment. And finally, if you do follow my advice and use a password safe, please, 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 make sure you pick a master password whose construction you will remember. Because if you hide all your passwords in a password safe and then forget the key to the safe, You've lost all your passwords. I've actually done that to myself, so trust me on this one. The results can be very, very painful. Now, good computer hygiene and good passwords are important, but they can only take you so far. As we saw with the Chinese hack of the RSA security company in Lecture 14, even the most sophisticated users can be fooled. The most effective attacks on a network often come as emails or files that look very much like the real thing. Even the corporate recruitment plan for the next year or the directory document that looks like it comes from a corresponding organization can have malicious software in it. Here, the best thing you can do to prevent those sorts of intrusions is to make sure that you have an effective set of firewall and intrusion detection systems. And so should everyone who connects to your system. And that's true whether it's all three of your kids' computers connected to your home system or the much larger system at your office. It costs money, but it is money well spent. Make sure that you get these systems, keep them up to date, and use them. Lots of people turn them off because they slow the system down. Don't. That's like not locking your front door, and it's just as ineffective. Now, some people think that they don't need a computer security system because the, their operating system that they use is immune. They're wrong. That's a frequent misconception of particularly Apple users. But Apple products aren't immune from hacking at all. They're just targeted less frequently because fewer people use them. That's the same reason that Willie Sutton robbed banks and not grocery stores, because banks were where most of the money was. But that's changing. As Apple products become more widely used, 
And especially as the demographic of Apple users continues to trend upscale, we are increasingly seeing efforts by hackers to attack the Apple operating system, often with real success. Mobile devices are also not immune. In fact, their protections are often weaker than those on laptops, precisely because they've been less frequently targeted. Up until now, that is. Lately, we've seen an upsurge in hacking attacks on mobile devices. Like your laptop, they too can be turned into microphones by an outsider. And the hacker can even do it in a way that makes your phone look like it's still turned off. The only sure way to defeat that attack is to take the battery out of your phone, something I sometimes do if I think what I'm talking about is really sensitive. Of course, if you own an Apple iPhone, you can't take the battery out. So you have to leave the phone at home or outside the meeting room if you want to be 100% sure you aren't being taped. And here's a really scary bit of news, as if that wasn't enough. I recently saw the demonstration of a program known as Place Raider that uses your mobile device to create a three-dimensional picture of your home and then ships the picture to an outsider. The program can construct a 3D representation of the interior of the house, perfect for robbers casing the joint or for assassins. In some ways, though, this shouldn't be a problem for too long. Now that the vulnerability is known, we'll soon have patches to protect that particular vulnerability. To combat this sort of attack, you need to do the same thing as with your laptop. Get and use and keep up-to-date effective security programs on all of your devices. Another valuable way to protect your information is with encryption. As you recall from lecture 14, encryption effectively turns your data into a secret code that nobody else can read without a key. And that solves a lot of security problems in one move. Let's put it this way. Who cares if the bad guys get into the house if everything you care about is locked up in the safe? So you want to be sure and put all of your sensitive data in your metaphorical computer safe. This is going to include your tax information, credit card numbers and bills, financial statements from your bank, your social security number, anything like that. And without being judgmental in the least, if you keep any bits of personal information about yourself that might be embarrassing or unfortunate if disclosed, then treat that information as sensitive to it and put it in the safe. So how do you encrypt your information? Well, obviously, you need an encryption program. There are plenty of good ones out there, but one that I like because it's free and because the community that created it is pretty solidly committed to personal security, is called TrueCrypt. You can find it on the web and download it at no cost, but if it doesn't appeal to you, there are others out there. RoboForm, MyInfoSafe, and Privacy Drive are a few that also seem to work pretty well. What these programs will do is create an encrypted portion of your hard drive where you can store your sensitive data. The best ones use an interface that makes this encrypted segment look just like a directory in your Windows or Apple system. So basically, you open up this encrypted drive space, and then you drag and drop your data, your Word document or Excel spreadsheet or photo, or maybe the data file for your Quicken Books program. You drag and drop it into the encrypted drive space. And then when you close the drive, 
All that data is hidden by encryption. It becomes an unreadable ciphertext that can only be decrypted if you have the encryption key. Of course, to reopen the encrypted drive, you need a password that serves as your encryption key. But you've already learned how to create the right type of password. In the end, if you use a virtual encryption program on your hard drive, the data inside will be accessible only to you. And these programs really do work. Right now, as this lecture is being recorded, the FBI is struggling to decrypt a hard drive that they think has child pornography on it. And they simply can't do it. Any program with 256-bit encryption is, in today's world, virtually uncrackable. But remember, don't forget your password, because if you do, you won't be able to get your data back out of the safe. The flip side of keeping your data safe is that when you get rid of it and delete it, you really need to delete it. Many of us delete files by moving the icon to the recycle bin, or on Apple computers, the trash can, and think we're erasing the data. We're not. When you're done with some data and information and want to throw it away, you need to do so in a manner that is effective. You wouldn't throw your old checks into the garbage for someone to sift through, so why would you do that with your old electronic checks? Let's start with some basics. When you move a file to the recycle bin, all you've done is erase the pointer in the directory that tells the program, say Microsoft Word, where to go to pull up the file. That's a bit like throwing out the table of contents of a book. But of course, if you still have the rest of the book, you can find the chapter you're looking for anyway, even without a table of contents. Likewise, an intruder in your system who has access to the entire hard drive and is seeking to steal some intellectual property doesn't really need to know where the files are. It helps, of course, but with a little bit of time, he can find the original files themselves. So if you're deleting data, you need to use an eraser program that really erases the data. The one I use is actually called Eraser, but again, there are plenty of others on the market. What an eraser program does is find your sensitive data and then overwrite it with random gibberish. In effect, it shreds your data and randomizes it so that it can't be recreated. That eliminates the information for eternity. Now, if you're like me, sometimes you do delete data by mistake and want to be able to undelete it and put it back. So what I do is pretty simple. I put things I want to delete in my recycle bin and then I tell the eraser program to erase that bin once a week. I figure that if I haven't gone back and gotten the data in a week, then I really don't need it. You can give yourself a month if you're forgetful, or do it every day if you're paranoid. But however you do it, if you use an eraser program, you can clean out your data permanently. Now, so far, we've been talking mostly about the devices you use and work on. Let's change the focus some and talk about what you do on the web. That is, what you can do about the information you put out on the internet for others to see. First, as with computer hygiene, start by paying attention to your own behavior. Don't go to dodgy websites. Don't post too much personal information on the web. And be careful what you say and do in public cyberspace, because it all gets recorded somewhere. 
One of my favorite stories from recent days is about how college students spend their Sunday mornings now. It seems that everyone goes out drinking and taking silly pictures on Saturday night and posts the photos to Facebook with all of their friends tagged, that is, identified by name. But most students are savvy enough today to realize that they need to manage how information about their conduct is shared on the web. And so they spend Sunday morning going through Facebook and untagging the photos. <laughs> I suppose it might be easier not to go out and get drunk and do silly things in the first place, but they are, after all, college-age kids. At least they are more aware now of what is happening and are making an effort to control their cyberspace appearance. Another way to stay safe on the Internet is to be careful about how you visit websites. There are two ways to access websites that are in common use today. One is HTTP, which stands for Hypertext Transfer Protocol. The other is HTTPS, where the S stands for secure. If you browse to a website using HTTPS, then your system automatically encrypts your transmission back and forth. Now, not all websites can accept HTTPS, but you should make that your default setting. I use a program called HTTPS Everywhere that basically says, if we can get there through the secure system, we will. If you install that program or one like it and turn it on, then when you use your system to browse the Internet, at least you'll be trying to do it in as secure a manner as possible. Now, often, when you visit a website, the website leaves behind information on your computer. The good side of this is that the information, which is called a cookie for reasons I've never really understood, makes your next visit to the website go more quickly and easily. It helps the website remember who you are and what you're interested in. On the other hand, that can be a bad thing if you don't want people keeping track of you like that. I run a program called Cookie Cleaner once a month to wipe out my cookies. As a result, my browsing is a little slower, and the ads that get pushed to me aren't quite as well chosen, but that's a price I'm happy to pay for some privacy. Of course, cookies aren't the only way that your activities on the web are tracked. Remember the collusion program we talked about in the big data lecture and how information about your browsing history is stored for everyone to see? If that disturbs you, then you can browse anonymously if you want to. Doing it that way is generally slower, but it can help you maintain your privacy. One of the best ways I know to do that is to use a program known as Tor, a free software program operated by the Tor Project at torproject.org. We talked about Tor briefly in Lecture 5, the one on identity and anonymity. You'll recall that Tor is an anonymizing tool used worldwide by journalists, human rights activists, hackers, law enforcement officers, and anyone else who wants to be anonymous online, even criminals. What Tor does is use cryptography to encrypt messages and internet traffic so your request to, say, go to www.whitehouse.gov gets encrypted before it is passed along the web. In addition, Tor builds a volunteer network of servers around the globe to, to bounce encrypted traffic in a way that evades detection. For this reason, Tor is sometimes called an onion router. Each bounce adds a layer of obscurity and security to the message, and trying to get to the original source is like trying to peel back the layers of an onion to get to the center. 
it's almost impossible. If you use Tor software, you'll be able to conceal your originating IP address from discovery. Now lastly, take care in how you use and manage wireless connections at home and in public. At home, encrypt your wireless connections. It's easy to do and a great way to protect yourself from the war drivers I described at the outset of this lecture. And also, keep in mind that if you put your wireless router below ground, say in your basement, then the signals will go up into your house, but not out through the ground to the street. By contrast, a router in your attic is easy to see in the street. Simply moving your router can make it even harder to intercept your signal. Also, be careful what you do in public places like the coffee house or the airport. Don't do any confidential private activity on unencrypted connections like the connections at the Starbucks. Nearby network users on laptops and cell phones can use readily available programs to intercept your unencrypted wireless communications. So save all of your banking and bill paying for your encrypted home network and use the Starbucks Wi-Fi to read your newspaper. In addition, turn off the automatic login function for your Wi-Fi antenna on your computer, as well as on your iPhone, Android, or iPad. When you log into a new Wi-Fi network, your computer will typically ask you if you want to remember that network, say AT&T Wi-Fi, which is the one that's often at Starbucks, and log into it automatically the next time. Most people say yes, and they're happy to do so, since that means that when you come back to the Starbucks, you'll just automatically log into ATT Wi-Fi without searching for it. But what happens when you're out on the street? Your device is always looking for a network named ATT Wi-Fi. So if a bad actor is near you and broadcasts that network name, your stupid device will think it's found an old friend and invite it to connect. And then the other fellow has access to your phone or your laptop. One of my cybersecurity friends says he tried this in the Pentagon cafeteria, and he got several dozen requests to connect, all of which he could have taken advantage of if he were inclined to do so. So the only networks you should tell your devices to remember are the personal ones you trust, and give them unusual names, not common ones like ATT or Linksys. There's no need to be promiscuous in your broadcasts. Will all this make you invulnerable? Absolutely not. Is it all free? Again, no. It costs money and takes some time and energy to implement effective personal security protocols. So let's be blunt. That's annoying. And it's one of the reasons that everyone systematically underinvests in cybersecurity. But in the end, underinvesting in cybersecurity is also fundamentally unwise. The steps we've talked about today aren't perfect, but they'll make you a less attractive target. In my book, that's worth the effort and the cost. So in our next lecture, we'll look at some of the things that other people, service providers, for example, can likewise do to make cyberspace safer. I look forward to talking to you then. In the last lecture, 
We've talked about ways to protect your own computer and your own activities on the web. So it's probably a good time to ask the same question about our larger infrastructure system. Are there things the owners of the transportation system or the city-operated wastewater treatment facility aren't doing but should be that would help? It turns out there probably are. So in this lecture, we're going to look at another way of thinking about cybersecurity, one that is mostly not in vogue today. We're going to ask, in effect, whether or not we shouldn't stop planning to be perfect and instead think about cybersecurity more in terms of resiliency and recovery. As you'll see, there may be good reason to think that a better course is to plan for a little bit of failure. So, as we've spoken about at some length, the vulnerabilities of American infrastructure are quite real. Perhaps even more troubling, they're growing every day. In some ways, we are pushing our dependency on cyberspace forward faster than ever before. And the hole we are digging for ourselves is just getting deeper. Here's one example that caught my eye recently. In the state of Washington, wind power is increasingly being used to generate electricity. I think that's a fundamentally good thing. But the electric utilities sometimes have a small problem. During storms, the wind turbines generate too much power, more than the system can use. The oversupply of electricity might, in a worst-case scenario, overwhelm the grid and cause a blackout. To guard against this prospect, the power authorities have taken the smart grid concept and turned it on its head. Now, typically, the idea behind a smart grid is that in times of high demand, the energy company can regulate the power consumption of its customers. For example, it can reduce energy use by modifying cooling tower temperatures and shift energy usage by commercial consumers to non-peak times, if that's necessary. Some automated manufacturing plants are just as happy to run their processes at night as during the day, if that'll save money. Smart grid technology, managed through the internet, evens out the peaks and valleys of electricity demand by consumers and lets producers plan for a more regular and constant generating schedule. In Washington, the Bonneville Power Administration reverses that structure in a really interesting way. When the wind turbines create too much supply, the administration offloads the excess power into the hands of volunteer customers. It might, for example, raise the temperature in a customer's water heater or heat ceramic bricks in an electric space heater. These systems are, in effect, thermal sinks, and when the crisis passes, the customers can return the stored energy to the grid. In other words, instead of smoothing out the peaks and valleys of demand, the administration even out the variation in supply. These energy storage systems are operated at a distance. They're turned on and off through remote communications enabled by cyberspace technology. It's a wonderful technology, and yet a vulnerable one. For whenever any control system gets linked to the Internet so that operators gain remote access, then so do those malicious actors who might want to hack the system to disable, disrupt, degrade, or destroy it. That's the four horrible Ds of computer hacking, remember? At a large scale, this might be a way to attack the power generation system itself. 
On a smaller scale, a hacker might be able to cause a heater in a single house to blow up as part of, say, an assassination attempt. Now, in fairness, these concerns are mildly speculative. But connections like those opened up by the Bonneville system create more than merely theoretical possibilities for actionate additions that goes down to the consumer level. As of now, we've mostly seen systems intrusions at the wholesale level, like, say, Stuxnet. Now, we have to imagine the consequences if a cyber intrusion could operate at the retail level and, say, could actually affect the heat of the ceramic bricks in your personal space heater. I've even seen research suggesting that hackers can attack an implantable insulin pump. That's a a medical device that keeps insulin-dependent diabetics alive. And reprogram the pump after it's inside the human body so that it administers an insulin overdose and kills the victim. The mind boggles. The Bonneville system, like all utility systems, is operated by a supervisory control and data acquisition, or SCADA system. And by now you know that SCADA systems are vulnerable. We saw it with the Department of Homeland Security's Aurora test. That's the test we talked about back in Lecture 1 that first demonstrated that intrusions into SCADA systems were capable of having real-world effects. In that case, a diesel generator was burned out and destroyed. And of course, the Stuxnet virus in Iran which was the first piece of malware we talked about in this course, is exactly the same thing. An intrusion on a system that, at least in Iranian eyes, was a piece of critical infrastructure. The prospects of further SCADA attacks should heighten everyone's concern. In fact, in 2012, the U.S. Department of Energy's Inspector General told Congress that there were shortcomings in more than one-third of the smart grid projects that got federal funding. These shortcomings range from simple things like incomplete strategies for deploying and maintaining the new systems to more concerning flaws like vague and inadequate plans for responding to an attack. The threats and weaknesses in the system, the DOE inspector general said, quote, may expose the systems to an unacceptable level of risk. And remember, SCADA systems run virtually every utility and manufacturing plant in America, and indeed around the globe. We can imagine any number of worst-case scenarios, ranging from blackouts to floods to even possibly a nuclear meltdown, all at the hands of cyber hackers. So clearly, we need to build a better cyber policy for the protection of critical infrastructure. But what does such a policy look like? Earlier in the course, we discussed what economic principles tell us about the role of government regulation. And I offered my own view that they tell us we should mostly let the market drive the answer. But what answer is that? If we could could conceive of the right infrastructure protection policy, what would it be? Put another way, our approach to protecting our cyber systems today seems to be limited to sitting back and hunkering down in defense behind firewalls, antivirus programs, and intrusion protection systems. While those strategies certainly have their uses, we're entitled to ask whether the private sector ought not to be looking for a more effective solution. One way to approach a model of private sector cybersecurity 
is to become resigned in a good way to reality. To recognize that stuff happens is not just a mantra for the disaffected and unhappy. Rather, the reality of failure is a truism of the world, and it's a particular truism for the cyber domain. What this means is that, for better or worse, cyber breaches are inevitable. A cybersecurity strategy that is premised on the possibility of a perfect defense and 100% protection against attacks is a practical impossibility. In fact, some theorists even say that it is a theoretical impossibility, though that's a more debatable proposition. But if that's the case, maybe we need to change our strategy. Maybe our principal planning should be based on the assumption that at least some attacks will succeed. In other words, the only thing we can be 100% certain of is that we should prepare to fail. There are many systems that incorporate expectations of possible failure in the world, any one of which would serve as a good model for cybersecurity. The electric grid itself, in fact, is not designed to work 100% of the time. Everyone knows that blackouts can occur, both because of man-made errors and as a result of natural disasters. The principal goal of the electric grid management system is to make sure that power is rapidly restored. That means many backups to replace systems taken offline and an effective repair system for fixing the grid when it gets broken. Of course, we sometimes think that the repair system is less effective than it might be, but that's really a criticism of how the model is implemented, not the model itself. The point is that the system anticipates and plans for some level of failure. Cybersecurity policy could do the same. One particularly intriguing way to think about cybersecurity is to use as a mental model our medical and public health care system. And here we're not talking about the flawed aspects of the health care system in terms of insurance and coverage. We're talking about the basic structure of diagnosis and treatment. In many ways, cybersecurity maps very well onto the healthcare system. Just as we never expect everyone to remain perfectly healthy, we should never expect every computer system to remain perfectly free of malware. The similarity of the metaphor even extends to the names we use for computer malware. Virus and infection, for example. The implications in the design of a system that begins from an assumption of failure are significant. So let's spend a minute and see how that might work and what it might mean in practice. As in the medical system, our first set of cyber rules would deal with disease or infection prevention. In the healthcare world, these are often simple steps related to personal hygiene, washing your hands, drinking good, clean water, and the like. Similarly, in the cyber domain, good cyber hygiene is a strong candidate for success in limiting the number of infections. Good passwords, regularly changed, are like washing your hands. Making sure you think before you click on a suspect hotlink to avoid malware infection is a lot like boiling your water before you drink it, and not drinking water that you suspect is unsafe. Just as wide swaths of disease can be prevented through simple cleanliness, many cyber infections can be readily prevented through simple equivalent steps. In fact, most of the things we talked about in the last lecture are just examples of putting this idea into practice. 
And much of the public policy that would advance these goals involves simple education, making sure the general public knows what safe computer hygiene is and how they can achieve it. Now, the next part of the analogy is vaccination. Almost every American has gotten his or her required vaccinations before they go to school. As a result, smallpox has been effectively eradicated and cases of polio are in steep decline. We can easily imagine using the same concept in relation to computer malware. Indeed, the programs that are most likely to be employed are quite deliberately called antivirus programs, purposely echoing the medical construct. For the private sector response, we could imagine a public relations campaign to encourage the use of up-to-date antivirus programs, just like the old-style public service announcements that reminded parents to make sure their children had gotten their shots before school. As we discussed in Lecture 9, in connection with the idea of government regulation, we could also think about an insurance or liability system for encouraging the adoption of a vaccination requirement. No antivirus certificate? No insurance. Or think about this. Scott Charney, who's the vice president for trustworthy computing at Microsoft, has suggested that private sector software manufacturers should embed within their browsers a health certification function. In essence, every system would broadcast that it was using the best available and up-to-date antivirus system. When you, in turn, sought to connect to that system, you would first validate the vaccination certificate of the system you were connecting to. Depending on how serious we considered the problem to be, we could even imagine a mandatory vaccination model, like the one for school children. This last idea would obviously require governmental mandates that would make vaccination a condition of access to the web, which some might not like. Now, would that model be perfect? By now, you know that the answer is, of course not. Certificates could themselves be the targets of hackers, and individual users could choose not to vaccinate themselves. And as we've learned, antivirus programs don't work against new zero-day malware attacks, just like flu vaccines don't prevent infection by a novel flu strain. But just like vaccination in the physical world, cyber vaccine requirements could cut down on some of the more common virus infections. We can take the medical model still further. When a disease outbreak does occur, our healthcare system reacts by doing two things. It floods resources to the site of the infection to combat it. We send Cipro, for example, to those exposed to anthrax. And it quarantines those who've been exposed to the disease so that they can't spread the infection by exposing others to it. That's why, for example, students who are ill are sent home from school. The cybersecurity model can also map onto this structure. When a company finds malware on its system, it typically floods resolution resources to the infected portions of the system to remove the infection. Companies often hire a cybersecurity company. One of the largest these days goes by the name Mandiant, and they send technicians to help out with sophisticated techniques, a bit like emergency room doctors coming on the run with the IV and the antibiotics. Of equal significance, the compromised computer server is often taken offline. In effect, it's quarantined until it's fixed. We can see something of how this works 
in the anonymous attack on the security consultancy Stratfor that happened in late 2011. Now, Stratfor provides open source intelligence on national security risks around the globe. Its paying subscribers receive email briefings on a daily basis. So do other customers who subscribe to the free information update system that provides them with a a simple summary of important daily events. When anonymous hacktivists penetrated the Stratfor system, they stole all of the company's customer email information and some credit card information as well, apparently. In response, Stratfor was obliged to close its website for several weeks while working to fix the security vulnerabilities. Only after Stratfor was confident that the intrusion by Anonymous had been scrubbed was the website relaunched. Whether that confidence was justified remains to be determined. One issue that this entire thought experiment brings to mind is whether or not voluntary quarantine is enough. Stratfor, after all, took itself offline. What if it hadn't wanted to? Would its customers shun it? And would that be enough? Or do we need some way of creating a government-mandated quarantine system where, for serious cyber infections, the government can, if necessary, force someone to take their server offline? We have that capacity in the public health world. But whether or not it's used depends on the severity of the outbreak. We do it for bubonic plague, but not the typical flu. Bringing that authority into the cyber domain would be highly controversial. How would we define which cyber infections justified involuntary quarantine? Just imagine the outcry if private citizens were forcibly cut off from the Internet because of a malware infection. There are still other aspects of our public health system that might have echoes in the cyber domain. For example... Just as the Centers for Disease Control and Prevention track the outbreak of various diseases, we need to think of the U.S. Computer Emergency Readiness Team, the DHS component that collects and distributes information about new cyber viruses that have been discovered, as the cyber equivalent of the CDC. This might require us to expand U.S. CERT and give it greater authority to collect information on cyber viruses. We also need excess hospital bed capacity to deal with epidemic infections. And we need something similar, excess bandwidth capacity, if you will, in the cyber domain to deal with denial of service outbreaks. Prior to September 11th, there was a nationwide shortage of emergency hospital bed capacity in America. Hospitals only increased their spare bed capacities in the wake of 9-11 and the subsequent anthrax and other scares. One hopes that it will not take a major cyber disaster to spur the private sector to build the spare bandwidth capacity it needs in time of crisis. Perhaps most importantly, however, the conceptualization of cybersecurity as an analog to public health brings with it a fundamental sea change in our thinking. It would help us recognize that an effort to prevent all cyber intrusions is as unlikely to succeed as an effort to prevent all disease. Computer systems, like people, will get infected. The goal is to prevent those infections that are preventable, cure those that are curable, and realize that when the inevitable illness happens, the cyber system, like the public health system, must be designed to continue operating.
Most broadly, though, the analogy is obviously not perfect. The medical model starts us thinking about one of the most significant questions we can ask in cyber context. What does it mean to be resilient? The Department of Defense is defending an immense cyber system with more than 7 million computers. How do we ensure that it continues to operate even when under attack? And even if some aspects of that attack succeed? There's lots that can be said on the topic. In fact, resiliency in design is a whole separate area of academic study, and it certainly isn't limited in application to cyber systems. In the cyber domain, resiliency means that our systems are robust, adaptable, and capable of rapid response and recovery. As noted by Franklin Kramer, a national security expert with the Atlantic Council, to create system-wide resiliency, we need to use a variety and mixtures of techniques and mechanisms. Here are some of the building blocks. First, diversity. We tend to think that genetic diversity is good for enabling the survival and adaptability of species. Well, it turns out the same is probably true for cyber systems. One way to foster resiliency is to build cyber systems with multiple forms of programming in their architecture. That way, any single form of attack is not successful against the whole system. It turns out that it's really a pretty good thing for your company to run both Microsoft and Linux, or maybe an Apple system. If one system gets hacked, chances are the other one will keep working. Another important building block of resiliency is redundancy. This means frequently creating snapshots or checkpoints of critical systems at a time and place when they are working in a known and stable condition. If you store that snapshot, the critical systems can be easily restored. You just use your Mr. Peabody and Sherman Wayback Machine. That's from an old cartoon I used to watch as a kid. And you go back in time to when your system was working. This is a little different than backing up your data. You're backing up the whole system, but it works the same way. And of course, to the extent restoration is not feasible, you can use an external backup system with copies of essential data and programs so that a compromised operating system can be replaced. We can also increase resiliency by how we actually build the system. Today, Infrastructure providers link all of their activities together in a series of servers. We can do lots better by isolating and segregating different parts of a cyber system from each other. That way, any infected parts can be isolated and hived off so that a single failure will not cascade across the entire system. You'll remember, for example, that lots of the failures we've seen start with an email and a malicious document or a web link. So why do companies insist on continuing to put their email systems on the same servers that run the electricity generation plant? Air gaps and separate servers are good things. A corollary of this is the idea that we need to watch what is happening inside a cyber system, not just guard the entry points. Advanced persistent threats can be resident, unobserved within a cyber system for a long time. Malicious activity within the system may be infrequent and difficult to detect. So internal monitoring is necessary to give a better sense of when and how intrusions are occurring. In fact, 
one of the most important things a company can do to catch intrusions is to watch what traffic is leaving its system because that's where the real evidence of intrusion will be found. Most intrusions call back to headquarters for instructions periodically. Many others are there to steal information and send it back to their creators. So watching the outbound traffic can tell you whether or not you have an intruder inside. And if, as we've discussed, cybersecurity is often a human problem, then big infrastructure operators need to think hard about who gets access to which portions of their systems. Many intrusions are made by insiders who take advantage of their access to install malicious software. In addition to better personnel screening, which can keep out the spies, another effective precaution is to ensure that the people who are given access to a system get the least amount of privileged access necessary to achieve their purposes. A final component of resiliency is, surprisingly, to foster change. If targets of attack are concentrated in a single place and protected by an unchanging defense, a malicious intruder has a fixed target or objective against which to direct his resources. If an infrastructure provider distributes the targets widely and varies the defense, its system will be better able to frustrate attack. Randomness, unpredictability, and even deception introduce variability into the mix and make a successful attack more difficult to achieve. Taken together, these various tactics, which we've only summarized here in a short form, can create a more resilient system. One that is not immune to failure, but is less likely to be hacked and capable of operating even when subject to intrusion or attack. There's one other issue to talk about to complete our discussion of protecting critical infrastructure. The idea of a hackback. As you recall, a hackback involves, in its most simple form, hacking into an attacker's computer to defeat his attempts to hack you. Here, we're transitioning from our consideration of resilience to focus on deterrence. Why? Well, one way to make yourself less vulnerable is to make yourself very dangerous to attack. There are actually many flavors of hackback. They include measures that cause damage to a would-be attacker, measures that lure and ensnare hackers with honeypot traps, or even preemptive attacks on parties who have shown some intent to hack. In the cyber world, there are also active defensive measures that you can take if you're subject to an attack. Tactics that go by names like IP flatlining, where you use programs to effectively take your adversary offline, or beaconing, where you put a tracker into your own data so you can find out who stole it, or data traps, where you lure attackers in and then give them false data, often with beacons in it. Collectively, these types of defensive countermeasures go by the name of hackback. Now, as we considered in our lecture on cybercrime, most active defenses are almost certainly crimes under U.S. law. After all, my attack on my attacker will almost certainly involve accessing a computer without the authorization of its owner, either the malicious actor and attacker himself, or sometimes even an innocent intermediary. And so, 
almost every aspect of private sector self-help is, in theory, a violation of the Computer Fraud and Abuse Act. There are even more stringent limits on hackbacks if the attacker is, say, the representative of a nation-state, as in the case of China-sponsored hacker groups we've been talking about throughout these lectures. That's because foreign policy is something we leave to government. It's actually illegal in the United States for a private corporation to conduct diplomacy. Laws like the Neutrality Act and the Logan Act prohibit private actors from waging war or negotiating with foreign powers on behalf of the United States because that's considered a government function. So what is a company to do if an imminent attack against its infrastructure is coming from a state-sponsored attacker? Does it rely on the government? Or will its efforts to defend itself violate the law? Will the first shot in the first cyber war be fired by a private company? These are not theoretical questions. Despite the legal uncertainties, new companies are springing up all around the country with the sole purpose of providing offensive response options for companies under attack. For example, one new company called CrowdStrike offers services that include counter-espionage techniques, hostile target dismantling, and denial and deception. They proudly boast, quote, we help your enterprise go on the offensive against today's most advanced adversaries, end quote. And they're not alone. The specter of private cyber conflict is well and truly upon us. One final real-world example will give you some idea of the scope and difficulty of the problem faced by infrastructure protectors, and all the rest of us, too. As we discussed in Lecture 2, some researchers in Germany began in 2012 to publicize a project they called HoneyNet. It's a graphic representation of malware attacks happening around the globe in real time. If you haven't already visited their website, go to map.honeynet.org and you can see the attacks as they spread across the globe, red for attackers and yellow, naturally, for the honeypots that catch them. The geographic scope and relentless frequency of the attacks is enough to scare almost anyone. And bear in mind that the map is just a small sample of everything that is actually happening. When you see the map, you realize the breadth of our vulnerability. For me, at least, it suggests that playing only firewall defense is a losing strategy. And that, in turn, convinces me that we need to systematically consider going on the offense and also plan for failure. Both, I think, are the powerful realities of the cyber domain today. In some ways, the concept of resiliency is about as optimistic a vision as we can hope for when faced with the reality of cyber attacks. Like illness and disease, we understand that cyber infections are endemic in the world. But perhaps they aren't, or don't have to be, all that catastrophic. Absent the cyber equivalent of the Black Plague, we can have a very realistic expectation that our cyber systems can and will recover from attack if we build them the right way. And at a time when we are increasingly dependent on those same cyber systems for almost everything we do, it is rather comforting to have that image of resiliency in our minds. Marry that to a little bit of deterrence, and maybe, just maybe, we'll have a good model for stability in this ever-changing cyber world. And with that, 
we're nearing the end of this lecture series. In our next and final lecture, we'll summarize some of the things that I hope you've learned, and we'll also take the opportunity to peer into our crystal ball and see what the future of cybersecurity looks like. I look forward to talking to you then. Hardly a day passes in America without a media story about cybersecurity. In the last few years before these lectures were taped, President Obama crafted a new cybersecurity policy. He appointed a cyber czar and submitted a comprehensive legislative proposal to Congress. Competing Senate cyber bills clamored for attention on the floor of the chamber during the 112th session of Congress. Turf wars between the U.S. Department of Homeland Security and the National Security Agency over a cybersecurity responsibility were widely reported. The Department of Defense announced a new Cyber 3.0 strategy, and a U.S. Cyber Command was created by the Pentagon. And yet, risks still abound. Nobody in the public quite knows who unleashed the Stuxnet cyber attack against Iranian nuclear facilities, though America is strongly implicated. And as we've seen, other countries like China, Russia, and Iran have demonstrated the ability and willingness to use cyber tools aggressively. In mid-2012, the NSA ran a classified cyber war game for Congress, demonstrating the vulnerability of the electric grid. The hypothetical attack is reported to have brought down the entire New York City electric grid. In the end, the cybersecurity policy that the United States adopts will determine how billions of dollars in federal funding are spent, and it will have vast, immeasurable consequences on privately owned critical infrastructure in America and on the individual lives of Americans in the United States and quite possibly citizens abroad. So, in this final lecture, I want to briefly review some of the fundamental aspects of cyberspace that we've discussed in the last 17 lectures. Then I want to turn the lens around and look forward. I want to conclude our exploration by asking, what does the future hold for cyberspace and cybersecurity? Well, let's start with some of the observations that I think summarize much of what we've come to understand in this course. First, cyberspace is everywhere. The Department of Homeland Security has identified 18 sectors of the economy as the nation's critical infrastructure and key resources. As one would expect of a comprehensive list, it covers everything from transportation to the defense industrial base. It also includes energy, financial systems, water, agriculture, and telecommunications. The remarkable thing is that virtually all of the sectors now substantially depend on cyber systems. Even those activities most solidly grounded in the physical world, such as manufacturing or food production, have become reliant on computer controls and access to the World Wide Web of Information. Meanwhile, the cyber domain works across geographic boundaries at amazing speeds, allowing access to information at a distance. With access to information, 
often comes control. Through cyberspace, nation states can perpetrate espionage. Industrial spies can steal trade secrets. Criminals can steal money. And militaries can disrupt command and control communications. These are real and powerful dangers. Today, real-world effects can be caused by cyber effects. Now that cyber attacks like Stuxnet have demonstrated that a virus can, in theory, shut down a nuclear reactor or disable an electric grid, the prospects of serious second-order physical effects in the real world are significant. Our second observation, the internet destroys time and space. The fundamental characteristic of the internet that makes it truly different from the physical world is that it lacks any boundaries. It spans the globe and it does so nearly instantaneously. There is no kinetic analog for this phenomenon. Even the most globe-spanning weapons, like missiles, take 30 or more minutes to reach their distant targets. And that means, third, that the international dimension of cyberspace is critical. As we discussed, the Westphalian age of cyberspace conflict looms. One of the critical questions that lies ahead of us is the nature of international internet governance. Today, for the most part, rules about the internet domain are set by nonprofit international organizations. That state of affairs is being challenged. Powerful sovereign nations recognizing the importance of the Internet, seek to exert control, putting their own interests ahead of any international interest in an open Internet community. Indeed, in late 2012, the Syrian government reportedly went to war with its own population in cyberspace, hacking into the computers of opposition groups to monitor and arrest their members, even as opponents to the regime fought back online. Meanwhile, informal groups of hackers devoted to the concept of Internet freedom are doing battle on other fronts to maintain the Internet as outside of the Westphalian nation-state structure. Where that contest will end is anybody's guess. Fourth, the fundamental of anonymity on the network is nearly impossible to change. That means that anonymity is a feature, not a flaw. For now, anonymity is inherent in the structure of the Internet. As originally conceived, the cyber domain serves simply as a giant switching system, routing data around the globe using general Internet protocols. It embeds no other function, like identity or verification of delivery, into the protocols. The simplicity of this system is, to a large degree, the cause of the Internet's pervasiveness, all of which means that regardless of whether or not anonymity is good because it protects free political speech or bad because it allows hackers to hide, it's here to stay. And yet, paradoxically, as we discussed in the lectures on big data and privacy, for innocent Internet travelers like you and I, the veil of anonymity can be readily pierced. Our fifth principle, marginal lines never work in the long run. Cybersecurity is in the midst of its Maginot Line period. Governments, companies, and other users 
hunker down behind firewalls and deploy virus protections and intrusion detection systems in a passive defensive effort. Like the Maginot Line, this system is rather ineffective. Better efforts will require the development of active defenses. Instead of merely standing guard at internet system gateways, we need to look beyond those gateways to assess system patterns and anomalies. With that sort of information, cybersecurity could transition from detecting intrusions after they occur to preventing the intrusions before they occur. And sixth, the only certainty is that our protective cyber systems will be ineffective. No matter how well constructed, the cyber domain is sufficiently asymmetric that defeat is inevitable. Someday, somewhere, a cyber attack or intrusion will succeed in ways that, that one can hardly imagine, with consequences that one cannot fully predict. It follows that a critical con component of any strategy is to plan for inevitable failure and for recovery from it. And then finally, the single and most fundamental principle that I hope we've learned is a sense of humility about our understanding of cyberspace. We must be aware that the cyber domain is a dynamic environment that changes constantly. Today, people use the internet in ways that they did not imagine just a few years ago. At the turn of the century, Facebook didn't exist. Today, it boasts a billion users or more. The use of cyber weapons, like Suxnet, is so novel that we don't even have a good way of characterizing them. So anything that the United States or the international community do in terms of legislation or regulation must emphasize flexibility and discretion over mandates and prescriptions. It's quite possible that today's great idea for Internet security will kill tomorrow's essential application. And so, as we address cybersecurity concerns, and surely we must, we should all bear in mind as a guiding principle the wisdom of Hippocrates. First, do no harm. Okay, even though I just said we need to be humble in thinking about the future of cyberspace, I want to end our time together by being bold and making some predictions. But only if you promise not to hold me to them too much. After all, we really do not know what we don't know. The entire future of our engagement in the cyber domain is an unknown unknown. Of course, the cyber domain is not unique in that way. So-called experts routinely misunderstand trends, and their predictions about the future are often wrong. But sometimes, they seem almost prescient. Here's one out-of-the-box example. In the classic science fiction novel, Marooned in Real Time, published in 1986, author Werner Vinge imagined the prospects for the human race as computer processing power continued to increase exponentially, while data storage costs became, conversely, exponentially less. He imagined a world in which individuals each personally owned massive databases and communicated with them by simple thought. And just the other day, I saw the first reports of hardware systems that can read electrical brain impulses. Maybe the fanciful days of communicating by thought with our cyber systems aren't really that far off. 
Even more speculatively, Binge wrote that this type of pervasive communication with massive databases and artificial intelligence would create a a singularity of some sort. He thought that the very fabric of human nature might change and that the increased capacity for connection and analysis on the global scale through the cyber domain would lead to the disappearance of the physical human race as it transcended to a higher, more evolved plane of existence. Now, maybe you think that's not such a great prospect, but it surely is a fascinating one. And it really is a good book. (laughs) Now, even though one suspects that such a transformative change in our world is unlikely, at least in the near term, what we can be sure of is that developments in cyber technology are guaranteed to bring about changes in ways that are impossible to predict. So what can we see in the future that's a bit more realistic? Notwithstanding a reasonable possibility of error, here are a few thoughts ranging in order from near-term to longer-term trends. And I've just picked a few possibilities from among many we could talk about. So first, cloud computing. Cloud computing is the new developing in thing. Soon its use will become widespread. Everyone's rushing to it. The new federal cloud computing strategy isn't called cloud first for no reason. Indeed, the reasons to like the cloud are obvious. Cloud systems allow significant economies of scale. Using them is often cheaper and more efficient at the same time. The cloud is really a name for a variety of services. The fundamental thing that links all of them is that instead of being resident on a user's laptop or tower system, the services are provided by companies whose servers are connected to the consumer through the internet. The types of services available are as as broad as we can conceive. On-demand software is being developed that allows users to access the program and its associated data directly from the cloud. Users don't need to have the data or the programs on their own laptops or systems. All they need are programs that let them pull down what they want from the cloud. We sometimes call these less capable systems thin clients. We can think of using the cloud as just a platform so that the consumer is given the ability to deploy onto the cloud infrastructure his own created or purchased applications using programming languages and tools supported by the cloud service provider. We can also think of the cloud as infrastructure, essentially a turnkey outsourcing of hardware, software, data storage, application development, and other fundamental computing resources to the third-party cloud service provider via the network. Or we can just look at the cloud as a service, like a garbage collection service. In this model, a company like Google just rents out data storage space on its servers to other companies or individuals. All of these services share a common theme. The user, that's you and me, does not manage or control the underlying cloud infrastructure of servers, operating systems, and storage hubs. Instead, we get access to the data or applications on an as-needed basis from the cloud service provider the cloud will bring with it some real potential security benefits. When malware attempts to execute in the cloud context, it does so on software that is only virtually connected to your own hardware device. 
This often limits or modifies the malware's capacity for harm. What that, in turn, means is that cyber attacks may be significantly harder to accomplish in a cloud-oriented system. In addition, by its nature, the cloud permits the creation of systems with different levels of trust at different tiers of interaction. Low-level users get only a limited set of permissions and access. The capacity for malfeasance is limited by the inherent structure of the system, and the only people who can actually corrupt the system are the cloud providers at the top level. But as with everything in the cyber domain, there are two sides to this coin. The tiered structure creates a greater potential for catastrophically successful attack. Security works at the client level in cloud systems precisely because the cloud system owner is, in effect, God. He controls all the resources and all the data at the cloud provider level. But that means that a successful attack at this God level will have even worse consequences. Low-level users may not even know that the system has been compromised. Of equal concern is the challenge of identifying a trustworthy God. Cloud computing may make human corruption concerns less frequent, but the effects of a security compromise may be much greater. Who would we trust to be the electric grid God, for example? What powers would he have that affect all of us? And if power corrupts, who would we think is deserving of this power? Another consequence of cloud computing is that the promise of the cloud comes with a real risk, one that perhaps we've not yet come to grips with. Today's cloud systems use those thin clients we talked about earlier, simple interfaces like Google's Chromebook system that have very little independent computing power. All of the data, software, operating systems, and processing resources are stored in the cloud and pulled down to the small netbook when you need them. If that sounds familiar, it should. We're quickly recapturing the way that computer systems operated in the early 1980s when dumb terminals, little more than a screen and a keyboard, connected to a mainframe maintained by the system's administrator. The administrator made the resource allocation decisions, prioritized work, and controlled access to the processing systems. So the translation is clear. Thin client equals dumb terminal. Cloud equals mainframe. That centralized system of control is fundamentally authoritarian. Today's internet and cyber system structure allows and empowers individuals. On a laptop, you can have almost as much processing power and data storage capacity as you want. From that laptop, you can link to the web and communicate with anyone. You can choose your own software, save your own data, and innovate as and when you please, at least on the general network. Of course, your company may have some rules about software that burden you, but that's a different story. Granted, with that power comes real risk. You are also responsible in the end for your own security system and the integrity of your own programs. But for many people, that cost is worth the benefit. Independence is a valuable commodity. In a cloud system, or the old mainframe system, the user makes none of these decisions. The software is provided by the system administrator, who stores the user's data and controls what new innovations are made available. The individual loses 
much of the independence that has made the web a, a fountain of innovation and invention. Now, in a liberal Western democracy, perhaps that's not a problem. After all, American users don't have to choose Google as their cloud provider if they don't want to, or for that matter, move to cloud services at all. But in more authoritarian states, the trend toward the cloud will make citizens even less able to control their own destiny. China will love the cloud structure for these very reasons. The Internet empowered the liberty of dissent, and we should be concerned that the cloud may take it away. Now, let's consider another novel phenomenon. The development of seemingly independent virtual realities where real-world actors interact online in created worlds. We call these places virtual worlds. Users, like you and me, create online personas called avatars. And these avatars can go out in the virtual world and interact with the avatars of other people. It sounds a bit like an internet chat room, except that the virtual world is a created space that mimics physical reality with traffic, weather, houses, everything like that. In virtual worlds, you can socialize, sell things, fight wars, and even make love, all without leaving your real-world home. It's quite an unusual phenomenon, and like cloud computing, comes with both promise and peril. Virtual worlds today include sophisticated games like World of Warcraft, where you can fight a war against trolls and orcs, and systems that more realistically mimic the real world, complete with economic and social interactions, such as Second Life. That's a world where, quite literally, you can live a second life, complete with job, family, finances, and social activities. These worlds exist on the Internet, but they're distinct from traditional cyber systems, and in many ways defy our ability to monitor actions that occur in them. The simplest of these virtual worlds, Facebook, would, if its users were a real-world population, be the third-largest nation-state in the world, trailing behind only China and Indian size. And some of the more complex virtual worlds are also growing impressively large. MapleStory, which is a massive multiplayer game, has more than 92 million users. Given the degree to which virtual worlds seek to simulate the real world, we should not be surprised that we face all of the same sorts of potential for a criminal or other malevolent behavior in these second environments that we find in real life. Already, we've seen sophisticated securities frauds that have virtual world consequences. Second Life has reportedly had its first instance of bank fraud. One Second Life avatar started a bank where Second Life money, called Linden dollars, which can be purchased for real American dollars, can be stored. And then he stole the money deposited in the bank, just like in the real world. And China has legislated government control over virtual currencies in response to virtual world operators issuing their own currencies and allowing them to be used in the real world to buy their own products. Different risks arise from other interactions between the virtual world and real world events. National security may, for example, be threatened when digital virtual currencies are traded in a virtual world in a manner that results in the real-world transfer of funds for purposes of, say, money laundering. The trading of real and virtual funds is, in effect, an unregulated system of exchange, 
much like black market money changes are in the real world. Because the core of most virtual worlds is a real functioning economy, even if it only offers trade in digital magical weapons, the situation is ripe for manipulation. This is particularly the case since very little real-world law applies directly in the virtual world, beyond perhaps the confines of contractual agreements between the users and the providers. And any application of real-world law is fraught with challenges. If you want to guess, I think that this is another area where nation-states will try to impose their own laws. After all, every avatar represents the citizen of a real-world nation. So it seems likely that virtual worlds will be yet another place where we will say where we will see Westphalian competition with all the complexity that brings. Here's another prediction. The insecurity of the internet is sufficiently scary that some people are going to attempt to secede. As we've discussed, the internet was built without authentication as a protocol. So any security functionality is by definition an add-on function. That's one of the reasons that anonymity is so hard to eliminate. So why not create a new internet? Why not start over again with a structure that has greater security provisions built in from the beginning? While it's nearly impossible to imagine that the existing cyber domain will ever disappear, it's quite plausible to imagine that a series of alternate internets might be created. This is particularly likely to be tried by those whose primary concerns are for security rather than freedom or privacy. For example, U.S. Cyber Command Head General Keith Alexander has already floated the concept of a dot-secure network for critical services such as banking that would be walled off from the public Internet. Access to dot-secure could be limited to those who submitted to an identity check and who got authority to access it. As General Michael Hayden, the former head of the CIA, put it, quote, we need a more hardened enterprise structure for some activities, and we need to go build it. All those people who want to violate their privacy on Facebook, let them continue to play. These sorts of gated Internet communities are, it seems, inevitable and may not be limited to a dot-secure network. Given the challenges to security in cloud computing and the dim prospects for effective international cooperation, some portions of the system will continue to have an almost Wild West character. To combat this, it's a pretty safe bet that we will build separate communities all over the system. Entrance to these communities will be carefully monitored and available only to trusted participants who agree to give up their anonymity and allow strong attribution of their actions. In the end, however, one suspects that the trend to walled gardens will be self-limiting. They may very well become prominent in authoritarian countries. China is already a near-walled garden behind the Great Firewall, and other authoritarian political systems are likely to follow suit. But within the broader, more liberal Western democracies, I suspect that their utility will be limited. There will be certain specialized areas, like the military and the financial networks, where gated Internet communities will be welcome. But the basic problem is that the entire concept contradicts the fundamental value of the network. The Internet is an engine of change and innovation precisely because of its globe-spanning, go-anywhere, do-anything nature. Those who cower inside walls of their own making are likely to be safer 
But in the brutal competition of technological innovation, it seems inevitable that they will fall behind. So finally, let's play completely outside the box for just a few minutes. The entire structure of the Internet, and thus all of its power and danger, is tied to the technology that undergirds it, the integrated silicon chip. That chip, at the heart of every computer, is the physical mechanism that creates the ones and zeros of binary code and drives the Internet. What if that weren't the basis for Internet computing anymore at all? That's a revolutionary thought. But it's also sort of like thinking, what if we had something that went faster than the horse and buggy without knowing precisely what that something might be? You can imagine how great a paradigm shift it would be, even if you don't know precisely what the it actually is. We may, just may, be standing on the threshold of such a change. Physicists have developed the concept of a quantum computer. That is, a computer whose operations are based on the theories of quantum physics in the same way that our current crop of computers is based on the operation of classical Newtonian physics laws. The physicist whose theoretical work is at the heart of this potential revolution won the Nobel Prize for their breakthrough in 2012. In quantum physics, it is possible for a particle to be in two places simultaneously and to be entangled with other particles and affect their activity instantaneously, even when the particles are far apart, what Einstein called spooky action at a distance. The transformation that would come from the development of a quantum computer is quite stunning. In a classic computer, each bit of data can be either a one or a zero. Every concept we communicate today, every word, every picture, is just a string of these ones and zeros. In a quantum computer, the qubit, that's short for quantum bit, can be either a one or a zero, or both a one and a zero at the same time. And when qubits are entangled with each other, they can, in theory, share information instantaneously. In effect, enabling all the entangled qubits to work on a single problem simultaneously, like some massive set of connected classical computers. If ever created, these quantum computers would make the power of contemporary computers look puny by comparison, much as the car, airplane, or spaceship leaves the horse and buggy behind. Because of the indefinite nature of the qubit status, with all the ones and zeros being capable of being both on and off at the same time, a two-qubit system could compute four values at once. A three-qubit system, eight. A four-qubit system, 16. And so on. This can have immense benefits. As we've discussed, increases in cyberspeed lie behind much of the technological revolution that we've experienced in recent decades. Quantum computers will be smaller, faster, and possibly cheaper in the long run. Meaning that we might see a day when your computer is a a small appliance that you wear on a pinky ring. On the other hand, vast computing power brings with it some obvious dangers. As we saw in Lecture 14, current encryption programs based on large prime number multiplication are amazingly robust and very difficult to break. But theoretical physicists have shown that for a quantum computer, the factoring of a large number into its prime number factors in the breaking of prime number encryption codes 
would be trivial. In fact, in August 2012, a quantum computer successfully factored the number 15, suggesting that the theoretical capacity to break prime number encryption may eventually become reality. So although we are just at the beginning now, these developments are not merely theoretical. At Oxford and Yale, theoreticians have actually built four and eight qubit large computing chips. When they get up to roughly 50 qubits, the computing power will match that of a contemporary laptop. Entrepreneurs in Singapore and Canada are working on the same question, and Google has been looking into quantum computing for more than three years. When will a large quantum computer be built? It's impossible to know. Possibly never. But if one is produced, well, that's a future that could begin to approach Werner Vinge's imaginary world. In some ways, the future is unsettling. If you think the internet and cyberspace are confusing and cutting edge today, imagine what they might be like tomorrow. On the other hand, maybe it's not so unsettling after all. If you learned anything in this course, I hope it is that cyberspace is remarkable and useful precisely because it is open and unstructured. That openness brings risks and dangers that cannot be eliminated. They can, however, often be understood, managed, and reduced. And I don't think that will change in the future, no matter what new technology we see. We will always face the same problem. How to reap all the benefits to be gained from increases in efficiency and productivity while minimizing the risks of harm. The reality is we can't have our cake and eat it too. But we can, with some effort, make the network safer and more resilient. And that, I think, is an admirable goal. The challenge of achieving that goal is one of the things that makes this area of technology, law, and policy so interesting and exciting. At least it is for me, and now I hope it is for you as well. Thank you very much for joining me on this exploration.